This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, everybody. Today, Rado talks through episode 74 of the podcast, and welcome back, everybody. As always, we are going to be hitting the mailbags and going through all of your questions, which, as always, have been sent into the email address, questions at rado.com. Folks, please give me your input so I can have some output and put on a show for you. Like always, we're going to be doing two halves. First, the gaming-related stuff. Then the personal stuff. My wife will show up at some point. At which point, you will notice, if you're watching on YouTube, I will get very scruffy because I'm doing things out of order. Because I've already recorded all the stuff with Jen. And now I've just got to do the intro stuff, uh, the gaming stuff. So, there's not much more to it. And uh, hang on. We'll be right back. Okay, everybody. Welcome back. Let's get going. First email uh, to come in was from Bogdan. Although, actually, this came in two parts because uh, Bogdan's first email was asking, what are my thoughts about people creating for their own personal use print-and-play copies of games with redesigned art? And... um, I already talked about this at great length in the prior episodes, episode 73, and then Bogdan eventually recognized that, and so he had a follow-up wherein he said, listen to the most recent podcast, and from what I got, unless I'm mistaken, you seem to be okay with that idea. Yes, I am. As I've said, you know what? If people don't have the scratch to put together to be able to play the crew, you can kind of replicate the crew with a... uh, couple of decks of regular playing cards and some Sharpies, if you're willing to do that. And I'm like, it's it's fine. I mean, I, I <clears throat> sure, it's, it's not the greatest thing in the world because obviously there was a lot of money and time and effort spent on actually tweaking and polishing and testing all the rules to make sure that works. But at the end of the day, you know what? It's legal precedent. You cannot copyright game design. Um, you know, that is something that people are free to adopt for themselves. And on some level, if, if people want to proxy together their own version of a game rather than buy the game, sure, I'd much rather they pony up the cash. And the thing is, I'm sure they would too. They would, If they could afford it, they would. And if they're willing to accept a hugely downgraded overall experience because just using um, you know some regular bicycle playing cards to try to replicate games, that's not going to be anywhere near as fun as actually using the real proper components that come with the game. But if people can't afford it, um, then they weren't going to buy the game anyway, and it's really not that much of a problem. But Bogdan then follows on. Uh, do I have the same view when it comes to using original copyrighted art? For example, all the components for uh, some Roland rights, like the Castle and Burgundy Dice Game or Railroad Inc., can be easily found online. <coughs> Excuse me. So it would be easy to make a copy for personal use. And I'll be honest, that. I am much less comfortable with. That feels much more like out-and-out theft to me. And no, 
I mean, you can't stop anybody from doing this. I mean, the publishers could, uh, you know, issue takedowns to Board Game Geek and you know, and do a Google image search and try to get these images removed. They know they can't. You know, that's the nature of the internet. Once it's out there, it never truly goes away. And at the end of the day, the vast majority of people who would want to play their games, they don't want to do this. They don't want to mess with doing color printouts and then laminating and all that. It's a very, very, very tiny percentage of players who have any interest in the arts and craft aspects of print and play to begin with. So really, the industry by and large knows this is not something that they have to crack down on. I mean, it even goes so far, I have done live playthroughs of Roll and Writes with the audience, and the publishers have worked with me to give end users low ink copies, low ink versions of the game, so people could play, could print them out without burning through all their toner and play along with me. Um, because at the end of the day, it's only a small percentage of players who are ever going to say, you know what, I want to save 15 bucks and I'll instead go through all the trouble to print things out and laminate them and do this and that and the other. That said, for people who are doing that, you really shouldn't. I mean, if you're actually going that extra mile um, and you know and and co-opting the original art in addition to the design, that seems like a bridge too far. I mean, never mind the fact that it's legally questionable because while game design cannot be copyrighted and trademarked, art can. So that is um, you know, and ultimately, I mean, I say this as a former video game designer myself. Art is more valuable. It's a tangible resource. <clears throat> Generally, I mean, it's not at all uncommon that more money was paid in the development to the art generation than the actual design generation. Um, so, yeah, I really don't think people should be doing that. But at the same time, it's such a small, inconsequential part of the industry. I don't think most publishers are too terribly bothered. I think the bigger issues come from you know professional board game counterfeiters, where you will just um, you know unknowingly buy what you think is a real retail edition of a game on Amazon or something like that, and it turns out oh this. Seems a little odd, but no, I guess it's real. And no, you got a complete counterfeit. And um, that's a problem. I also think um, Tabletop Simulator not doing the extra work to ensure that, um, you know, to get the pub the rights from publishers to say, hey, we want to put this mod of your game on our platform. Instead of stealing it from you and profiting from that, we will actually get your permission and work with you. Tabletop Simulator is an actual commercial enterprise. Regular people just sitting around at home who cannot afford to buy these games and decide to recreate them out of the player cards they already have, um, you know, bicycle cards, they're not really the issue here, I don't think. Anyway, hopefully that answers the question, Bogdan. <clears throat> Let me move on to Nick, who is curious why I've lowered my ranking of Marvel Champions because of uh, the expansions. Nick points out that if he recalls correctly, um, in one of my expansion reviews... Uh, which I did not like, maybe it was the Bruise expansion, I said I did not lower my ranking or overall liking of a game because I would simply play without the expansion. Why doesn't the same thing apply to Galaxy's Most Wanted? Which um, single-handedly brought down my rankings of Marvel Champions. Um, although it wasn't just that. I mean, uh, single-handedly is incorrect. There was, there, there, there's a continual evolution that Marvel Champions is going through that did prompt me to re-rank it from one of my top 10 games of all time into basically an 8 
it is now, instead of a 5 out of 5 stars, it's a 4 out of 5 stars game for me because of the continual um, complexity creep and the difficulty creep and, and stuff like that. And, and, you know, and the constant abandonment of what really made the game special to begin with. So anyway, uh, Nick continues, Just don't play those villains! How does having more options hurt? If you say it's because it's in a living card game, and living card games needs expansions to be replayable, I would suggest instead of releasing Galaxy's Most Wanted, Fantasy Flight Games, uh, would go out of business, uh, and all the content would exist for Marvel Champions. Ended, or, 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 imagine that um, you know, uh, uh, you know they, they just stopped releasing stuff. Do I agree with this assessment? Also, may I suggest not blind buying expansion content like the Mad Titans box, given you don't like the current trend of the game? Is that a fair assessment? Nick, that is totally fair. Um, it's, it's a very touchy-feely thing. At the end of the day, you did hit the nail on the head. Marvel Champions is a living card game. It is unique and different from Bruges. Bruges, as an example, is a game that, uh, once released, kind of sits there in ember. It does not um, evolve over the course of the game. It's not part of its fundamental sales proposition of Bruges. It's, this game is alive. It will change. It will grow. It will continue to advance and provide new and exciting things. Living is not in the actual description um, put out by the publishers of Bruges. And therefore, I think the impact that an expansion has on Bruges it's something that I personally look at differently. When I said Marvel Champions the card game was, I think maybe retroactively, became the best game of the year I put it out, It was that was based both, and I talked about this in my original run-through, both on what was in the box and the promise for how it would grow based on what they gave us. Uh, it is something to evaluate differently. In the same way that I think it's fair to evaluate movies differently than TV shows, that you have different expectations of the form. And so you rate them differently. Movies are... You know, once and done, self-contained, 90 minutes, 120-minute experience. TV shows, um, you'll have multiple epic uh, storylines that stretch for you know season after season. And you look at them differently. You rate them differently. Just go to IMDb. These things are rated on completely different metrics. And when it comes right down to it, that's the way it is for me and Marvel Champions. Um, Marvel Champions so much of why I rated that game so high in the first place is because of my excitement and enthusiasm for the core ideas that were expressed in the core box and that I had no reason to expect wouldn't continue to um, evolve and advance and push those ideas. And now that those ideas are being put to the side... I mean, another way to look at it is Marvel Champions was always a 4 out of 5, right? Because that's where I put it now. I put it as 4 out of 5. That's still really good. But I had bumped it up to 5 out of 5 solely because of the living card game promise. It has now failed to live up to what it offered. And therefore, I am now I am literally now rating it based on the game without that promise. So, that's the way I tend to look at it. Uh, if that makes sense. If not... Questions at questions, questionsorado.com, and we'll talk about some more. All right. In my estimation, is Hollertau worth getting 
if um, one already owns and loves Agricola. Is there room on a single calyx shelf for both and what? A shelf for both. Well, a single calyx shelf, that's tight. And uh, these are big boxes, so I totally understand the concern. Um, I do think... I mean, I... Uh, granted, I have three holler or calyx shelves, and these are all tight too. And I think that they are both worth owning. I plan on trying to make room to keep them both, because essentially, yes, they're both about farming. In uh, well, of uh, uh, Agricola is kind of middle age. Uh, tenement farming and holler tow is is kind of more the early stages of industrialized um, farming, um, but they, uh, they 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 have the same theme, but the gameplay is so different. Um, you know the the worker placement in Agricola is the least. Um, impactful thing of it. It's such a vanilla worker placement game. What makes Van Agricola so special? I mean, uh, 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 to, to us, I should say, is that you start out with that gigantic hand of cards. You make a strategy for the entire game, and it's all about trying to see that strategy through. Get those cards so that your farm can evolve in a way you've planned right from the get-go. And of course, throughout the game, you will run into all kinds of impediments that make that difficult to accomplish. It's very satisfying and fun to play. Um, it's interesting. Hollertau, it's also about farming. It's also a worker placement game. And there's also a ton of cards you have to play. The Hollertau is so fundamentally different in the way it goes about things. The worker placement is radically different because of uh, you know increasing costs. So it's, it's a much more fun and interesting, engaging element. And um, the cards are not just, oh, look, I've got my... 14 cards, probably six of which I will play, six or seven of which I'll play over the course of the game. Hollertau drowns you in cards. They're all little micro mini objectives as opposed to Agricola's, you know, big tent pole objectives that you set for yourself. And it's so different and it's so fun and it's so compelling. Um that I mean, yes, they're both worker placement games and yes, they're both um, you know, you know, um 15th to 18th century farming simulations, but you know, saying that, well, okay, because I like one, I can't like the other, is saying, well, because I like Star Wars, I can't like Star Trek. Because they're both science fiction um, you know, shows that have to do with character development and um, you know, galactic level conflict and stuff like that. I mean, yeah, they both have a lot of the same bones, but they are very different beasts. And um, it, there's no harm in loving and enjoying both. Now, your real question is, you have limited shelf space. And I will say that if I could not find room for both, I would probably stick with Agricola mostly for two reasons. One is nostalgia. And Agricola was one of the first big hits for me and Jen when we started gaming, oh, gosh, I don't know what, uh, over a decade ago now, I guess. And it was one of the things that really kind of pulled us in. And so we have a deep abiding love for it. But two, because there's so much more content. If we were comparing only the base box of Agricola, with no Farmers of the Moor, no expansion decks, no nothing, the base box of Agricola versus the base box of Hollertal, that would be tough. I really enjoy both a lot. And... Oh, man. I... Oh, wow. I would need to play Holler Time more. I've played hundreds of hours of Agricola, so I feel like Agricola has an unfair... Uh, but I would say Holler Tau is so good. I mean, it was my game of the year for uh, 2020, if I recall correctly. Or did... Um, 
Did Loop push its way up? I'm not quite sure. But anyway, it was one of my best games of the year for 2020. And just a base box versus Agricola. It, it has the potential to supplant it. But again, I don't want to. They, 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 they tread the same ground, but in such radically different ways. If you love one, I don't see how you couldn't possibly love the other. Although I'm sure there are people who think one is great and one is terrible. <clears throat> don't rely on me, baby. Uh, go out to Board Game Geek. The best um, use for Board Game Geek, by far, in trying to evaluate games, is not to find links to my videos or anybody else, but to go to. There's a section where you can see hundreds of little paragraph-long, um, you know, summaries, little mini reviews from people. Go dig through those. Look at the highest ranking ones. Look at the lowest ranking ones. Um, I think that's the best way to get a sense for all the strengths and weaknesses of a game. I guess that's where I'd go. But for me, yes, I'm going to find room. And honestly, if I were in your state and I had room for only... If I had one Calyx, I'd still probably try to find room for both because I think they're great. But, I mean, heck, if I only had one room for Calyx, a sizable portion of that would be related to Uwe Rosenberg. I would still keep Lo Yang. I would still keep Mercator. I would still keep Glass Road. I would still keep Feast for Odins with the Norwegian expansion. It would be gone without the Norwegian expansion. Um, yeah, Hollertau is fantastic. Uh, and I, I think it goes toe-to-toe. So... Uh, hey, similarly, what makes the loop better than Viscounts of the West Kingdom with the co-op module that came in, what was it, the, the Rune Box, I think, or something like that? Now, you haven't played the former, but based on my run-through, it seems like the loop is a more streamlined uh, co-op Viscounts, but with less depth and strategy. You're surprised how highly you praise the loop when they both seem, again, having not played the loop, to be Rondell mashed with Deck Builder against Pandemic. Uh, is it really that much better? Why? Yes. It is significantly better. The loop is shockingly good. Now, of course, this is all my own personal subjective opinion. This has to do with what Jen and I respond to most. Biggest issue with Viscounts of the West Kingdom's co-op module? Two issues, in fact. And I talked about both of these, I'm pretty sure, when I did a video for it. Eins, uno, one, is that it's long. It's way long, and that's true for all the co-op versions of Viscounts of the West Kingdom and Paladins of the West Kingdom and Architects of the West Kingdom. They're really well done and implemented co-op modules that um, don't really feel like sacrifices. But uh, you know, I tend, you know, gl putting Gloomhaven aside, Jen and I tend to prefer our co-ops to be, um, you know, on the m under. 90 minutes rather than over 90 minutes. One of the big reasons is. Um, if we lose in a co-op game, and that game took two hours, that's really demoralizing. If we lose in a co-op game, and it took 45 to 60 minutes, that's totally fine. And it's it's not quite... I mean, you know, we, we have no problem going back and trying again. And yeah, so one, Viscounts of the West Kingdom's co-op module is way longer than we would like. And then two, it was less than ideal for two players. It works okay, but um, there's a lot missing. that, uh, And I, I'm pretty sure I talked about this, too. It works. We definitely enjoyed it. I believe my wife said she'd rather play Viscounts of the West Kingdom co-op than competitive, if I recall correctly. But there are certain things that um, you know I, I find missing. There's, there's not as much... Um, wait, 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 wait. What am I thinking? I need to think more about Viscounts of the West Kingdom. Viscounts of the West Kingdom. Wait, oh, no, no, you know what? You know what? You know what? You know what, Nick? I'm sorry, I haven't done this for a while. I'm now conflating Viscount's um, 
competitive versus cooperative. I'm applying some of my competitive complaints to the co-op, and the co-op largely took care of those. So never mind. I take that back. I t uh, there is no number two. The biggest, um, the biggest thing that Loop has over Viscount's co-op is length. Loops is fast, it's tight, it's exciting. It doesn't um, you know, go on and on and on. And win or lose, we have a great time. Um, win, we feel like it was worth two plus hours in Viscounts. Lose, not so much. Um, the other thing, though, is... Um, yes, Loop is more streamlined, but I would not say at all that it has less depth or strategy. It has less complexity. Which again, is about streamline. Loop is very deep. And, your, and Jen and I would tend to find our turns were longer in Loop because even though we only have a small handful of cards, between the two of us, there's so much surprising depth to the decision-making of how we're going to play cards, how we're going to leverage our powers, where we are going to try to end our turn to set ourselves up for future, how we are going to interact with each other to try to finish what each other started, um, you know, the amount of variability Ability, uh, you know, there. The, every time you set up the game, it's going to be a different, very, very different um, world to solve. Whereas every time you sit down and play Viscounts, it's going to be okay. We're sitting down to solve the same puzzle. It's going to be cool. It's going to be great. I think the loop is miles better. The what Viscounts has over loop or as a co-op module is if you're looking for something longer and you're looking for something more complex not deeper, but more complex, then Viscount's co-op is the way to go. But that's why Loop is so head and shoulders above uh, Viscount's trust. And that's not to say, I mean, like I said, Jen would prefer to play Viscount's co-op than competitive. Alrighty. Moving along to Victory! BHG. Someday, Vic, you'll have to tell us, what does the BHG stand for? But in the meantime, what are my thoughts on digital versions or apps, not tabletop simulator mods, but official digitized versions of board games? Are they considered board games or video games? Wingspan has an Apple App Store version coming soon. Just saw Z Garcia of the Dice Tower do his playthrough of the Forbidden Island app. So, would like to hear my thoughts? Ah, I, I think it's great. Um, um, you know, anything that gets more people interested in modern designer board games? Yeah, please. Um, Jen and I are not really that interested in playing them. We've messed around with a few. The biggest one would be the uh, the really wonderfully executed app for San Juan. We played that one a lot. And we like San Juan quite a bit as well. I think we've played um, the digital San Juan more than physical San Juan. And we played physical San Juan quite a bit. Because uh, it's one we've had for a long time. You know, ever since I took on Rado Runs Through, I don't get to replay games as much. Back in the day, we play, replayed games a lot. We played a lot of San Juan. But the digital app, well, it's interesting. It came at a very interesting time. It was right, it was right around the start of Rado Runs Through when, right around that time, Jen and I were in the process of moving from um, England to Malta. And we were separated for several months because I was the you know the forward offensive. I got out there first. I you know we, we found a place to live and I stayed there and and I think I was alone uh, in Malta for two or three months while Jen was still cleaning up our affairs in England and all of that. And so she eventually joined later on. And um, during that time. We were actually playing a lot more digital games than normal. We were playing board game arena. We were playing um, oh what's the the French one that I can't remember the name of, Le, Le, Le 
they, they tweeted, oh, I, I forget the name of it. So, you know, this was years before Tabletop Simulator or Tabletopia would come along. So we were playing games like that in the evenings. Um, and, uh, and yeah, and we really got into... I mean, I think at the time, probably San Juan's app was one of the premier ones available. And so we played that a lot. And even when I flew back, to England, and we got in the car, and uh, Jen and I and uh, Dobby and Tula all drove from England to Malta in our tiny little two-seater Mazda Miata. We were playing, um, you know, we were playing San Juan in the evenings because it just worked so well. But once we settled down and we could get back to playing real physical games together, that just completely stopped because we would always, always, always rather sit at the table. And so I think it's great that these things exist, um, and I, you know, because they they are only a net positive for the industry. Because I think, I mean, not everybody will agree, but I think most human beings introduced to pandemic through the app, which is a really well-done app as well. I mean, there's so many of them, or Grickle, or whatever. Introduced that way, and then eventually discovering that, oh, I could play it in real life, too. When they try it, they might be inclined to think, oh, it's going to be so much better to play it with the app, but no, it's always, always better in person. I know... It doesn't do the heavy lifting. It doesn't do the logistics and the handling and all that. But uh, there's just no replacing sitting down in the physical presence of somebody at a table looking each other in the eye instead of looking at each other's screens. And so I, I think it's great. Hey, keep them coming. But not really for me and Jen. Or although for a brief time they were because of extenuating circumstances. All right. Hey, Jack. Okay. Um, Jack says, I've mentioned uh, I rank games solely based on how much I enjoy playing with Jen, but Marvel Champions and Space Hulk Death Angel are highly rated, and yet I admit they are primary solo. What gives, says Jack. Are they such good experiences you feel you must rank them highly despite Jen's dislike or disinterest for them? Yeah, they're just that good. Uh, those are two definite rule breakers. Um, they join, there are a total, I believe, of three rule breakers on my gigantic shelf of my collection of 400-plus games. And they are Dixit, which requires three players. And therefore, it's completely pointless. It's the only three-player minimum game we own. But we own it because Jen loves it so much. She has such wonderful, fond memories of playing it while we were on the road with her parents. And um, you know, Plus, it's a really great get-to-know-you uh, if people ever do visit and we want to play a game with them. And then the other two are Marvel Champions and Space Hulk Death Angel because I both love them. I mean, I love them as multiplayer games much more. I would rather play them as multiplayer games. But I keep them as solo games because they're so abso-positively bonkers amazing. Uh, in spite of what I said earlier about uh, Marvel Champions, I mean, I, I think Marvel Champions, a big part of it, and I didn't mention this before, um, the why I love it so much is because of my deep, abiding, nostalgic love for Marvel comic books, which I've been reading since I was a little kid. I always preferred Marvel to DC. I always preferred Spider-Man to Batman. Um, and, uh, yeah, so that's a big part uh, because, hey, when, when a new thing comes in, even if I'm going to be a little disappointed because it's not living up to the promise, which we talked about in an earlier question, I know I'm still just going to get a warm, bathing glow of uh, nostalgia and fun factor, and they're, and they're well-designed. Um, Space Hulk Death Angel, I have no deep abiding love of the uh, Warhammer 4K universe. Don't get me wrong. Um, but... 
I do, uh, you know, it was another early game that we got. And it was really the first game that I played any significant amount of time solo because Jen played it, said, yeah, I'm not playing this anymore because it's too gross and scary and it reminds her of James Cameron's Aliens too much and it gives her nightmares. Just thinking about that movie gives her nightmares. Um, or, you know, you know, makes her sleep uneasily. So, I have a bit of nostalgia for it. Honestly, I should get rid of it, but I never will, because one, it's the tiniest of tiny little boxes, plus I've got all the expansion content for it, which is impossible to get now. Um, Interestingly, both games have dropped over the years um, in my overall rankings. Not dropped, but other games have pushed their way past you know, that's certainly true. Space Hulk Death Angel for a while was in my top 20. I think now it's in my top 50. And it's less about me liking it less and more about other games that I do get to play in a non-solo mode kind of push their way ahead in the queue over time. Um, but yes, I have three rules breakers. You've just listed two of them. And you know what? Hey, rules are made to be broken. Okay. Hey, Ryan. Hey, Rado, says Ryan. Hi, Rado. Uh, Ryan says that I often mention other channels... And if I'm not watching my videos, I'm often watching uh, Board Game Geek Gave Night with uh, Lincoln, Dave, Nikki, Aaron, etc. Um, don't forget Deborah. Oh, Deborah. Uh, do I work with these guys at all? If not, uh, do I have any contact whatsoever? No, I have never worked with them. I've I've met Lincoln and Nikki several times at uh, conventions, and I've chatted with them some. I think they're they're charming, wonderful people. I would love. To do game night, I, I you know if I if uh, you know if I ever get down to the Los Angeles area, I if you know for whatever reason, and I have no reason to go to the Los Angeles area, unfortunately. But if I ever were to, you better believe I would try to schedule that trip around the possibility of doing a few episodes of game night, especially if Deborah could be there. Because oh my gosh, I am the biggest Deborah Ann Wall fan. I mean, I loved her in Daredevil, and um, although I have to admit, I. I, I just couldn't bring myself to watch Punisher. Um, because, man, wrong place at the wrong time. Some, I mean, if I ever do watch it, it'll be for her. I loved her in True Blood, and I love her on Game Night. I mean, I just watched uh, their latest one was for that um, micro-macro mystery-solving game, and oh, it was just so fun. They just look like so much fun to play with. I would love to appear on the show. If I lived in Los Angeles, if I lived in, you know, in Southern California, I would love to be a regular on the show. Because uh, I, I think it's really great. Alrighty, continuing. Is there a possibility... Oh, Alright, well, the, um, I might appear at their table for video. At this point, no. Because I'm the cheapest person you're ever going to meet. Jen and I live very frugally, and I just have no reason to go down to Los Angeles. I mean, I cannot justify a trip all the way down there just to appear on the show, as much as I would love to. Man, if I were to do that, though, I would uh, you know, do some shows with Shay and Ruel. And, I mean, there are so many people in the greater um, you know, Los Angeles area that I would love to do crossovers with. I'd love to hang out with Becca Scott and, um, and Paula Deming. And, 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 you know, and, and, I mean, because I, I, I enjoy so many of these folks. But anyway, um, no, I'm not going to be making it down there. You're right. I mean, Rodney Smith did appear in a couple. I don't know what was going on. If I would guess, I would suspect because Rodney Smith, for a while, was actually an employee or at least a contractor for Board Game Geek. I suspect they probably flew him down there so that, hey, our new um, you know uh, resident video guy, he should appear on our number one show. Um, if, you know, just... Putting it out there in the ether, if Boarding Geek wanted to fly me down to make guest appearances, you better believe I would be more than happy to sleep 
on Lincoln and Nikki's couch to minimize costs and and just do more videos. But no, uh, I, th th there's been no discussion along those lines. Alrighty. So as far as I know, nothing like that is going to be happening. Alrighty. Uh, but yeah, I, I would love to do that. That would be so fantastic. Okay. <clears throat> All right. Hello, Matt. On a previous podcast, Matt points out that I asked whether the audience prefers an extra talk show instead, I mean, you know, sacrifice one board game run through a month so that I do some kind of talk show. And Matt wants to say, yes, please. And Matt, you were not alone. I did put that question out there and I got a lot of feedback that, yes, but, uh, that, would, that would be cool. In fact, I got no feedback saying no. So, um, you know, there was an overwhelming, yes, Rado, we would uh, happily sacrifice. And, and nobody said, no, keep the gameplay run throughs coming. Anyway, let's continue with Matt. While Matt started following the channel many years ago for the run-throughs, uh, now uh, you, uh, you, you're mostly here for the podcast, the roundups, the rambles, the top tens. I guess it's a result of having a very broad board game collection now. A monthly roundup or a top ten is more interesting to Matt to discover new games of interest, as would be a talk show. Ever since the question arose whether I should re... Oh, let's see. Oh, it looks like he's going to the next thing. So yes, anyway, Matt, you are right. It seemed to be that was the response. Or at least, like I said, there was no counter-response. It's not like I was deluged with hundreds of requests. But, um, you know, the people who did actually seem to care one way or the other definitely sided with you. And so that is something I am working on doing right now. I've got a co-host lined up. Um, <clears throat> I'm hoping to maybe do it weekly. And, uh, and it's kind of something akin to what... Tom Vassell and I were doing last year with the, uh, what was it called? Corner to Corner. But uh, maybe without, without you know, changing the subject matter, but really kind of focusing on the stuff you want to hear about. <clears throat> Avenue for more games, more new games, more game discussion, um, you know, and I think it'll be great. And right now, I, I'll admit, I'm trying to have my cake and eat it too. I'm trying to find sponsors for the show um, because I don't want to stop doing run-throughs. And um, so, if I can find uh, you know some sponsors who will you know for hey you know th th this week's um, show is brought to you by this particular game that's on Kickstarter or this particular online board game retailer um, because here's the thing the co-host I have in mind. I'm not going to make them come on the show for free. I want to pay them for their time. But did I mention earlier I'm the cheapest person in the universe? So I am looking for... I've, I've, I've started putting out feelers for sponsors right now. And once we can get... And I, and I should hope I should be able to do that. Uh, you know, be able to find a few folks who would like, you know, their games to get a little bit of notice at, you know, in front of thousands of watchers. So once I get that straightened out, I, I think I've got the format. I've got the co-host. I'm very excited. One of the my favorite people I've ever interacted with um, in board game media. So expect more coming soon. Okay. Then you continue. Ever since the question arose about whether I should read your mails verbatim versus the Rado way, where I'm changing tenses and you know reading it all from a first-person perspective from my perspective, Matt has wondered, can't you do a poll on Patreon? Uh, it'd probably be to um, you know Matt's disadvantage for subjects like Rodaway versus Verbatim or Talk Show versus Run Through, but it would give backers some extra stay on the show. Also, you might end up implementing changes based on feedback from random YouTube trolls in the comment section. Uh, that is certainly true. Um, I when I do polls, I really do want them to be based on the target audience, though. And uh, you know, I mean, there's a lot of people, maybe even the majority of people, who actually support me on Patreon, who 
don't listen to or watch the podcast at all. You know, period. And um, so to put the final decision in, in, in their hands might skew away from what is best for the show. So that's why I put the question more to actual people who are actually invested. Who are... What are we now? We're at a half an hour in. If you are a half an hour into this show, that means I honestly... I mean, as much as I care about what the people who actually throw me a couple of bucks a month do, or in some cases more, I mean, I very much care, but those people... Uh, you know, those Patreon backers have so much say over the overall um, development and direction of my show because I do polls with them about, you know, I mean, I've done this several times about, you know, where should, um, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, ah, sorry, different features of the show, different types of shows, where should they appear? That kind of stuff um, I very much care about because the Patreons are the ones who are actually making the show happen. How I should format the particulars of my podcast rather than the existence of the podcast, I'd rather put that question to actual, you know, diehard podcast listeners. So that's why I put the question more broadly to you folks. That's why I ask, hey, you've got questions at Raw.com. You don't have to send questions. You can just send opinions as well. You can send in your votes. Uh, so that's kind of how I break that down. Another topic from Matt, uh, who wonders about. Uh, for such a poll, if the YouTube version of the podcast... All right, okay, so here, here's a question. Am I sure that everyone likes having their questions emails displayed? Because I've just started doing this a few months ago. A lot of us are not native English speakers, and the Rada way of reading emails used to mask that someone... You're right, I mean, I mean, just even your email. I should... I mean, I would make my life so much easier if I just read things verbatim, but I don't. I am kind of, as I read them, transcribing them to make them first person, and a lot of times I'm, I'm skipping stuff or I'm summarizing stuff, because I'm trying to keep this going relatively quickly. Um, let's see. Anyway, Matt personally is hesitant to send questions in now, because someone might have seen you misspell the world monthly. Here's the thing. I mean, I, it's a totally valid thing, and it is something I was concerned about uh, when I started doing this, but what um, I, I would think, Matt, that the solution for this is the fact that Nobody knows who you are, buddy. You're totally anonymous. There are probably hundreds of people named Matt who watch the Rotto Runs Through show. And I mean, there are at the very least dozens of people who listen to the podcast. I mean, what? My podcast gets about um, between the video and the audio, I get about, you know, five to six thousand uh, people uh, per episode. Um, uh, you know, on average. I'm not really sure if that's true, because back when I used to host the podcast myself through archive.org, archive.org reported that I was getting, um, you know, closer to 10,000 an episode. But ever since I switched over to Anchor, um, it's, you know, reporting more like, you know, the, the audio, uh, I think they kind of get up to, you know, over time, over the course of a year, they get up to like 4,000, which, I don't know, I guess I'm just pre... I'm inclined to assume that Anchor... Which, I mean, I, I just kludged together a weird thing using archive.org. And archive.org is probably giving me false reads, and Anchor's probably giving me real reads, which is why. I mean, interestingly, you know, having five or 6,000 viewers slash listeners for a podcast puts me in like the top 10 most successful podcasts in the entire world. So it's not like I'm not, you know, doing pretty well here. Sorry, I've gotten completely off track. Anyway, though, sorry, sorry, sorry. Um, when I made this switch over to trying to give folks on YouTube something interesting to look at, um, the number one thing I wanted to do was make sure you, you do not see 
email addresses, or any kind of identifiers other than just the name. Now, maybe Victory BHG is... Because I, I, I've never even done a search for that. And now that I've said this, a bunch of people are going to... Um, but, you know, that's the, that, that's the important thing. Um, you know, most of these emails, they end with, you know, from Stephanie or from Stephen or whatever. And I'm just, just taking that. I'm taking out last names. I'm taking out email addresses. So it's totally anonymous. Do not worry, Matt. Um, if, if uh, you know, and to anybody... Just because they're appearing on screen, it does not trace back to you. But I think it does make for a more entertaining and engaging... Plus, I mean, honestly, uh, it, it, to, on a certain level, it's more true as well. Yes, goofs or typos or whatever will come through, but they'll never come back to haunt you because nobody knows who you are. But the important thing is, like I said, when I read these, I kind of do on-the-fly um, summaries and snippets. And the whole of the text is there. Um, you know, So you have a better shot at people seeing everything you wanted to say. So I, I do think it's a net positive. Um, but I'm certainly open if more people feel this way. Uh, it's just... I, it just seems like it's great. But yeah, I, I'm sorry if it makes you uncomfortable, Matt. But all I can say is, don't worry. Um, well, first of all, your English is fine. Your prose is fine. We are all human. We all make typos. Look at me. I'm the king of goofs. And yet I keep putting myself out there and just saying, yeah, you know what? We're all human. We all make mistakes. So don't sweat it, uh, Matt. It's, it's great. And this was a great email. All righty. Next up, we've got Scott, who has two questions. Scott wonders, um, in my opinion, should content creators use their platform to express personal opinions regarding social matters? Um, should? No. Could? Yes. Um, this seems like... I, I feel like I'm coming up with this refrain. It's going to come up later at some point in the future game or personal of this very episode. Uh, a lot of times people ask, should people be doing this? Or should games be this? Or should the industry do that? And I'm always like, well, should? No. Could? Yes. Um, what's the meme? You know, um, what's hot? What's not? I, I forget. There's some meme. I'm so old. I don't know. Um, but, uh, but what I mean is, if people want to, yeah, by all means, use your platform. Obviously, I'm using my platform to put forward ideas that I think are very important. I'm not shoving it down anybody's throat. I'm just wearing t-shirts, and I'm just raising funds. I'm so proud of the fact, I looked the other day, I have raised literally over $2,000 now. Um, somewhere, I forget exactly, it was between two and 3000 bucks for all the various um, charitable... Um, things that I'm raising for, and uh, but not by you know every you know by doing big obnoxious fundraising drives or guilting people into it. I just put them up there, and you know what? Probably one out of every hundred people who watch a video say, "Oh yeah, I'll throw a buck in," and slowly but surely they climb, and that's just so awesome that Rado Runs Through is literally making. Um, you know, yeah, I've always made a difference because I help people. Um, you'll find joy, and I and I love that. It makes me so. It's what I love most about being a video game designer too. But now that I am literally improving the lives of people in demonstrable material ways, and it just takes me a couple of clicks. I am the king of lazy activism, of laid back advocacy. Because hey, I'll just wear a shirt because I'm just trying to normalize the message. If you like me, if you respect me, if you enjoy my show, maybe give a second thought. If you look at one of my shirts and disagree. You know, maybe you could just look a little bit deeper at the subject, or reach out to me, and I'll talk to you about it. Um, so there's that, and then oh, and by the way, hey, um, the, you know, there's whatever we are at now. Eight hundred bucks is going to go towards a charity that ensures that um, young 
um, you know, economically disadvantaged girls get to training to become computer programmers. And that's amazing that I've done that by clicking a few buttons. Oh, really? It's not me. It's you folks who have done it. And so, anyway, to your question, should content creators do it? No. Could they do it? Yes. But it's up to them, and I do not begrudge anybody for not doing it. Oh, man, let me tell you, I definitely don't begrudge anybody for doing it because if there's one downside, as happy as I am is the results. And I am. I mean, so many people have expressed... I mean, I mean, I get a lot of negative feedback, but I get much more positive feedback about how they appreciate that they feel supported by me, that um, you know, I am giving voice to um, you know, their concerns, you know, of, you know, folks who are addressed by you know some of the uh, you know the issues like missing and murdered Indigenous Native American women and stuff like that. So I, I, it always just warms my heart to know that I am making people just lifting their spirits a little bit, knowing that they have an ally in me. So that's really great. And like I said, those responses so outnumber the, ah, Rado's an SJW cuck. Get him out of here! Get thee gone! But on the flip side, oh my gosh, my growth has flatlined. Ever since I started doing this, um, I am now at my lowest monthly subscriber, um, new subscriber rate in almost since I started, quite frankly. I'm getting maybe 60 new subscribers a month. A year ago, I was getting 800 to 1,000 new subscribers a month. Um, you know, It took me almost a decade to get to 100,000 subscribers. I figured it out the other day. It's going to take me almost a century to get to 200,000 subscribers. And really, nothing has changed except for what I'm wearing. And so many people are just tuning out and... Um, you know what? It's a sacrifice I'm willing to make because uh, you know I'm, I'm still doing fine. Don't you know? World's smallest violin playing for me. I'm still one of the most popular board game YouTube channels there is. But well, I mean, I you know, it's easy to track people's stats and growth. And and to be fair, right now YouTube stats, you know, channels on the whole are all you know kind of going through um, you know kind of historic dips. I'm not quite sure what that's all about. But nobody's you know literally dropped off. You know, gone from 800 to 80. Nobody's followed. I mean, I've looked at a lot of channels. So, do know that if you are going to become an advocate for social issues like I have, it will massively negatively affect your show's ability to find an audience. It just will. And honestly, that is so depressing. It, it really, really is. But it just means to me, it it's all the more reason for me to continue on and soldier on to try to provide a uh, you know to, to use my platform for good. Um, you know, ugh, but it's it, it, it's it is stunning to me. Um, anyway, though, continuing on, Scott's second question. Oh yeah, so no, uh, I, I if other channels want to do it, great. But do know, doing it, you are going to hurt yourself to help other people. There's no two ways about that. Question number two. If a content creator does use their platform to express personal opinions regarding social matters, like, say, me, um, is it then valid for a publisher to ask that content creator to separate their personal opinions from the uh, content creation before the publisher will send them review copies? Valid? I don't know. Reasonable? Sure. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Believe me. Make no mistake. Um, there are... There have... There have been publishers who have asked, please don't wear that shirt when you cover my game. Or, um, you know, publishers who used to send me stuff and they don't send me stuff anymore. That's fine. 
It's, you know, they're sending me a review copy of a game for free. And if they don't want their um, brand associated, that's a perfectly reasonable perspective. Um, you know, it's not like they can make me do anything. I mean, uh, is it valid for people who are turned off by the fact that I wear Black Lives Matter t-shirts and missing and murdering indigenous women shirts and um, team vaccination shirts and, uh, you know, and then, you know, uh, Green New Deal shirts. There, you know, a sizable portion of my potential audience is saying, no, thank you, unsubscribe. It's totally valid. Um, you know, there are plenty of channels that I unsubscribe to. Uh, there was a channel I used to love that uh, covered Star Trek stuff. And then one day in a QA, and a uh, they said very, well, yeah, of course Joe Biden is a rapist. Everybody knows that. And I'm like, oh, man, I love your content. But wow, you just really soured me on your channel. I think I'm going to have to unsubscribe. And, you know, it, and was that fair to him? Uh, not necessarily. But... Uh, it really tainted my enjoyment. I totally understand. And so I, 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 I could totally understand. I mean, I can put myself in the perspective of somebody who, um, who firmly believes incorrectly that Black Lives Matter is a Marxist organization that is um, for the dissolution of the nuclear family and all this, all this propaganda that's all lies and untruth. But anyway, I totally understand that if somebody firmly believes that, that they can no longer look at my run-through, even though... All it is, is me in a tiny little postcard in the top left corner, wearing a tiny little t-shirt logo. Just the existence of it is so is such an anathema to them that they say unsubscribe. And you know what? Um, I'm sorry to see that. I'm sorry to see you go. But hey, it's, yeah, it's your time. Do what makes you happy. Just don't do it at the expense of other people. That's my number one thing. Um, you know, do unto others as you'd have them done unto you, etc., etc., uh, anyway, so, so, so I'm sorry. I'm really all over the place. Maybe this should have been impersonal, now I think about it. But anyway, this is kind of politically charged. Yes, I think it is perfectly reasonable for publishers to say, yeah, we're really not um, comfortable being um, either associated with the message you're doing or the method by which you express that message. Which, Scott, I kind of know what you're talking about. And um, it wasn't the message. It was the means behind the message that was at issue. But either way, it's totally valid. Um, and let's just assume everybody's a good person and everybody's just trying to do the best they can. All righty. Because uh, that, that, that is the best I can do. I'll talk about this later when we get to the personal stuff. Hanlon's razor is the greatest razor of all the razors. Uh, speaking of razors, you will notice I am completely clean-shaved. When we get halfway through and Jen shows up, I will be very um, fuzzy because I filmed her stuff a couple days ago. Anyway, again, sorry if you're on the podcast. I gotta remember, this is still, first and foremost, a podcast, even though now more people watch it than listen to it. But still, anyway. From Cameron. Cameron is a big fan of the YouTube channel and podcast. I'm proud to say they've been supporting since 2016. Thank you very much, Cameron. Um, I, hopefully I don't let you down. I've uh, been tempted many times and finally has a question. So, long-time listener, first-time caller from Cameron. Uh, Cameron loved my coverage of Anno 1800. Is pleased to see that it made my final top 10 games of 2021. Yeah, such a great game. In the Anno 1800 final thoughts, I pondered... Uh, if Anna was my favorite Martin Wallace game. Although I didn't um, follow that up in um, the 2021 Top 10 video, I, I got close when mentioning the best Martin Wallace game in the recent Top 10 Kickstarters when Brass was talked about. Okay, so yes, I've, I've kind of danced around it. So, to Martin's or Cameron's question, what 
is my favorite Martin Wallace game. And if it's not Anno 1800, where does Anno place? Um, the, the real... and I, I'm, I'm surprised. I, I don't know why I was coy. Really, there are three Martin Wallace games that are the top three. And those are Brass, which occasionally I very mistakenly refer to as... Um, Steam. I have never played Steam. I've never played Age of Steam. But sometimes whenever I, when I, I say Steam, if you ever hear me say Steam and talk about Martin Wallace, I mean Brass. And per, of the two, Brass, I prefer Lancashire to Birmingham, but Birmingham is great too. So, um, actually, I'm going to say four. My four favorite Martin Wallace games are Brass, Railways of the World, um, London, and Anno 1800. And... I think of all of those games, putting aside my personal preference, Brass is probably the best game based on objective evaluation of the quality of the design, the strength, the classic nature of it. Brass is probably the best game, but it's not my favorite. I mean, Brass, it's bigger, it's longer. Even though it works so much better now as a two-player game, it was it's it is a game that thrives with more because of the interdependency between players. So it loses some of what makes it truly special and unique when you go down to two players, which is why originally it wasn't a two-player game. London is engine-building perfection, one of my favorite games of all time. But I do recognize that a big part of my love for London is nostalgia, both because Jen and I love London, the city. It's Jen's favorite city in the world. It's my second favorite city in the world. Um, and also, it was an early game in our board gaming. Um, you know, uh, evolution. So, you know, it holds a special place in our heart there. It's one of the games we played more than any other Euro. Um, and, uh, Anno 1800, I do think is, I mean, I think Anno, if, or, if, if, if you were to sit down and say, hey, if there's any Martin Wallace game you could play right now, which would you play? It would be Anno 1800. Now, in part, that's because I played it less than the other ones. But I would imagine if... I mean, using my literal hundreds of thousands of hours of board game playing now over the last 10 years. Is that true? Hundreds of thousands of hours? I mean, I have now done run-throughs of almost 1,700 games. So maybe not hundreds of thousands, but definitely tens of thousands of hours of experience playing modern designer board games. And add to that my um, almost two decades of actually developing games as well as a designer. I think I can anticipate that all other things being equal, I would want to play Anno 1800 over all the other games because of the unique combination of features that it has. Uh, you know, a, a big part of it being the positive interplay between players. I mean, again, you know, that and that exists in Steam, and that exists in Railways of the World, but in those games, it can turn negative. Anno is all positive. Anno is such an ode and a hymn to joy and collaboration between human beings. It, 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 is, it is a piece of art making a statement about how we can be our best selves. And most of Martin Wallace's games are not that. Most of Martin Wallace's games are, how can I get ahead at the expense of other people? Yes, I will, um, you know, uh, you know, synergize with them, but it's only towards my own ends. And Anno is something different. And, uh, yeah. So... I mean, those are my four. Anno would be number one. I think London would be number two. Although I haven't updated my rankings yet, so you go to rank.rao.com, you might find it different. And, uh, you know, Brass and and probably Railroads, uh, number three, and Brass, number four. My other problem with Brass is, oh, it's... it's, it's so, I mean, every time we sit down to play it, we're like, I have to learn how to play this game again. It, it, it's so deep. It, it's one that's kind of maybe... 
pushing a little bit on the edge of, yeah, this is too deep for us. Uh, you know, we, we want something a little bit lighter, but they're all brilliant designs. Hopefully that answered the question. Okay. Uh, finally, Cameron, you have an English copy? Oh, of Anno pre-ordered and will make an excellent gift. Yes, I... Such a wonderful game. Such an amazing game. Such an important game. And, I mean, you know, people don't believe me when I say this, but I have actually talked to the developers. This was not just, oh, look, all we're trying to do is recreate a video game and, you know, ape them. They were using this as a platform to talk about important real-world issues. Anno 1800, the board game, is literal art. If you consider art to be a creative expression of, the, uh, of, of an artist's inner thoughts. And it's fantastic. All righty. Tim. Thank you, Cameron, for letting me think about Anno. Makes me so happy just to think about its existence. Alrighty. From Tim. Hi, Rado. This isn't a question, but a recommendation for a neat tool. I don't remember the exact question, says Tim. But sometime um, in episode 73, somebody asked about game recommendations based on another game that they liked. Uh, and Tim has found a website, apparently, called recommend.games to be useful at. You can give it a single game, and it'll give a recommendation based on that, or can even provide a board game geek username, and it'll give recommendations based on how the account has rated other games. That is very interesting. I have not tried this. By default, it won't recommend games you own, or I guess it must um, you know, interface with your board game geek account, or things you've rated, uh, you can, but you can include those if you want. For example, a talk recommendation of, or, you know, or, for, or, you know. So Tim, having used it, says the talk recommendations that this site gave for me are pretty spot on. The link below doesn't filter out the games I own since you I, I didn't rate Pandemic Legacy Season One. There it is. All right, let's follow this link. Let's see what happens. Uh, boop. All righty, and get over here. And here was a thread I was just reading. I was reading the length of play thread on the uh, Terraforming Mars Ares expansion before I started filming. little uh, behind the scenes. Alrighty, so recommend games for Rado. This site says I should totally dig Under Falling Skies. I think that's great. Uh, Paleo. Paleo is really good, but it did have a couple of problems. But totally reasonable. I mean, yeah, these are all... Oh, man, it gives me number seven is Endangered. I so want to play Endangered. Oh, okay, this is stuff I don't have. And, of course, I do have some of these but because I flag them weirdly. Grand Carnival. Yeah, these are good suggestions. Um, I, I don't agree with all of them, but I totally agree with these suggestions. Let's uh, let's see. Yeah, this is literally just the board is recommend r e c o m m e n d dot games. Uh, that will literally be in the show notes for this, folks. If you want to find it, let's see. Let's just we were just talking about Anno eighteen hundred. Let's see. What do you recommend for somebody who like? Oh, yeah, for somebody who likes Anno eighteen hundred, you recommend. All right. Oh, all right. Actually, I don't know how... Oh, and then you give us a lot of information. Okay, oh, you might also like Fam, Bonfire, Progacaput Regni, Cloud Age, Crystal Palace, Cooper Island, Hollertal, the Castles of Tuscany, the Magnificent, Twants and Suyu, Switch and Signal, Monasterium. My goodness, this is an excellent tool. This is doing really fantastically. I have to agree, sir. This, folks, if you're looking for recommendations, this might... I might have to update my FAQ, quite frankly. I think I'm going to have to update my FAQ and put this on here. I mean, I'll look at it a little bit more, but yeah, that's really impressive. Okay, uh, folks, a recommendation from Tim. Recommend.games. Uh, tr- give it a try. Okay, moving on. Hi, Tina. Tina's going to start off by saying, Great job. Really enjoy the content. Appreciate the code of conduct. A bit late. Um, right. Uh, she's responding a bit late because I put this up a few months ago, but... She just hasn't written for a while. So anyway, Tina says, Do I ever go back to games that I have covered as a Kickstarter preview prototype to see how they turned out? 
Uh, would there be value in making videos on that? I do this sometimes. It's generally when a game goes through significant changes. Uh, like uh, uh, Ryan Lockett's Sleeping Gods and Far and Away. They, I mean, the final shipping versions of those games were so changed and evolved so much. Um, this War of Mine did the same thing. I just, uh, last week, finished filming an update for Etherfields, because Etherfields changed a fair bit. So if there's a big change, and if the publisher wants to send me a final... Because, bear in mind, probably 70% of all the games I cover for Kickstarter previews, I never get a final copy of them, because the publishers just move on. Because um, I'm, I'm not buying the games, because, hey, I've already played it. It's not like I, if I bought it, I'd have time to play it anyway. So, um, you know, I probably only get 30% of those final games anyway. There's one other... Th there's a caveat to this. If I think, based on playing the prototype, that wow, this is probably one of the best games of the year, I will seek it out so I can play it again, so I can evaluate it to see if it makes it into the top 10 of the year. So the best of the best of the best of the best of the best I played, if the publisher does not send them to me, I will seek them out myself so I can evaluate them You know, come November, December time. And... um yeah, I think that's about it. And uh, yeah, and, and like I said, if, if the game went through a big change, but... If it doesn't, then... I mean, I, I appreciate when publishers send them. No, no publisher is ever obligated to send me a uh, final version of the game. I never expect them to. And actually, sometimes they'll ask, hey, would you like a final copy? And I'll like, yeah, I really like the game. But you know what? Don't send me a copy because I'll never play it. I just won't. Um, you know, and unless it was like one of the potential best games of the year, I mean, I'll go back and play those because I need to because I've got to do my yearly top tens. But if it was just like, oh, this is a really lovely game. I really enjoyed this game. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm fine having gotten a chance to play it with Jen, enjoyed the prototype, sent the prototype on to another reviewer, and then move on to the next thing. Alrighty. So, uh, would there be value? I mean, I don't know if there'd be much value in making it because, I mean, just between you and me, Tina. Um, you know, it's interesting. I do regret, I don't know why, the very first time I ever picked up a camera and recorded a little bit of stuff, and then I turned the camera around and said, well, let me give you my final thoughts. I know at the time, I could say, let me give you my final thoughts, because when I first started out, I was covering games I'd played dozens of times. Um, I wish I had said something else, though, because... I mean, kudos to Tom Heath, Slicker Drips. He doesn't call... I mean, he copies, or he, he emulates, not copies, because we talked about it, and he said, yeah, I said, please, by all means, I want more people to do my stuff, because I enjoy my stuff, and I'd like seeing more of my stuff, or, you know, the style of which I do things. And um, but he wisely chose his first impressions. And I really should say first impressions. That I give first impressions on games, because, yeah, Jen and I, we played the game a few times. Maybe I played it some solo. And of course, I'm still kind of uh, experiencing it when I do the run-through itself. And so really, I give first impressions of games. But here's the thing. As I mentioned earlier, after having been a professional game developer for almost two decades, and after having spent, if not hundreds of thousands of hours, at least tens of thousands of hours um, playing games... My first impressions generally don't change. I don't... I mean, a game that I do get to go back and play uh, uh, you know, a half a dozen times, yep, I nailed it on the first play. It's just... These... I mean, I'm... Most... It is very rare that a game surprises me after I've read the rule book. quite frankly. I can usually get a pretty good idea of exactly what this game is going to play like. And that's just practice. I think... I, that's nothing special about me. I think if anybody puts in the amount of time that I do studying developing and playing games that this becomes second nature. So, um, 
Uh, you know, it's interesting too. Tom Vassell does this. I forget what it, he has a show that he does at least once a month called Look Back, I think, where he looks back at reviews he did five years ago and five months ago and five days ago, or I forget the exact, but something like that. And um, almost invariably, he says, yep, I still feel the same way as I did. It's very, very rare that it ever changes. Um, and, I, and I think it would be even rarer for me because I tend to think I get it right. Now, that's hubris on my part, but I do think it's backed up by... I mean, I've got the bona fides, uh, in my opinion, anyway. Others might disagree. So, yeah, like I said, I pretty much only go back to revisit if the game... Something about the game has changed or I need to evaluate it for the big ticket item at the end of the year. Alrighty. Um, next, we have uh, Alan Ander. Oh, nope. That's Alex. See? Um, I make typos all the time. I had a typo right there in front of everybody. I, I, don't worry about it. From Alexander. Hi, Rado. Do I see a mechanism... Did, did I see a mechanism on BoardGameGeek for the card patching I talk about? I think it's fairly new. Hadn't noticed it on games like Sprawl Office or Circle Wagons before. Uh, yes, so Alexander just letting me know. There's a new mechanism uh, added to BoardGameGeek. It's called Partially Overlapping Cards. Let's take a look at that. All righty. And um, here it comes. <clears throat> no image available. Yes, it's totally new because it seems like all the mechanisms have like, these cute little uh, cartoons that were taken from, um, you know, Jeff Engelstein's book. So cards are played down on a board map, or parts of the cards overlapping each other. Yep. Okay, that's it. I do not like this term, partially overlapping cards. That is not a particularly evocative. Um, or engaging die. I think patching cards is cooler. But I guess I'm glad it's there. And you're right, it must be brand new. There's only 35 of them in existence. Is that true? Let's take a look. Let's look at all 35 of them. All right, and let's sort them by most popular. Sprawlopolis, Honshu, Circle the Wagons, Orchard 9. Don't know that one. Interesting. Uh, Kadama Tree Spirits, Patch History. Oh, Patch History. Hanging Gardens. I don't know if Hanging... Oh, oh, you know, actually, I want to sort by date. What is the first one? Is Hanging Gardens the first one? All right, let's, and let's go to the bottom. Agro uh, Agropolis, which looks like a sequel to Sprawlopolis, is the newest one coming this year. I'm excited. Do I have that marked? I need to add that to my witch list. All right, let's uh, add that to um, wish list. Love to have... Oh, man, because I love this mechanism. Thank you very much for at least bringing this to my attention. I need to look at this Grove 9, too. I'll look at that. And Oh, my gosh! Look at these. Oh, Overstock. That was a very cool one. Art of Spots. That looks abstract. Cafe is great. Codex Nautilus. Wow, I've got a bunch of things to look at. Look at all these things. I didn't know these existed. All right, but anyway, what is the oldest one? Is it Hanging Gardens? That would be pretty impressive if it is. Of course, not that this is necessary. Uh, something prior, four years prior to Hanging Gardens, something called Flix Mix is the first one. I'll be the judge of that, but we'll have to come back to that later. Um, but anyway, it looks like there's no question here. Just uh, giving me a heads up. Thank you, Alexander. That's good to know. Um, and thank you also for pointing out a couple of games I didn't know were coming. Uh, you know, that's happened so much more these days. I get surprised because, you know, up until last year, I literally manually checked every single entry that was added to the BoardGameGeek database. And I don't do it anymore because it takes too much time. So now I'm surprised by stuff like this. It's kind of nice to be surprised. From Nat. Alrighty. I have often said that I like it when a cooperative game lets me take turns in any order I want. Yeah, Spirit Island being the poster child for that. Uh, although the loop... No, the loop doesn't do it. What was it? Um, just this month. Oh, Etherfields lets you do it. And uh, another game is going on Kickstarter. Soul Raiders. It's so fantastic. Love it. But, continues Nat, I also seem to like Turn Order Deck from Aeon's End. So, 
Do I prefer uh, mechanisms in cooperative games that limit what I can do or ones that give freedom of how when to take actions? Oh, Nat. That's a hard question. That is a tough one. I like both. Why not both? If you, if you, if you made me choose one. If you made me choose one. I mean, because, man, you're right. I do. I love the Aeon's End... Although Aeon's End um, was predated by Tiny Epic Defenders. So I'm going to give it to Tiny Epic Defenders. The variable turn order structure is so good. I love that so much. But you're right. I really do love, you know, the freeform... Oh! Oh, all other things being equal. If you put two co-op games in front of me and one featured the Tiny Epic Defender, Aeon's End, and one featured the Spirit Island structure... And everything else about the games were the same, and both games worked equally well using their chosen structure. I would probably prefer the freeform structure, just because it feels more real. It's just a way to through mechanisms, not through art, not through you know story snippets, but through raw gameplay mechanisms, makes me feel more like I am in the world. Because in the real world. Um, when we're fighting a global pandemic, we don't all have to patiently wait turns while we're, um, you know, waiting for our teammates to do stuff before we get to do stuff. It's it's an it's an artificial structure that creates tension and is a good thing. But if a game can pull it off, I think it's more interesting to give players this this through mechanisms an avenue for creativity that is just wonderful. So I think I do prefer. But I but I but I also love the angst from Tiny Epic Defenders or Aeon's End, knowing that, oh, if I can take two turns in a row, this will be perfect. And if anything other than Jen goes next, even if the bad guy goes before Jen, this is going to be the perfect... Oh, and then Jen goes next. And I love making these plans and then having the plans thwarted by the system and, you know, taking that, um, you know, those, uh, uh, you know, and, and, then, and then having to pivot. I love strategic games. I love when I come up with a plan and then the plan falls apart and I've got to hastily come up with something else. So, I love them both. Why do you ask me such hard questions now? That was mean. Okay. <clears throat> From Jeffrey. Jeffrey, I'm going to get a drink of water first. Hold on a second. I don't know why I didn't pause for that. I should have just paused. Anyway. With my style of shoot from the hip, gut instinct style decision making, and Jen's analytical, thorough, calculating technique, I would say you have summed us up very well. Uh, Jeff? Jeffrey? What are the games that Jen almost always wins due to those differing approaches. And conversely, what games am I nigh unstoppable, despite Jen's best efforts? Um, let's see. And then you point out I could have put this in Jen's. And you're right, I could have. But honestly, both Jen and I have a hard time just recalling games off the top of our head. Uh, but I can at least do a quick search and give you an answer. So I'm going to have to go back to Board Game Geek and go to... Rank.rado, so I just have a tangible list of stuff in front of me. Let's see. Uh, competitive games. Right off the bat, here's a really weird thing. I don't know if it's actually applicable to Jeffrey's observation. I generally crush Jen at Agricola. And I think it is actually a reflection. Because Jen, her hyper-calculation, where, I mean, she will literally sit with her cards before we take our first turn for upwards of 20-25 minutes in Agricola to figure out everything. Okay, this is going to be round 4. This is going to be round 5. This is going to be round 10. This could be round 7 or 8. I'm not quite sure, but I've got it all laid out. Whereas me, I'm like, oh, I think these work really well together. Let's go. Um, it, it, 
Our approaches make me much better suited to pivot. Much better suited to, oh, it was so absolutely essential. I got that card this round, and now that I haven't, the whole thing falls apart. And it makes, um, I mean, I, I love Agricola for it. I mean, I, I've got a plan, but, oh, hey, this wasn't available. I really wanted to get family growth, or, you know what, maybe I will go clay. Maybe I'll just jettison this card. Maybe I'll just dump that. Whereas Jen, she just feels... I mean, and Jen can actually have a really frustrating time playing Agricola, even though it's one of her favorites. Um, because she loves it when she makes this plan and she's able to pull it off. And if she makes the plan and because of, you know, interference, not direct purposeful interference, but because, hey, um, you know, she really needed those sheep and it just turned out I ended up getting the sheep around before her, then, I um, mean, it all falls apart... She just doesn't pivot very well. And I'd say this is true for her life as well, that I am very fly by the seat of my pants, and she's much more about, we've got a plan, we're going to make this plan work. Uh, it's, you know, when it comes to taking vacations, it's, uh, you know, it's just really core to us as people. And Agricola, I generally win. Which I shouldn't, because Agricola is a really deep game that um, or, you know rewards really deep long-term strategic planning, and yet I win because I can pivot more readily than her. Uh, let's see, what else? What else? Uh, Keyflower, I think she does better than me because she, I mean, you know, Keyflower, right from the get-go, you get those winter cards, and you know everything is about playing to those winter cards. I tend to forget about my winter cards, and I tend to say, oh my gosh, this is available right now! Boom! Jump on it! And Jen's like, yeah, I'm a pass on that, because I'm still thinking about my winter cards. I think Jen generally does better at Keyflower than me, as a result. Um, let's see. Roll to the Galaxy, I think I do better, but only because it, it's it's kind of tangential what you're saying. Jen loves building big things and seeing the things all the way through. I generally tend to rush. I, I'm all about blitzing. And I think Roll for the Galaxy, if you can pull off a blitz, it really benefits as opposed to trying to go for a big long-term thing. And often I just starve Jen of the opportunity to get her big stuff. And so what'll often happen in a game like that, we're like, okay, honey pie, we're finishing it next round because my blitz is paying off. And oh, you still need two more rounds, don't you? Okay, tell you what. We'll just assume I won. We'll just assume I won, and I'm not going to blitz so that you can finish out your thing, and then we'll see how well your thing worked. Because she doesn't really care if she wins or loses. She just wants the satisfaction of seeing her plans through to completion. And it's very frustrating for her when I blitz, whereas, you know, I mean, because I'm just, I'm just making it up as I go. I mean, I'm Indiana Jones uh, in that regard. So, I mean, those are a few off the top of my head. I could keep going, but there are other questions, Jeffrey, from you as well. So let's continue. Although, this is not a question. During the last podcast, I was trying to think of a dog-themed game. There doesn't seem to be many. I did mention Dogs, which is a decidedly lighter game. Yeah, very, very light. Maybe too light. Um, or at least for us, anyway. Plus, a big focus on pickup and deliver. But I forgot Snowtails! And Jeffrey would like to shame me publicly for overlooking a fun racing game that includes dogs. And you're right, that's a really good one. Snowtails is very, very cool. Um, we played it, and we liked it. it. We didn't keep it, though. Why not? I don't remember. Did I actually do a video? If I did a video, I said why. Uh, I mean, but the, you know, I, I love the kind of disconnect that I mean, you don't have direct control over the sled. You're kind of trying to nudge the dogs to do what you want to do, and you know, they they, they kind of have a little bit of agency of their own, if I recall correctly. And you're right, that's a really cool one. That's a that's a good call, good call. But now back to Jeffrey's questions. How often do I find myself liking a lot of the games I review, 
but not quite enough to keep them. What innovations do I look for? Does the upcoming Adventures of Robin Hood board game offer something unique? And have I uh, seen this done before? Uh, let's do the last one first. Um, Robin Hood board game. Yes, it looks like it's an entire game based on an advent calendar. Turning a board into an advent calendar? That seems very, very cool. There are things similar to that that have existed before, but I'm very excited. But mostly I'm just excited because Legends of Andor was so great, and Michael Menzel is putting on his designer hat for the first time in years to do something new. So I'm really excited about that. And yeah, I'm, I'm excited in part because of the designer pedigree, because of what he's done in the past, and also because of the innovation. I mean, I'm sure Jen will call it a gimmick, that it's basically an advent calendar turned into a board game, but I'm very excited about that. So, to your question, do I... Uh, I have a problem. I mean, we a lot of board gamers do. If I like a game, that's reason enough to keep it. I want to keep all the games I like. I want to love them and, and care for them and nurture them. I, I hate getting rid of games that I like. Um, but, I mean, I've got these three Calyx shelves, and I'm using them as a hard limit. And, um, yeah. So, yeah, I, I am, I'm constantly shuffling games out. In years past... I mean, I still do get rid of games because I have issues with them. And um, it's, it's hard. There are games that are perfect. That has absolutely no problem at all. There's nothing I don't like. Uh, you know, or, or There's none of the checkboxes that would make me want to get rid of that game. And yet, it's like, oh yeah, this is a good game. It's a totally solid game. Um, but it doesn't fire passion in the way that another game does. And it used to be, oh, I'd want to keep these because I could totally imagine playing, having a great time playing this game at some point in the future. The reality is, that future will never come. Because there's always more games. And I only have so much space. So I am getting to the point, yes, where it's more and more... I mean, let's go back to the website and go to gone.rado.com. And um, let's see. I forget if we can sort by date on that. Last modified. There we go. Last modified. The most recent thing I got rid of... Except it's going to be backwards. I have to do this a second time. The first one I ever got rid of was Bergenland. That's not true either. It's just the first one I made note of back in 2011. Um, right. Etherfields. Uh, I would totally keep Etherfields. I would love... I'd be love to play Etherfields right now. And I'd love to even play it solo. I love it so much. After thinking about it a lot, one, it takes up a lot of shelf space. So that's a blow against it. And two, Jen was just too... I mean, you'll see this. I'm, I'm about to do a run-through. I mean, my run-through's done. I'm just waiting for Paolo to goof check it. Biggest issue with Etherfields was for Jen. She would not want to play it anymore because she got too frustrated with the, uh, the fact that she's an amnesiatic character who has no idea, has no drive, no direction, no purpose. As you might imagine, from the earlier statements to your own questions, Jen needs purpose. She needs drive. She, um, you know, just a sandbox where you just, oh, just go out and explore and experience. Jen, Jen does not respond to that. Jen wants a mission. She wants a goal. She wants to solve it. So if a game doesn't give it to her and it's not one she can create for herself, she kind of just like, oh, I'm, 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 she doesn't go with the flow. So that's why Etherfield is probably gone. But I love it. I think it's great. Um, Solomon, yeah. I mean, but here's the deal. I mean, these ones, I mean, you can watch my run-throughs. And you'll see. I mean, the, and I'm actually right here, although it's kind of cut off because I made the, the window too small. Um, yeah, I mean, the descriptions of why I'm getting rid of these games, I, I said it in the run-through. But let's see, where's a game that there's nothing bad about it, that I had no problems that I've recently gotten rid of, that there is no reason other than there's only so much space? Um, let's see. 
No, I was going to say Alice's Garden. Why did I get rid of Alice's Garden? I remember why I got rid of Alice's Garden. Because it was a gift. I gave it away to somebody. Otherwise, I would have totally kept Alice's Garden. Uh, da, 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 da. So I'm having to go quite a ways down. Okay, yeah, here we go. Here we go. Here we go. Um, Like uh, Chin. Chin from Reiner Kenichi is a great little area control game. We like it quite a bit. I would happily keep it. I just got rid of it because we don't have space. Confusion, a rare game that's a you know competitive in your face. I'd happily keep it. Just had to get rid of space. Uh, Helionox, Sonora, Crossroll, Hong Kong, uh, Destination Neptune, Spell Smashers. Oh no, Spell Smashers. Ah, that's not true. I should out of room trying to call more games. Okay, I was keeping Spell Smashers because I was waiting for the co-op module. Spell Smashers is a great game, but it's a competitive word fantasy game, and I really wanted the co-op game. But no, I guess, yeah. I mean, I would have kept it. It was a good competitive game. There's nothing bad about it. But in the back of my mind, there was that little, oh, it would be so much better co-op. And so, why would I play that if I... I mean, uh, that's a big thing. Why would I play Spell Smashers when I can play um, Paperback? I just wouldn't. A big part of it is game. I mean, more and more games are killing other games for me. Sonora was a very, very cool f- fusion of roll and write and dexterity game. But there are better roll and writes and there are better dexterity games. And while it's cool to have that fusion, and I would love to keep it in my collection, not enough. Something had to go to make room for the other games that are going to show up that are like, you know, top 10 or top 20s of the years. I mean, I just don't have room. So. That's just like a, a brief little example. Um, so, uh, yeah, does it happen? Yes, it, it happens, and it's happening more and more and more. Because there's a fundamental thing. Um, it is very, very rare that we come across a game that's like actively bad. These are all good games. And sometimes, if I can find a reason not to keep it because, oh, we just don't like this one little thing, like Etherfields and Jen not having a sense of purpose, that gives me an excuse to get rid of the game so I can make room for more games, even though I'd love to keep it. That's, I guess that's kind of like a little bit of insight into how the process goes. All right. Hello, Ger- uh, Gerald. You see, I got your name right. I have no longer, I don't believe, I, I think I've gone, you know, 112 days without mixing up Gerald and Gerard, I think. Anyway, uh, two regular posters, and I always got their names mixed up back in the day. And they both, I think, kept uh, you know ribbing me for it. But anyway, Gerald wonders that before I mentioned something, uh, before I've mentioned something along the lines of, I don't buy games, so I can't really judge if a game is worth the price or not. That is true. I mean, I can, but I don't think I have a pot to piss in. Um, I I think my perspective on that is so wildly out of touch with the reality that I don't think I can provide meaning... One, I can't provide meaningful data points that are relevant to most people. And two... Board game prices drop, and I want my videos to be eternal. So I talk about things that won't change. You know, I talk about the you know the qualities of the design. I also generally don't talk about the art very much. I certainly don't say if your art is bad, because I mean other people might think the art is great. Uh, you know, art isn't beauty is not the holder. But anyway, yeah. So back to Gerald. So Gerald wants me. All right. So Gerald has a quiz for me. All right, it's a mind exercise. And I saw this, and I really liked it. I haven't read it yet, but I saw what it was. I'm excited. All right, so Gerald says, I have to keep and get rid of some games, but I can never require and never play what I got rid of. I can never require and never play what I got rid of. So, okay, so you're saying that once it's gone, I can... Oh, I'm sure you meant never reacquire. I'm going to fix that typo there for you, buddy. Is that how you spell acquire? A-Q-U-I-R-E? That doesn't look right. Anyway, though. I can never reacquire and never play again what I got rid of. So what do I keep? 
I love this. This is so much fun. People, send me more of these. I, I, I could happily do an entire podcast of this. I love A-being things. I, it's one of my favorite things to do. I don't know why. Anyway, though, Gloomhaven or Concordia plus Blackout plus The Loop. Wow! Oh, my gosh. Honestly, if you hadn't put the loop in there, it'd be pretty easy. Or if you had put something else, I like the loop a lot. Wow. I can never play Gloomhaven again. Okay, I, I'm going to cheat. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say goodbye to Gloomhaven and keep Concordia Blackout and the loop. And I'll tell you why. We finished Gloomhaven. We played, I don't know, I mean, we, we played all the way through the main storyline. There's still a bunch of side stuff. And there's still all the stuff that, you know, um, Isaac has released over the years. Now, here's the thing. And also, I could say, oh, Frosthaven is coming, and I could do that. But I'm going to assume that when you say I can't reacquire, it also means I can't do offshoots. So I'm going to say, if I'm saying goodbye to Gloomhaven, I'm saying goodbye to all the havens. The Frosthavens, and, the, and the, the Jawsing of the Lioning, and all that. But even still, I have put in hundreds of hours to Gloomhaven. And I think I would take Concordia, Blackout, and Loop. But if I was still 20 hours into Gloomhaven and you put this choice to me, you'd be a monster, and I'd probably go with Gloomhaven. Probably. All right, next up. Hollertau versus Loyang plus Pulsar 2849. You know what, folks? I take it back. This is a terrible, torturous device. I didn't think, I didn't think they would be so hard. Oh, wow. Gerald, you know me, sir. Goodness gracious. Oh, now, although you couched all of this from the value of games, and I'm making this very personal and very subjective, I feel like I'm kind of cheating. I should be talking about just raw value for games. And raw value, but, you know, all right, well, I'll just stick with it. Okay. Here's the deal. Jen loves Gates of Luoyang so much. I don't think she'd ever forgive me. I mean, it's, it's, it's such a personal favorite of hers. So my inclination would be to go Lo Yang and Pulsar over Hollertau. But personally, personally for me, wow, gosh, that's hard. Gosh, that's hard. I think I would go with Hollertau personally, but because of Jen, I would go. Plus, I mean, it is. I mean, Lo Yang and Pulsar are both phenomenal games. That is a better value for money. But I, I just can't stress enough just how great Hollertau is. But yeah, I'd go with Luoyang and Pulsar. So that's two for two where I'm going for the more games. All right, next up, or the final one. Thank heavens. Never do this again. again. Merkaibo or Isle of Sky plus Fuse plus Arian plus Biblios. You even knew to put Arian on instead of one of the other Oniverse games. My favorite Oniverse game. How did you do this? Wow. Oh my gosh. This time, I'm going to go with Maracaibo. I think I am. Um, I love the narrative. I mean, Fuse, Arian, Biblios. Uh, I mean, none of them have the Alexander Fister bringing story into games. Maracaibo is just so good. Maracaibo just works so perfectly. Plus, I'm really excited about the expansion content for it. I mean, I played the expansion content for Isle of Sky. Very good stuff. It's you know, I mean, this is kind of reverse of the earlier thing. I feel like I will, um, you know, I have spent so much time with Fuse. Played Fuse a ton. Played Isle of Sky quite a bit as well. Played Biblios a lot. 
Haven't put as much time into Arion, so it's almost like I'm judging Arion versus Merkaibo. So I, I feel like I'm cheating. I feel like... I mean, it's not... I mean, you wouldn't put this on me, but I feel like I should say, if I've played all of these games only once, then how would I judge? Because I'm going with Maracaibo because I, I want to put more time into Maracaibo, and I feel like I've put enough time into those other games. So that makes it easy. Um, so I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw an audible. All right, so if I've only ever played Gloomhaven the first time, Concordia the first time, Blackout, and Loop the first time, oh, then it'd be a no-brainer. It would be Blackout, Loop, and Concordia because... Gloomhaven, you have to put time into it to really understand, to really see it blossom and really fall in love with it. And Gloomhaven is has problems. Gloomhaven, I mean, Concordia and the Loop are perfection. There's nothing... Uh, the only negative thing I could say about Concordia is it's a little dry thematically, and there could have been... It would have been nice to have names and pictures of faces. But otherwise, Concordia is perfection, Loop is perfection, and Blackout is really good. Whereas Gloomhaven, I've got issues. Even though Gloomhaven is my number three of all time, yeah, I would take them. All right, so again, only ever played Hollertal the one time, and Lo Yang once, and Pulsar. I think... And putting aside Jen's deep, deep love of Lo Yang. Sorry, folks. I do, I do enjoy this. This is torture, but it's fun torture for me. Hopefully it's not too terribly annoying for everybody while they just watch me think and grind. Putting aside Jen's deep love of Lo Yang, I would actually say Holler, I would go with Hollertau over Lo Yang and Pulsar. If I'm um, you know, just trying to take them off. Right. And uh, you know, taking out these extra caveats that make it easier for me to make the choice. And then Maracaibo... I've only played it once, and I've only played Sky, Fuse, Arian, and Biblios once. Wow. I mean, obviously, getting four games for the price of one, I'm assuming these are relatively close if I were to do cost comparisons, since you made all this about cost comparisons. I'm assuming. I think I'd still go with Maracaibo. All right, anyway. Ooh, that was hard. And then Gerald probably has an easier question. It's a design question. Some popular board games get criticized for allowing luck of the draw uh, to decide the winner, while others uh, also have a decent amount of card draws that are powerful or weak cards and don't get criticized. Would you compare... Could you compare two that you can think of and explain what might be the differences? It's interesting you should mention this, Gerald. There is another question that's coming later when Jen gets on. It's unfortunately a mistake. I put it in the personal section, but it was clearly a game question having to do with... Uh, our response to how, how we compare luck in games. And two games specifically were mentioned, so hang on, that will come up a little bit later. Okay. Hi, Nigel. Nigel hopes that I'm well and my summer heat is not overwhelming. It is ridiculous, but just between you and me, I love the heat. Um, you know, I, we, we had a couple days where it was getting upwards of 120, and I actually just went out and basked in the heat for a while. I mean, I I, I guess I'm cold-blooded. I guess I am a reptile. I actually respond to that very well. Jen, of course, quite the opposite. Anyway, recently, Stronghold Games released the retail version of Terraforming Mars Ares Expedition uh, via Target stores, which is a chain of stores in the U.S., ahead of the date that backers on the Kickstarter campaign were due to receive their copies. This didn't affect anyone outside the U.S., but it seems that several backers of the game have taken to Board Game Week to voice their displeasure with this, and they expected to receive their copies before anyone else could get one. Such people who perhaps do not appreciate the subtleties of running a business, or that 2021, um, getting a game onto a shelf anywhere in the world was a minor miracle, have tried to artificially deflate the game's rating on Board Game Week by rating the game a one in an attempt to hurt the publisher. That's a real shame. <sighs> shame on them. Alrighty. 
This has subsequently led to an equal number of tens being given by the supporters of Stronghold in order to achieve some kind of equilibrium. At the time of writing, there are 101 tens and 110 ones for the game, and it's currently rated a 5.9 overall. Here's the ironic part. All those tens and all those ones are getting thrown away. There, nobody's achieving anything. It's just a but. It's a it's a war of numbers over nothing because Board Game Geek is smart enough to recognize shilly stuff like this. Um, but anyway, go on. All right, uh, this is not the first time that a Board Game Geek ra uh, rating system has been uh, used, or I might say abused. Um, there are plenty of gamers who will say that Board Game Geek ratings are effectively meaningless because of this. That's the thing. They are not. Because Scott Alden is a smart cookie. Um, there is more going on behind the scenes than just a blind algorithm just taking everything at face value. It does beg the question, continues Gerald, why people bother giving those bad ratings if they don't matter. Ah, you caught them in a... All right, anyway. I've, I've tried to ruin it, and therefore it's ruined and you shouldn't use it. Alrighty. Anyway. Uh, whether a publisher is at fault or not, it seems unfair to all those people who work on the game. The developers, designers, artists, testers, editors. Uh, they all receive effectively the same ra ranking for the game. Board Game Geek has recently expanded entries to include credits for developers, graphic designers, solo rule designers. Yeah, it's fantastic. It's so great. So uh, they're now getting much-deserved credit, but they could be hurt by bad ratings. But they're not going to be. Because again, Board Game Geek is smart enough to um, recognize and throw out, not all, but enough of the shills. Alright, so anyway, do I feel that it is possible to have a fair rating system for Board Game Geek? Would it, for example, be fair for the designers of the game to e uh, uh, for to the developers of the game if each entry had two ratings? One that reflects the quality of the design and one reflects customer experience. You know, so one is a one to ten and one is an A to F, as an example. This could mean that a great game um, with perhaps substandard components could be rated uh, uh, 10D. It's a great game, but um, the customer experience was down. Or a bad game with gorgeous components could uh, a great service from the customer could be a 5A. Such a system um, could would still be open to abuse, of course. And I wonder if something along these lines might work. Ah, that's an interesting question. Would the trolls who are actively trying to hurt people who had the the who uh, you know committed the crime of trying to give them a good game? of just trying to make the world a better place, and their crime, they are guilty, and they deserve to be punished in the court of public opinion by these people because, oh no, they have to wait a couple of months to get their crazy super deluxe edition that people from Target don't get to ever have. Oh no. World's smallest file in playing for these people. Um, and I say this, I used to back a lot of Kickstarters, and I will admit, it's happened to me. It's annoying, but it's not so annoying. I mean, but I am willing, as you are, Gerald, to extend grace and recognize people are doing the best they can, and there's no reason to literally try to harm people and their reputation and their business because you have to wait an extra few weeks. Yeah. Anyway, um... Would such... I mean, they're, they're trolls. These people are being trolls. They are letting their anger and their frustration lead them to actively destructive acts. And would somebody in that headspace be satisfied with your system where, oh, I'll give it an F. But I bet you it's still... I don't know. I could certainly see them saying, oh, the F is not enough. I'm still going to give it a 1. I don't see wh why... Why wouldn't they? Because they are coming from a fundamentally irrational place where all they want to do is hurt somebody. And they still have the means to hurt them. Now, all you've done is given them two things that they can rate down. 
I don't know that it would work. I think it's an unsolvable problem. And I know Scott Alden has said as much, which is why I don't, you know, they've never released their secret formula. Uh, a lot of it is supposition that they throw out a certain percentage of ratings. And also, I mean, the reason it's at a 5.9 right now is because any game that first appears on Board Game Geek, once it's gotten enough, first of all, it doesn't, I mean, it, the the corrections don't kick in until a certain number of ratings have even happened. You know, until thousands of people have rated it, it's kind of a, a BS number, and it probably shouldn't be there. If there's one mistake, the number probably shouldn't even show up until... That all their tools to counteract this kind of abuse kicks in. But when the abuse kicks in, it's based on some really popular system where a certain number of fives are just associated. They kind of normalize and eliminate the crazy extended outliers. Which is why, I mean, what's the highest ranked game on all of Board Game Geek? It's an eight. Nothing on Board Game Geek can ever. It's like it's physically impossible for them to get a nine. What is it? I'm going to go look. It's Gloomhaven. I know that is the highest ranked game on Board Game Geek. Uh, where do I find that? I want to browse all board games. The highest ranked game on Board Game Geek will be with us in a second. It is Gloomhaven, and it is an 8.5. That is the best anybody can do. And Gloomhaven, I mean, and Gloomhaven has 44,000 people voting. And I guarantee you, the overwhelming majority of them are positive because Gloomhaven is really amazing. So, um, yeah, an 8.5, 8.4. That's the best they can do because Gloomhaven has been given a, uh, uh, you know, a, a base. And all games are given a base. Because here's the thing. These people that are actively trying to hurt Stronghold games and indie, I mean, indie boards and cards, is that right? Uh, who are actively want to hurt them because they are hurt. Hurt people, hurt people. That's just the nature of the world, unfortunately. I, I, I was being a bit too harsh. I mean, I... I don't want to disparage them. I have not walked a mile in their shoes, but it is, it's very frustrating to see that other people letting their frustration lead to directly harmful acts. And they, and they just don't appreciate it. But you know what? Hey, I mentioned earlier, Hanlon's Razor. Never ascribe to malice that which can be uh, explained by ignorance. I'll talk about this later with Jen. So, well, I mean, it's... Um, so people are ignorant. They do not know what they are doing. They think they're doing the right thing. And they're just wrong. But it doesn't make them bad people. It's not that they are malicious. It's that they are ignorant. Um, but anyway, uh, so all these fives kind of counter out... The, because here's the deal. The vast majority of people don't do this. The vast majority of people who rate stuff on Board Game Geek do not abuse the system. Everybody who's abusing the system is an outlier. Like you said, there are a hundred or so artificial ones and artificial tens. A year from now, there's going to be 10,000 rankings. And it's still only going to be a hundred or so of the artificial things. And those, those, uh, those people are going to get completely washed away. So in the short term, they're washed away by the artificial fives that just kind of normalize things. And again, it feels like the ranking shouldn't even appear until this has gotten to work its magic and it just say blank. Maybe games should just not even get a, ra- a final uh, amalgamated ranking on Board Game Geek until they've gotten 5,000 reviews. But then that means so many games would never get one at all. It's a t- it's it's a tough situation and I do n- I I I know Scott and company have a tough thing, uh, you know, a tough problem to solve there. And on some level it's just not solvable. Um but that's the thing. As you point out, such a system could still be open to abuse. The reality is long term the abuse is largely inconsequential. And um, and those people who are I will Fight back against the oppressor who has 
decided that I am not a worthy customer and my money or what I'm, I, I don't, I'm putting words in their mouth. That's not fair. But to all those people who are so hurt because they have to wait a couple of weeks or a month or whatever to get their deluxe version of the game, so much so that they actually want to hurt somebody else. At the end of the day, they're not going to hurt anybody. So I, I wouldn't worry about it too terribly much, Gerald. Okay. Hi, Kirk. You really like that my channel is becoming more diverse and including more voices. Well, thank you. Uh, that said, uh, Kirk has noticed I'm still far more likely, or Kirk is far more likely to watch my playthroughs rather than Chase. Kirk was thinking um, about this to try to understand why. Of course, simple answer could be that we resonate with different personalities. And, uh, yeah, and Kirk just likes me. That's cool. Thanks, Kirk. I might like you too. Anyway, as a bigger factor, you believe that um, you just like a lot of the games that um, I cover for the same reasons that I do. Um, you know, and often you will find that I hand off to Shea games that are definitely worth covering, but just aren't a fit for me in gen. You know, dudes on a map games, heavy conflict games, etc., etc. Considering that there may be people out there whose gaming style uh, may be more similar to Shea's and other contributors, have I thought about finding ways to draw in new viewers? Um, yeah, that's one of the reasons Shay is here, definitely. I mean, I talked about it earlier. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of totally flatlining because, you know, it's a self-imposed wound by wearing shirts that, um, you know, make people question their uh, assumptions, and therefore they'd rather not do that and would rather uh, turn off. And again, don't begrudge me for doing it. I've done it myself. It's human. Uh, you got to do what, uh, you got to do what's good for your own mental health. But anyway, um... <clears throat> Right, so yes, uh, that is why Shay is here. Shay originally came on the channel because uh, because you know he made a name for himself on his channel, um, uh, RTFM. I was about to say what it actually stands for, but the uh, F it's it's read the F manual um, is what it is. Uh, and he he got his start covering more Ameritrashy games. I mean, his biggest game to date was his excellent How to Play for uh, oh, what's that big game? Uh, Imperium Rex, Twilight Imperium. Yeah, yeah. So I thought, oh, good, he can cover these kind of things. Here's the interesting thing, Kirk. Shay is evolving right in front of my eyes because that that was a total no-brainer. But over time, he's been saying. I mean, both Shay and I say yes to the vast. I'm sorry, both say we both say no to the vast majority of games that um, we are contacted about. Because the vast majority of games, we can look at the rules and say, yeah, that's probably not going to work for us. Um, actually, interestingly, the very first game that Shay said yes to, he just kind of said yes to it. And then he got the game, and he played and like, oh, I don't like this at all. And he actually tried doing a run-through, and he tried trying to come up with a way to talk about it in the final thoughts without trashing it. And it was just so hard to do. And believe me, I've been there myself. You realize, you know what? I just should have said no to this game from the get-go. And we contacted the publisher and sent it on to somebody else. And and um, I, I don't even remember what game it was. But, you know, Shay learned the hard way. Say no. Don't take the chance on something that might be great. Say yes to the stuff you're relatively confident will be great. Um, it will make your life better. And so he's been doing that. But the other thing is, he's been saying no more and more to games that I was sure he was going to say yes to. Because, wow, this looks like a really good dude's on a map game. He's like... Yeah, I think I'm a pass. I think I've had enough of this kind of thing. And he's saying yes more and more to the kind of stuff I like. I think I am corrupting his brain. I am turning an Ameritrasher into a Eurogamer. Oh, to be fair, he's really much more of an Omnigamer. He kind of loves everything. He loves party games. He loves it all. But um, no, that was kind of the intention. And um, you know, we'll try to bring on more people as time goes forward. Uh, right. Let's see. What was the question? 
Considering that there may be people out there whose gaming style may be more similar to Shay's and other contributors, have you thought about finding ways to draw in new viewers? Um, well, it's interesting. I mean, that is kind of why he's here. It certainly hasn't drawn new viewers. It's interesting. Um, Shay gets pretty much the same number of uh, views as I do. Um, you know, obviously, it's variable based on the popularity of the game and stuff like that. He does tend to get... I mean, I get more unsubscribes. If I compare my videos and his videos, I'm like, oh, I put this video up. Oh, that led to five people net unsubscribing. Whereas, you know, he ended up getting, you know, three people subscribing. I mean, it used to be I would get, you know... I'd do videos and there'd be dozens of people subscribing as a result, or hundreds of people subscribing. And nowadays, it's like, more often than not, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm... And again, I know why. I know why it's happening, but I, you know, that's... It's a... It's a it's what I've chosen, and it's it's the path I'm going to stay on because I think it's the right thing to do. So yeah, I mean, it's definitely something to consider. Um, you know, bringing on more contributors to the channel. The tricky thing is finding people who can do run-throughs. Um, we've actually gone through a few different folks, and they've tried doing run-throughs, and um, and I've given them a lot of feedback, and then like, ooh, okay, we'll try again, and then we kind of never hear from them again. Or that's not true. That's not fair. Um, you know, and they they go back to, the, but they they realize, oh. What Rado does, it doesn't just come naturally. It's a it's a skill. It's something that Shay, who let's not forget, is a trained improvisational actor. That is why he went to L.A. to become a, a, a professional actor. Uh, and you know, and he he's taken improv classes. And you know I've done a lot of stage and theater myself back in my earlier days. So it's it's not something. This this concept of being able to demonstrate a game in the way that I do. And so other folks have tried, and I end up giving them a lot of feedback, and they're like, oh, well, okay, maybe maybe it's just not going to work out then. That, maybe, and that's okay. Or maybe they'll try, and they realize, oh, I'm going to have to practice. I'm going to have to study, or, or this, that, or the other things. So it's been hard. We got, I got incredibly lucky. My, my first big shot, Shay, just knocked out of the park. But again, that's because I think in his prior life, he was literally trained to do this. And so was I. Uh, as an, uh, ba- you know, ba- All my life experiences put me in a situation where I could do videos the way I do it. And it's kind of hard for other people to copy that. Um, anyway, though, there uh, may be people who ignore my channel or believe it's all two-player Euro Care Bear games. Perhaps some of these people would be a great fit with some of the new contributors. Could be. Here's the thing. The vast majority of people who watch my video do not come in because they are subscribers. The overwhelming majority of people who watch um, my videos, according to the statistics that YouTube gives me, are here because they got a recommendation. Because they watched some other video, and then YouTube said, hey, watch this next, and they came over. And um, that is shocking to me, because that's not how I watch YouTube at all. I subscribe to probably about 300 channels. And every day, a couple times a day, I go to my subscription tab, and anything that looks interesting among the channels that I have chosen to subscribe to, I click on the Add to the Watch Later list. And then late at night, after Jen's gone to bed, I sit down for a couple hours and watch four hours worth of videos in two hours. That's how I do. I don't. I rely very little on the YouTube recommendation scheme. But apparently, the vast majority of people watching, the vast majority of content on YouTube get their recommendations from YouTube. And that's why you always hear people talk about how to tickle that algorithm, how to get the algorithm to... What is it we have to do? And YouTube won't tell anybody. And so everybody's just in this guessing game, and I have never done what I know I need to do. I need to, on my thumbnails for my videos, I need to put a picture of me with a white outline doing a, hmm, a thoughtful look or a, a surprised look. 
because human beings click on the faces of other human beings. I don't do that. My decision right from the get-go was, I want to make this about the game. So I try to highlight the art of the game and make it all about that. And that means less people instinct uh, implicitly will click on my videos because I've just got really pretty art. Whereas if I put that art and then superimpose myself over it, making a face, I'd probably get a lot more people clicking on me. And, and um, you know, coming up with clickbaity titles instead of just, okay, th this is the name of the game and it's a run-through. And this is the name of the game, you know, as opposed to, you won't believe, you know, that this game does this. You know, I should be doing that kind of stuff. Because the vast majority of people, and I should, and I just... But you know what? I should also start and end every single video with please like and subscribe. It makes a really big difference. Because it does make a big difference. It really, really does. And I don't. I just can't... I, I just... Oh, it just makes me feel dirty inside, but I really should start doing it. And maybe I will someday. I don't know. But um, anyway, yeah, thank you for the suggestion, Kirk. Um, sorry, that was a broad-reaching thing. And, and here is Vasco. Vasco, I believe this is a first-time writing, and Vasco has written a novel. It is very, very long and very, very thoughtful, well thought out. So... Folks listening, I'm just going to summarize for Vasco. I'm going to skip to the question. Folks who are on YouTube, uh, you know, take, take the time, pause. Because Vasco put a lot of work and a lot of thought. And Vasco, I have read your entire email. Um, but, all right, so here's the first page. And uh, basically, uh, he's talking about how some channels, uh, he's specifically referring to the Azul series, and how he has seen some board game YouTubers who dismiss the... Um, the, the historical significance uh, that Azul is literally teaching all its players. Uh, and they make jokes about how, oh, that's the game about the bathroom tiles and, and stuff like that. And, you know, actually, uh, you know, and the, the game goes into this a bit, and Vasco goes into a really deep treatise about the history of the of these ceramic tiles in, in, in uh, Spanish and, and, and Portuguese culture and whatnot. And it's really wonderful. And I'm sorry, Vasco, it'd be way, way too long to read, but if you're on YouTube, you can see it. Anyway, though, um, Vasco continues to say, it's just not cool that these channels are doing this. That um, you know they are completely dismissing, uh, you know, huge elements of culture uh, of things that are incredibly important to other people. And um, like he says, seeing people write off an entire paragraph written in the rule but describing the theme and its game and the heritage behind it as stained glass and bathroom tiles was baffling to Vasco. All righty. So uh, he continues on. Uh, you know, and again, he goes really deep into this. And again, I'm so sorry, Vasco. In the future, uh, you know, uh, please understand. I mean, I, I will read your whole thing, but I, I would probably spend ten minutes just reading this out loud. So anyway, uh, we eventually get to the question, <laughs> at which point he says, "I don't have a proper question to ask, but since I am uh, such an outspoken person about how we shouldn't be dismissive to other people's point of view on games or the personal way of enjoying things, and how much I care about the socio-political and cultural issues, Vasco is wondering what I have to say on this topic, if I agree with his reaction, or if I think it was uh, simply amplified by his, by his feeling personally attacked because his culture was dismissed. No, uh, you know, when, when, he, when he looks at it as you know, his heritage literally being under fire. I think it is unfortunate. I, 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 you, you didn't mention what this review was, so I couldn't actually see. And I don't know. I guess, Fosco, maybe maybe there's an element of... you know Maybe they were a bit dismissive, but mostly they just thought they were being cute and funny, and maybe you took it too personally. I can't say because you didn't watch it. But in my feeling, uh, to ask what I think, I... Why? 
why make a joke at the expense of any culture? It, it, it just makes no sense to me. Um, first of all, why try to be funny anyway? I guarantee you, you will not be funny. Everybody trying to be funny on YouTube board game channels, 90% of you will fail. And it's just not going to work. Take that, you know, just try to find something other than shock jock stuff or, you know, just being cute. Try to, I mean, I know everybody needs to find some way to get eyeballs because it's so terribly hard. But, you know, trying to make jokes at the expense of a game, that's not the way to do it. I I, mean, I, I know, you know, uh, what's it called? You know, they're called shock jocks in America. Uh, radio disc jockeys who have morning shows that people listen to on their commutes that are just, you know, just aggressive and negative and stuff like that. Or, you know, just dis- diminishing and dismissing. That's that's just... that's. Try and find a better way. Try to find something more interesting. Now, if, if it's just you, if that's your nature and that's who you are, well, I guess be you. I'm not saying don't be you. But um, you're not doing yourself any favors because chances are most people don't find it funny. Most people just don't. Trust me. Um, but anyway... I think what you described from your perspective, yeah, that sounds really unfortunate. And it also, I, I think I feel worse, not for you, but for them, because they're missing out on so much. Um, you know, I think games that have the opportunity to expose us to new and interesting cultures and broaden our knowledge and our appreciation for the world, something that we might have dismissed as, oh, those are just bathroom tiles. In fact, no, they have so much depth and resonance and meaning and history to just dismiss all of that. I mostly feel bad for this channel that you're talking about, that that's how they go through life and they just miss so much beauty. And um, yeah, so I guess that's my feeling. And uh, yeah, and you know, anybody trying to do it, trying to do a channel to make, you know what, you're going to do a lot better just coming up with great ways to make cool thumbnails. Uh, they get people to come in rather than just, you know, dis- being dismissive. I mean, you can be, I mean, like I said earlier, you can be too woke. I mean, I'm a living embodiment of go woke, go broke. I am, not that I'm going broke, I'm doing fine. Um, so, I mean, I don't know, I mean, the, the safe space is always in the middle. Um, if, if you're on the extremes, you will appeal to people on the extremes, and the vast majority of people are not on the extremes. The vast majority of people in all things in life are in the center. So if you want to appeal, appeal to the bigger audience, uh, I guess. You're not doing yourself any favors, and uh, yeah, again, wh- whoever your channel just completely missed out on all of that and doesn't feel the history when they play this wonderful little abstract game, I feel bad for them. That's just too bad that they're missing out. Okay. Ben. Can I call you Benjamin? Ben has noticed on a few occasions that I've said the games from Pearl Games, uh, or specifically the design trio of Dujardin, Georges, and uh, Orban, tend to have combinations of mechanisms uh, that are unlike anything else on the market. Uh, ben thinks that I've made comments to this effect on Trois, Ginkopolis, Otis, Selenia... Black Angel, he's not sure, but maybe on those. It seems like, on the whole, that group's creative output, you forgot about, um, Carson City and Carson City the Card Game. And there's plenty more besides, I'm sure. That group's creative output uh, is really unique in the realm of board games. Would you agree? I think they are fantastic. Yeah, and I would say I would agree with that. Yeah, you know, none of them have made a dominion, you know? None of them have done a thing that says, wow... Nobody ever thought of doing this before. 
they seem much more like Stefan Feld saying, okay, well, look, here's things that have been done before, but here's a new way to combine these things. And you know, and here's a twist on something you've you've known for a while, but let's just twist it this little bit, and it really changes how that feels and how it interacts with these other things. I think they're excellent at that, and I think that's something I as a former designer myself, I appreciate so much, and I, and I love what they do. Anyway, you ask, can I think of other publishers, designers, and/or games that stand out as being especially unique? Um, do I still have rank.rado.com? Um, uh, Yo, Shirley, uh, what's it? I can't think of his name now. Uh, Check Games Edition. Oh my gosh, why can't I think of the designer of Dungeon Pets and Dungeon Lords and Nations? Or not Nations, um, but uh, Through the Ages. Oh my gosh. Vladishavadl, I think. Vladishavadl is a very interesting designer. He does really interesting, new, unique things, but there feels like kind of an artist. I mean, if I didn't know better, I would think Vlada Shavadl is an artist who just happens to do game design. And for all I know, maybe he is. But there's an artistry to the way he mixes these things. I mean, he's obviously very strongly design-focused in mechanism, and his mechanisms are great. But it almost feels like there's a touch of madness to what he does. Uh, you know, you know, and and you know, and and he has created. He created code names, which will forever change the the future trajectory of board gaming. And you know, and that makes him stand out. Um, but you know, Stefan Feld, uh, you know, there's a reason I love Stefan Feld the same way I love the, uh, the Pearl trio. Um, you know, Stefan Feld hasn't ever reinvented anything, but what I just said about them, it's what he does. It's what I love so much. Uh, I mean, heck, my favorite designers are probably all going to have done this. I think Fister does this, uh, you know, you know, especially with his focus on narrative and wending narrative into Euro mechanisms, and nobody else is. I mean, I, I really do hope other people. I mean, I th- I do think I've started to see some people starting to do it, and he's just at the forefront of it. And um, oh, uh, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I could I could do a long list of stuff. I mean, does Uwe Rosenberg ever reinvent the wheel? No, but does he come up with really clever? I mean, I, all I'm doing right now, I'm just looking at ranked. I'm looking at my top ranked games of all time, and they're all examples of games that have done this. And it's it's why they come up out, out top because they, they go beyond what we were talking about earlier of like you know sometimes there's just a wonderful game there is nothing wrong about this game, but there's nothing novel about it. There's nothing that just has that little extra twist. It's just really good and workman at what it does. And there's nothing wrong with those. Those games I tend to rate a seven, or I tend to not keep them because I only have so much space. The best of the best games. I mean, just go look at my. Um, you know, I mean, Jamie Stegmeyer. Uh, I just saw a tapestry fly by. And, uh, uh, oh, there's more Feld stuff. And, um, yeah. Uh, there's a bunch of them. I'm too many to list, quite frankly. It, we are living in a golden age of gaming. So, yeah. I, the, uh, literally, just look at my top 100 games. Uh, go to rank.rado.com. Look at my top 100 games. There's a whole bunch of publishers and designers and developers who are doing exactly that. From Priscilla. Hi, Priscilla. Welcome back. You've been gone forever. It is so good to see you again. Uh, sorry if it's been asked in the past, but I was wondering if you and Jen played Pandemic during the actual real-life Pandemic, or were we just not able to? Uh, we played Pandemic Hot Zone because it came out, and actually, I talked about this. If you go and watch my Final Thoughts video for Pandemic Hot Zone, I talked about the act of playing Pandemic during a real-world live Pandemic, where people are dying People are suffering. People's lives are inevitably and irrevocably changed for the worse. Um, and then playing a game 
that on casual glance looks like it's just trying to make fun out of that. Oh, should we be having fun at the expense? And again, go check out my uh, Pandemic Hot Zone video. I don't, that's not how I choose to look at Pandemic. And yeah, we uh, I think we played Pandemic... Yeah, last year was Pandemic uh, Zero, right? Legacy Zero. Although that one isn't really set in a worldwide pandemic. It's a Cold War spy thriller. So that one, it, it kind of gets a pass. But yeah, I do have feelings about it. And I also talked about them more recently when I covered uh, another game that is literally all about surviving a pandemic called We Care. And so you can watch my final four thoughts uh, thoughts for Pandemic Hot Zone or Pandemic... Or no, or We Care to see how I feel about why it's an it's a positive thing. It's a it's a powerful thing. It's a refutation. It's a not giving in to despair. It's a looking at the best of what humanity has to offer. It is the way I look at playing a pandemic or a similar style game. Um, you know, it, because it's celebrating everything that makes humanity great in the face of unspeakable odds. Um, so that got heavy, really. Oh, and also, by the way, Priscilla, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, I know you also wrote a personal question, but unfortunately it came after Jen and I filmed a couple days ago, so we'll get to your personal question next month. But I think that was it, isn't it? Yes. Okay, folks, we have a few more game-related questions, but I'll have to pause for a bit and go get Jen and literally get in a time machine because we recorded the rest of this stuff two days ago. So hang on, and we'll be right back. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, everybody, time to continue with a few more game questions, but I'm not alone now. Say hey, honey pie. Hey, honey pie. There you go. That's proof, right? Positive there that Jen is with me now, and I did pull some of the questions aside because I thought she might have something to say. And in some cases, you folks just decided to ask her directly. So let us continue with uh, Jack. Not that Jack. Jack is quick to... Jack, Jack. <laughs> you're, you're definitely uh, getting well known that other Jacks are calling out that they're not the Jack Jack for the Jack Attack. And don't worry, folks. There'll be plenty of Jack Attack coming pretty soon in the personal stuff. It's still gaming stuff. Um, not Jack Jack. I'm sure Jack doesn't care to be called that. Ah, this is confusing. But anyway, uh, um, Jack wonders, how do Jen and I feel when we end up not liking a game we played? Jack imagines there's some disappointment tied to the fact that it was a game that I thought I'd enjoy, but didn't. Maybe secretly, I love this situation, uh, because then I know I can get rid of it and get it out of my life, or something else. <laughs> um, well, I, I, you, you, you put this question to Jen, I'm not quite sure why, but Honey Pie, how do you feel when I have failed miserably and brought a game into the house that you didn't enjoy? <laughs> Uh, I feel grateful that the vast majority of the time you do such a good job. <laughs> okay. That's, um, you don't curse my name. And, ah, can't believe you wasted an hour, an hour or two of my time with that. Actually, I think we find out pretty quickly that it's not a, a good game for us. Yeah, that is a good point. It's, it's very, very rare. I mean, certainly I've been making games for 20 years before I started doing this 10 years ago. So I think I've got a really good sense 
for games. But I think Jen does now too. Probably Jen does a bit more than the average bear. Yeah. That you can make pretty informed observations about games right from the get-go. Because we play hundreds of games every year. Yeah. And in reality, I will probably try and muscle through a little longer than you will. Mm. You will often say, honey. It's true. Actually, That's true. You know I I, I, if, 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 if I, if to me, if the writing's on the wall, I just don't want to waste her time, period. I just want, okay, honey pie, I can see where this is going. And you're like, no, 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 maybe, maybe, maybe it'll turn around. I'll give it a chance. I'll get a fair shake. And does it turn around? Um, I think usually within a, a few, you know, probably a round or two of that, we decide actually no. Yeah. And those end up being games that I just don't cover. I contact the publisher and say, oh, I'm sorry. If this really didn't work for us, are you sure you want me to film it? Because here's what I'll say. And if they say, oh, no, that's okay, Rado, thanks. And then we'll just send the game off to some other reviewer. And uh, yeah. But it is it is still pretty rare. How often does that happen, would you say, honey? I caught her right in the middle of the most epic yawn. <laughs> um, I'm going to say... Hmm... It's, it's certainly not very often. Maybe mm -hmm. one out of 30 games? One out of 30 games. So you're saying maybe... Once a like, month. Every other month, maybe. Yeah, like once every couple of months. Yeah, I would, I would. that sounds about right. I think so. That, you know, that it, it just... It, it surprised me in the wrong, in the wrong way. All right. Um, thank you, Jack Not Jack. Okay, then we've got Victory BHG, who would like to know what makes a game cooperative in our opinion. And to add... Uh, BHG, or Vic, I guess I'll call him. Actually, I'm wondering what BHG is. I don't know. What is this victory? I mean, he's actually a backer. Or I should say, he or she is a backer on uh, Patreon of the show. Oh. So I could probably just... I've probably got all of Victory BHG's personal details. I could just go look them up. Uh, well, it's interesting, because you think, well, BHG, for me, that's Better Homes and Gardens, for some reason. Perhaps that's what it is. That I used to really like to read. Yeah. So is it... Are you Victory Better Homes and Gardens? Yeah, answer the question. The uh, questioner has become the questioned. But in the meantime, <laughs> we'll get to your question. All right. All right. Uh, Vic adds uh, that they wanted to understand the difference between some reviewers' criticism of co-op games being, quote, one mind, multiple hands, versus a truly multiplayer cooperative experience. As an example, Tom Bassel of the Dice Tower commented on the loop. Remember the loop, honey? You really loved the loop. It was the time travel thing where we were going around and, and had the spinny thing in the center that the cubes would fall out of the three different shoots. Oh, of course, yes. Yep, yes, yep, yep. Yes. Yeah, I mean, we both loved the loop. Loop was fantastic. But Tom apparently said that it felt to him like a solo experience, even in multiplayer, as one person could tell the others what to do. It seems that this is a common criticism of cooperative games in general. However, there are some mechanisms, such as Gloomhaven's secret player goals, that might allow for a player to truly feel like it's a multiplayer co-op rather than a single commander and multiple followers. Uh, Vic hasn't played Pandemic yet. Really should. Um, although Pandemic, of course, is certainly would be guilty of this sin, if you were to consider it a sin, the notion that, um, yeah, depending on the playgroup, there could be one player who decides to monopolize the decision-making and just really kind of ruin the game. But that's not the fault of the game. That's the fault of the group. I mean, any game, period, that's ever been invented can be ruined by bad players. Poker can be ruined by bad players. Chess can be ruined by bad players. And a cooperative game can be ruined by um, inconsiderate players. Let's not say bad players. And uh, so I don't know that I would necessarily agree with this. I mean, certainly when we play The Loop, 
or Pandemic, or any game where uh, if somebody wanted to, they could just say, okay, everybody, you just need to stop thinking what you're doing, and I'm just going to decide for everybody. I mean, that doesn't happen with us. Why does that not happen with us? Why are we not susceptible to the, what's it called, the alpha gamer syndrome? Yeah, probably because we've been married a long time, and we have a really good relationship. Mm -hmm. And we, we don't live our lives that way. Okay. I think. Yeah. And I would imagine the same thing in a group. If you get a good group where everybody's... <laughs> consider of each other and yeah i think that's just who you hang out with but we have played cooperative games with people who we have not been married to for decades yes and, um, that's and that true. has not really proven to be an issue either every group we've ever played with falls without under without that. without yeah. fail yeah. you're sure that's a hundred percent um 100 yeah. statement that's true well and so why have we not i mean i don't recall ever having a problem playing with Steve and Betsy, or yeah. um, you know, I, even, you I know going that. all the way back to in Woking, you know, when we were very briefly in that game group, and when we lived in Guilford, and we'd go up on yeah. Tuesday nights to play games on Woking. Well, I think I've never seen it happen. You're face to face with people more, yeah. and it's so much easier to be a considerate, <clears throat> nice player when you have to be face to face. If yeah. you're behind a screen, you can be a dick, but mm -hmm. a computer screen, you mean? Know, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so video games is what I'm talking about. I mean, we did have that one um, couple that visited us in Malta, and remember they were a bit alpha gamery. And you and that was and it and, and it wasn't a cooperative game; it was a competitive game. It was five oh four. I remember the exact couple. They were very nice, but yeah, the nice. guy was very leadershipy. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't want to say overbearing because he wasn't being. I don't think he was purposely being rude or anything like no, that. But he, he just, just he he really kind of he was kind of an overtalker. Yeah, 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 yeah. I remember how that resolved. I think we finished the game and uh, they had to get on their way to do. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. So and and we just talked about afterwards. No offense if you if if you were, sorry. A lot of people visit us in Malta, so I don't remember who you are now. Um, I mean, I, I'm still glad you came by and I'm glad we got to play uh, 504 with you. But uh, yeah, I guess it has happened occasionally. But it's I mean, uh, Vic, to your point, I'm sorry, Tom is in my opinion wrong. It has nothing to do with the game. It has to do with the people playing. Um, and uh, yeah, any cooperative game. Unless, as you say, it's something that has hidden information or, you know, or imperfect communication, which is actually fast becoming a real standard. I mean, I talked about this. It's funny, uh, you mentioned Tom. Uh, maybe there's a through line here. When Tom and I did uh, Top 10 together, it was the Top 10 Most Influential Games of the last decade. One of the ones I called out was Hanabi, and he pish-poshed me because I said Hanabi really popularized and, and gave birth to this idea of cooperative games that are all about imperfect communication where players can't just say everything they want. They have to keep some stuff back, and that's part of the puzzle to solve. And Tom said, ah, that's hardly a thing at all. And I'm like, no, that's a major evolution. And you just pointed one out in Gloomhaven that, uh, you know, we can, you know, and, and it's not just that. Gloomhaven, we have secret goals, but we are also are not allowed to say exactly what we're doing. We can only talk in general terms about what our plans are for a given round. And uh, yeah, I, I, I'm not saying that makes a cooperative game better. It does make it more alpha gamer proof if you do have somebody like that in your life, or if you yourself are somebody like that. <laughs> so, um, but no, I, 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 I think the loop. And co and uh, pandemic before it are perfectly cooperative games, and I would just strongly disagree and debate any reviewer who would say otherwise. And yeah, I mean Tom's totally wrong on the loop. The only reason anybody would feel that way is not because of the game, but because they're playing with a jerk. And uh, maybe Tom just had a bad experience. I, I couldn't say I wasn't there. I haven't actually watched his video on the loop, which, by the way, was 
Well, did I actually ultimately? I think I named it my number one game of last year of 2020, if I recall correctly. Or maybe it wasn't. Maybe it was like number two or three. But anyway, so that's kind of where we're at. Uh, let me know if that answers your question. But in the meantime, we will move on to Christian, who says hello and uh, has a very long email. Although there are longer ones coming. All right. Um, uh, you know, what was it? Christian and his wife recently stayed at a pretty fancy pants resort and paid a not insignificant amount for the room. And being board game lovers, they brought a couple of games to play. And when they got to the room, there were no tables or chairs. So board gaming was impossible. Oh no. This is a disaster. So they went to the front desk, asked if they could bring the necessary furniture to the room and allow um, Christian and his wife to engage in their hobby. And they were met with faces of confusion. And we're told that usually couples stay in our room are for a more, more, a more romantic stay. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Christian did not take well to that. Uh, he asked the, the, the lady if she thought that um, they were unromantic for wanting to play board games together. And the clerk's face went red and she apologized profusely and sorted it out. But it was still not a great experience. So, to Christian's question. Have Jen or I found ourselves in a position where we need to explain ourselves, to explain our gaming hobby? And if so, what would be our approach? What would we have done if this had happened to us? Um, and uh, yeah, he's also sent a video, a dog Whoa. video, not pictures. Although, here's the deal, Honey Pie. Somebody else requested, hey, you know what? A lot of us only ever listen to this and we aren't on YouTube to see these pictures. <laughs> and sometimes Jen can go on for three or four minutes just ooing along over how cute the pictures are. So could you maybe put those at the end? And so I have done so. Uh, we will look at Christian's dog video when we get to the very, very, very end where we will have a, probably a concentrated five to ten minute, oh, look at how cute that pupper is. And it's really only for folks who can see the pictures. Well, of course, you can always go to dogs.raw.com. But anyway, um, Honey Pie. Yes. I, I, I don't think we've ever been in a situation where people have said, what are you doing? And we had to say, well, we're not children in adults' bodies. This is not a big situation or anything like that. We just happen <laughs> to really like games. Yeah. I, don't, I can't think of a time we've ever been in public playing a game and people have said, well, what's that about? Or a situation like they found themselves in. No, no, I don't think so. I mean, certainly sometimes hotel rooms are not set up for gaming. Right. And in fact, we just went on our 30th anniversary trip to the coast. Yes. And there was a table and chairs, but man, they were not comfortable. They were less than ideal. Yeah. That is true. You could sit in them for five minutes. We played one game at it and gave up. And the next time I sat on the floor uh, in front of like a coffee table and you sat on the coffee, I think, or on, on the couch. For, on the couch, yeah. 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 Um, and I would say, I would go further. I mean, there's been times when we've been playing games in the park or at restaurants or whatever. We've never had a negative reaction whenever we've been playing a game in public. Yep. People have been interested and curious and wanted to talk to us about it. Yeah. Um, but we've never been shamed or made to feel like we were yep. um, sub. But, and, you know, honestly, I mean, if I think if we found ourselves in that situation, we would just thought it would have been kind of funny. Yeah, probably. I mean, it's, it's, it's just an unfortunate misunderstanding. Chances are that clerk was right for 90% of the people who rent, you know, rooms. Uh, that, you know, you are probably very much in the minority, Christian, uh, in this regard. It's, and so it's probably just a misunderstanding. Uh, I mean, I, I would hope so. But, yeah, I, I just, you know, life's too short to get too terribly worried about misunderstandings. What's the, uh, uh, the, the razors? Not Occam razor. Hanlon's razor is... To me, one of the most important bits of advice you can really adopt for yourself, uh, which is never ascribe to malice that which can be explained by ignorance 
And it actually sounds like a really mean way to say it, but just don't assume people are actually actively being jerks. They probably just don't quite know. They haven't seen the world from your perspective. And, uh, you know, and they have their own different perspective. And, you know, it's part of navigating life just to, to try and understand that. You know, it's certainly... So- I don't always do it. I'm, I don't always follow that advice, but it is something I always do try to internalize. So I think that's how I would approach a situation like this. And we look forward to seeing your dog video at the end. Um, right now. Okay, so... Let's move on. Unless you have anything more to say on that topic, honey. Right. Okay. Then Ryan says, Hello, Rado. He says Rahada. Rahado, which is a very, very common way that people <laughs> spell Rado. R-H-A-D-O. It's been mentioned in an earlier message uh, that Ryan's enjoying some real genuine quality time with his seven-year-old daughter, who's become hooked on the hobby and can't wait to break out a game instead of playing all the typical kids' games. So a big thank you for that. Well, you're welcome, Ryan. I, I, I'm sure that was mostly you. And your daughter, though. I, I bet if, if I help some way, that's great. Anyway, other than Ryan's daughter, everybody that Ryan knows claims to hate board games, even though they haven't tried them. So the question is, how to get them to the table? I know a few of them would love it, and Ryan's a firm believer that there's at least one game out there for everyone. I certainly... I, I guess maybe there's some crazy exception, but yeah, there's probably very rare that there isn't somebody who could find something that they would engage and enjoy them. So how do you get... People who, I mean, for from the way he describes it, who are vehemently opposed to the idea of playing a board game, mm. how do you approach that situation? Other than just say, well, you know what? Different strokes are different strokes. Different different strokes are different folks. And say, la vie. Um, there's plenty of other people. Who, you've got a seven-year-old daughter who will play with you, so not too terribly worried about. But um, let's see. Who, I mean, who do we even want to try to? Who do we know that we're like, yeah. ah, why won't you play a game with us? I don't know, but I have I have the answer. Go well, and I I'll stop vamping. All right. <laughs> Offer beer. Okay. <laughs> or wine or something. Have a have a bit of a social occasion where they come over and have uh, dinner with you and a glass of wine and whatever. And then as part of that, say, hey, I just got this new game. It needs four players. You know, with only the two of us, we can't play it. Would you, um, would you want to get you know give it a go with us? And mm-hmm. we'd really love to try it with you. Hmm. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I think we've talked about this before, and honestly, my best bet is kind of similar to what you're talking about. Without being a dick about it, kind of guilt them into it. (laughs) Do you not like me? I mean, are you not my friend or my family member? I mean, come and share this with me. It's really important to me, and I'd like to share it with you. I mean, and now that's a very passive-aggressive way to do it. That's why, you know, know, that's really strong. But, I mean, ultimately, if I was in a situation where there was somebody in my life I really wanted to play a game with and they steadfastly refused, I think that's where I would ultimately end up going. Hmm. But try not to do it in, uh, you know, and and Jen just had a really nice kind of soft, hey, ply them with spirits. and um, (laughs) Reduce their resistance. I mean, but no, actually, uh, to the point, Jen actually had a way of putting it. It wasn't so much about, well, what's wrong with you? Why don't don't you respect me and what I like? And why why won't you come and play this game with me? I mean, again, that could be pretty aggressive, but you just had a different way of putting it, or... Hey, help us out. Yeah. We, we want to this. play this game. We can't play it right now. You would be doing us a favor. Maybe that's an interesting way to do it. I think there is some... I remember reading somewhere, there's some kind of interesting psychology about the the best way to make somebody like you as a person oh, yeah. is to get them to do you a favor. Because once they've done that, there's kind of this psychological tick that goes, well, okay, if I've done something nice for these people, I must like them. I mean, because I have to do that to justify what I've actually done. Mm. Um, and so, I'm not that I'm saying you want to like you know use mind games on anybody, but you know, that's an interesting uh, thing. Hey, look, I mean, we've wanted to play this game for weeks, and we just don't have anybody. I mean, I know, I know, I know. 
You're, you're, I mean, you don't want to play games, you've said it before, but but really, I mean, it would just be doing us such a, a great, wonderful favor if you just sit down and humor us on this. Yeah. Maybe that's a way to It'll go. It'll take a half an hour. It'll be a half an hour. No big deal. I'll never ask you again. Oh, great. This is going to be awesome. Thanks. You're really doing us a favor. Well, don't apply it on too heavily. I do tend to apply everything on he, heavily. And he repeats himself. Yes, so, and I do that as well. Right. Yeah, I mean, that's how I would do it. All right, well, that, that, that's not bad. That's not bad. Okay. Natalie says hello. And obviously pick oh, a game you think they'd like. Well, yes. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. If you do get to the table, don't blow your shot. Yeah, Definitely. Don't bring out the D&D. <laughs> Unless you think that would be perfect, I suppose. <laughs> okay. So Natalie is watching run-throughs and final thoughts for Tawantin Suyu. And it made Natalie so sad. Uh, the game has been plagiarized, has plagiarized a lot from another game that uh, Natalie really likes. And there was no mention of all this from the run-through of the final thoughts. Um, I normally tend to mention these things and compare and contrast. Uh, if the two games have similar mechanisms, the game you're talking about is Barbarians, the Invasions. And you're right, Natalie. I, I did not make that connection at all. But there are definite... There are definitely some overlaps there. Uh, you know, Barbarian the Invasion, that was the game where it was there was a volcano. It was like a little... They were like, there's a ring and then a higher ring and a higher ring at the top. And the individual rings could rotate. Ooh. And there, there we had Barbarian workers that were at the top. And they would um, go down, down, down. And you're like, oh, I, I want to be over here. So I'll literally rotate the middle ring so that when they go down and stuff, they'll land over here. Mm. And then there was like a whole map with area control as well because of because uh, we were doing various biking type things. Anyway, so we played in Malta and liked it. Only got rid of it because of the chainmail bikini. Um, also... I don't remember if I said this, but it was a really big box. Um, and, and we were looking for reasons to get rid of stuff when we moved back to America. And big boxes, I mean, take up a lot more space and all that. But I did think it was actually a pretty sharp game. So, I mean, uh, you're right, Natalie. Honestly, I probably should have given... I, I should have done a shout-out. And it honestly, it just didn't occur to me. I mean, I do think, though, the games... They do... They do, they do have quite a few differences as well. I mean, they do share that same basic idea of, oh, I have a, a worker who starts from the top and works their way down a hill. And, um, but but uh, Barbarians is more about kind of like tracing a path down the hill and, um, you, know, you know, they could wind around and stuff like that. Where, and, you know, and, and Barbarians didn't have... I mean, the real thing about Tuantin Suyu is not the coming down the hill. That's, I mean, you spend most of the game not even doing it and you do it very, very little. Whereas that's like the primary thing of Barbarians. The main thing about Tuantin Suyu is when you put a worker down, it, um, can, it can activate one, two, or three, or even more of all the actions around it. That every worker placement spot is actually three worker placement spaces. And then and, and then as an aside, it also has this kind of going down a hill thing. But you're right. I, pro I should have given credit where credit is due. My, um, definitely an oversight on my part. But anyway, below is a list of things. Both the Oh, you're, you're okay. You're, I guess I could have kept reading. We'd like to hear... Our, and you said, Jen's and my thoughts. And now, all I saw from this email was... You, you said you wanted to hear Jen's thoughts. Honey, do you remember this game at all? No. So you'll mostly hear my thoughts. There's a volcano mountain. Yes. Worker placement where the first worker is very important to subsequent worker placement. Um, kind of. I don't. Uh, I, 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 I'll, I'll grant that. I think. I think that's tenuous because, again, in Tuantin Suyu, the high priest kind of functions like a worker, but not really in the same way. And um, in Tuantin Suyu, a big part of that is, hey, once the high priest is in a position, it's all about how can I break away from the high priest, as opposed to the high priest just being the beginning of a of a track I follow. Uh, god cards. A, a lot of games have god cards or, or equivalents. Buildings that construct that give you permanent resources every round. Again, that's 
Half the Euros we play do that. Soldiers that are acquired for warfare. Um, yeah, but you know, I mean, the warfare in the two games is so radically different. In Tuantin Suyu, it's all abstracted away. It's just number comparison. As opposed to Barbarians, where, no, these warriors actually go on adventures and travel the world. So to me... Other than the fact that they are both fighting forces, but I mean, the actual gameplay related to them is so radically different. So there's a thematic overlap, but certainly not a gameplay overlap there. Area majority on the board, the little flag tokens you put on the. Well, see, that's the thing. Um, the area majority uh, is what the warfare is for in Barbarians. And sorry, Honey Pie, I should have had this. Jen's just checking stuff on her phone, waiting. Um, whereas uh, Tuantin Suyu, where is the area control? There's. I mean, there's, there's progress tracks, which are a form of area control, but I would say those are pretty different. And the game is over after three feasts have been held. Now, that's a very interesting overlap. However, three is literally a magic number. The number of times I have talked about the number three in my 20 years as a game developer, and then as my additional 10 years as a board game reviewer, um, you see three. Three is just something that all designers, if all possible, want to use. Because people respond to it on a deep, instinctive gut level. So I don't I don't I think that's a coincidence. Uh, you know, kind of like a societal coincidence that they both. So anyway, I, I will definitely grant you again. I sh I should have made that comparison. I should have done, hey, you know, there's another game that uh that does kind of a similar thing. And I and you got me. You got me, Natalie. You got me good. I apologize. And I apologize to the uh makers of um oh, what call it? Uh, uh, Barbarians, the Invasion. And I think that's it. So we just had a few more, and I snuck in one game question. So, um, Honey Pie, yes. you're going to have to put that phone away, because when we come back, folks, it's time for the personal questions and answers. And if you're not interested in that, this will be the... If you're only here for the game stuff, then thanks, as always, for watching or listening. Have a nice day. Talk to you later. So long. Bye-bye. Oh, and send questions to questions at rado.com, please, as always. Okay. You still here, folks? And hang on. We'll be right back. <laughs> Okay, folks, personal questions and answers time. We got a whole bunch of stuff. And uh, get comfortable. Here we go. While Jen works to fix her Instagram problem in between, uh, Jen said, Hey, I was trying to fire up Instagram and it keeps crashing. She rebooted her phone. That didn't fix it. So she's now reinstalling Instagram on her Android. Fingers crossed that takes care of it. But while that's going on, Joshua says hi and um, subscribed just last month. Thank you, Joshua, for supporting the show. So we can listen to the talk throughs uh, and uh, or loving them. Well, actually, I mean, the, 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 the podcast is free, Joshua. Oh, I, I'm sure you mean the rambles and whatnot, all the backer-specific stuff. But anyway, thank you very much for supporting the show. Question from Joshua. In uh, the last uh, podcast, number 73, I said, it's near certain that we will return to the United Kingdom. That's a very strong statement, I said. Sounds like me. Perhaps uh, we've talked about this in the past. Uh, if so, uh, Joshua apologizes. But he's interested to learn why we want to come back. So apparently Joshua's in the UK. What do we like so much about the UK? And what area would we be interested in moving to? Ah. Go honey pie. Ah, well, what do I like about the UK? I like uh, pretty much 
everything that I know of so far. Um, mainly it's a sense of history that everywhere you look, there is just something that has been there for hundreds or thousands of years. Mm -hmm. um, I like the architecture. I like how the countryside is organized and that you can, you have the right to walk anywhere you want to. There is no such thing as being fenced out of, of land. There are towpaths and um, trails and things. Is that everywhere. true? There's no such thing as private property. Well, we no, can just walk. There's on... private property, but uh -huh. it. But there are public access. Okay. Everywhere you want to go, you can walk. All right. There are towpaths and pathways. Mm -hmm. um, so I adore that. I think that's just absolutely wonderful. Um, I, I think the landscape is beautiful. I love the British accents. I think that they're they're just so charming. So um, my ears are happy to be there as well as my eyes. Mm -hmm. Um, what else? I love national health. <laughs> yeah, Jen, actually, just before, while, oh um, while I was getting ready to film this podcast or record this podcast, Jen spent, it must have been at least an hour on the phone with our insurance company, you know, health trying to, company. yeah, health insurance company trying to dispute. Not dispute, just even understand all the billing. To understand if she could even dispute some of the charges that we got. I mean, we had just finished listening to a podcast episode um, where the uh, guest interviewer had written a book. I forget what it was called, but it was words to the effect of... Never pay the first bill. Never pay the first bill. And it was specifically referring to the United States healthcare industry where nine times out of ten, they will screw you in some way and you have to uh, do all the due diligence yourself. Where And Jen's just the whole time thinking, oh, I wish I was back in England. I wish I was back in England. Or I wish Malta. It, yeah, or Malta or yeah. you know any modern civilized country, which is the majority of them in the world, that actually provide healthcare to their citizens as a human right, as opposed to our ridiculous capitalist system that is just horrible. Um, and everybody's, oh, but it's the best in the world. No, it's not. We get some of the worst results in the world for the amount of money we are spending. Anyway, though. So yes, NHS, another reason you want to go back. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. Also, I loved being kind of central to all the European travel. Uh, we were 20 minutes from either Heathrow or Gatwick. So, you know, we could just very easily get on a plane and be anywhere we wanted to be. And mm -hmm. I loved that because I really, uh, I love classical architecture. And I really want to just spend more time wandering around these ancient cities. Okay. And um, what era would you be interested in moving to? Uh, well, low-cost of living areas are really nice, like Wales or maybe up in Scotland mm -hmm. would be wonderful. But Wales, actually, I, I do, I've been there and really enjoy it. Scotland, we've been there a couple times, but not long enough to really form an opinion. And I think it's a lot colder in Scotland. So I well, think yeah, it's further north. I would definitely prefer to not be cold. But 20 years from now, it won't be. 20 years from now, yeah, Scotland's going to have the, is going to be the temperate zone. And mm. southern England's going to be too, is going to be the equivalent of Spain. Yay! Yeah, that's true. Um... I don't know, myself, I keep pushing for Ireland. Um, you know, not Northern Ireland, but Ireland proper, because I want to do 10 years there so we can get our citizenship, so we can get our EU citizenship back, because it was taken from us. Because we are United Kingdom citizens. We do carry UK passports. And uh, recently, they got a lot less useful, unfortunately. Yep. Um, and we, we, you know, uh, over our wishes, because we certainly didn't vote that way. Um, so, yeah, I mean... Uh, and actually, I mean, Jen, you actually spent a week in Ireland with your mom, I think, and I have not been. But oh, you not, not no, been no, at no. All. Remember, I I didn't go with you guys, That's and true. yeah, it was just the two of you yeah. in the bongo for a week. Yeah, mom, that was her number one place to go. Mm -hmm. uh, Meath, Meath caves, Meath, um, Meath. Oh, what is it? It's a it's an ancient hill fort, and uh, that uh, kind of like um uh what's the stonehenge, stonehenge thank mm -hmm. you yeah where uh on on solstice the sun comes through 
a, oh. a little opening yeah, in yeah. this big, huge grass-covered hill. Mm -hmm. Really, really cool. And ancient carvings in there and stuff. I mean, older than the pyramids. Mm, wow. So really uh, an amazing place to visit. Yep. So, yeah, we did. We, we did some other Ireland stuff while we were there, too. Okay, so that's that. That's our feeling about the UK. Uh, and thanks again, Joshua, for supporting the show. No need to apologize. And now, Jack is back for another Jack Attack. He has a whole bunch of stuff. Let's get going. Um, first of all, I mentioned uh, the, uh, that I'm a huge federalist, believing in centralized power and top-down, broad, one-size-fits-all solution society, even with the problems that entails. I would say that's a fair summary. I know it's not perfect, and I do realize that there do have to be local solutions to local problems as well, but I do think things need to start from the top. Uh, um, so, question number one. Is my ideal future a single world government holding authority and power over the entire global population? Kind of. I would not say exactly that, because I do not believe um, a government holds power over its population. Population holds power over the government, if it's set up correctly. Um, that the government represents we the people. And it's on us to ensure that we exercise our authority over them. So, yes, I do see an idealized future where we do have one world government. But it is a government of the people, by the people, for the people, as opposed to a government that um, issues power and control and authority over the people. So, I'm half with uh, half yes, half no to your first question. Second question, if so, well, if not, of course, because I just said no, how would such a government have any accountability? Well, what you said wouldn't. What I said would. A proper set-up democratic government has... It's all about accountability. Um, right. So, uh, oh, and so you say one of the benefits of federalism, which is the opposite of a federalist position, it's confusing to use such general words. That's news to me. I did not realize that. But, you know, the states or, you know, the, the local versus the uh, federal approach, one of the advantages is that it incentivizes the enacting of good policy through competition among states, localities, provinces, etc. I don't know that I agree with that. I think that perspective is one born of privilege, Jack. Because, yes, states um, can compete for population, and that's great if you are a comfortable middle to upper class member of that population, and you have the freedom and the ability to pick up sticks and move because, oh, the state won over to the left. I really appreciate their uh, healthcare policy more than my state. That does not help the people who more than anyone else um, are who government looks upon, you know, the, the, the downtrodden, the disenfranchised, the marginalized. There are many, many people in our society, Jack, who can't just say, oh, well, I'd really rather be in Kentucky rather than Tennessee or, um, you know, uh, uh, Delaware rather than Florida. And, but there's nothing they can do about it. And um, because their local policies are, are, are an anathema, are actually destroying their lives. And just say, oh, just pick up sticks and move. That's not within the uh, realm of via, uh, viahood, which is one of the reasons I would say a bottom-down approach is not good because it um, incentivizes taking care of the people who will keep a local government active. And those are the people with the money. And therefore, you, you run into a problem. So that would be... I, I take exception to your number two. Feel free to jump if you have any thoughts on this, Honey Fi. Okay. All right. No, nothing yet. 
Nothing yet. Okay. Questions three and four provide context. Ooh. Jack points out that I seem skeptical um, of the incentive. I seem to just scoff at the idea of the laboratory of doctors. It's like he read my mind. Jack, you know what I'm going to say. Um, <laughs> but we see this competition among states benefiting people right now. People are moving out of high-tax, big-government states like California and New York to go to small-government states like Texas or Florida. Yes, but those people are rich. Yes! Have, rich people do that. And have skills that are in demand no matter what. Exactly. And they can negotiate work from out of state. Exactly. Other people have to start up GoFundMe campaigns and hope for the kindness of strangers so that they can actually make their lives better because the state they're in refuses to do so. Um, when in fact, that is government's number one job. Enhance the lives of everyone um, that they serve. And often, governments don't have to do that because the disenfranchised, the marginalized, the, quote, lower class, those with no money or influence are very easy to ignore. And if the answer is, oh, you don't like it, just move, that's not really being very empathetic to their situation. Let's just put it that way. All righty. Um, right. Uh, and and you, you point out, centralized authority would deny them that choice. Um... I'm not looking for centralized authority, as we talked about in step one. I'm looking for a government of the people, by the people, for the people, that is centralized, that addresses from the bottom down. That's why we are such huge UBI proponents. Because the number one thing UBI does is redistribute wealth so that everyone can share the privilege that Jen and I have, and that I assume you have as well, Jack. So that maybe then... Your um, laboratory uh, could work, but you know UBI is going to be something that ultimately has to come from the top down because it's such a big thing. Anyway, though, does this make me doubt my strong federalist position? I think you know the answer to that question, Jack. Uh, do I think it's right for me to force my ideas of what society should be from the top down on the people? I believe it's my right as a member of a society to exercise my will through my vote. And I believe it is absolutely incumbent upon the government uh, to respect my vote and actually um, use that as a point of action. Of course, when I say my vote, I mean all of our votes, obviously. Okay, uh, but you're not done, Jack. Jack basically just sends in like three or four emails, so I just put them all together. Next up, unless you have anything more to add to that, honey pie. Well, I read this thing about the red states and the blue states, mm -hmm. and you kind of skipped over that. Uh, yeah. That doesn't seem right to me. Um, yes, I, I would say Jack is very oversimplifying. Um, and you know, basically is using right-wing talking points uh, about how red states are leading the way in job creation. Jack, red states um, take more money from the federal government. I mean, blue states around the country subsidize red states because of their absolutely horrific policies that just punish and crush lower-class, low-wage people. Um, red states, by and large, are the poorest, the worst for uh, their economies, the worst for their education, the worst for their health care, the worst for suicide, the worst for everything. It's red states, baby. The blue states um, get taxed by far the most heavily and it's and are by far the most prosperous because of our, pro our progressive ideals where we try to raise everyone up as opposed to the red state ideal of, you know what, everybody's in it for themselves. Everybody pulled themselves up by the bootstrap and if you fail, it's your fault, and you deserve to starve. Um, unless, of course, the church looks kindly upon you and will give you a handout. I mean, I, I mean again, I'm sorry. 
Jack, you do this to me every month, baby. I think I was going to play it cool, and I got past this sentence, but Jen had to point it out. Sorry. But yeah, I'm Jack. I'm sorry, baby. Buddy, I, I, I appreciate you willing to engage in discussion, but your, your facts are wrong, my friend. Um, you, are, you, are, you are using very, very skewed data. Um, and you are also using very, very uh, skewed data that benefits upper class and middle class, specifically upper class, at the expense of lower class. No, we're not even and, upper class. We're talking echelons above. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, um, so... Why, why is it permissible that there is such a huge income gap between normal people and this 1%. Because rich How people deserve that? it and poor people don't. Is no. that the case, Jack? That is are people If people are poor, is that their own moral failing? And it's just, they should do better? Because everybody has equal opportunity in this country? I really hope you appreciate, Jack, that I'm being facetious. Of course, that's not the case at all. And that is something that only high-level federal top-down government can address. Not in an authoritative, command, rule everybody kind of way, but in a way that is responsive to the needs of the people. Starting first and foremost, this is a very Christian attitude, Jack, with the least among us. And if you can take care of the least among us, then probably everybody's taken care of. That's really how it has to work. That is not how red states approach things, Jack. I'm sorry, baby. Anyway, um, continuing on to video game stuff, which Jen will... T- uh, did, did Instagram work after you reinstalled it? No. It, it still crashed? Well, I have to figure out my password. Oh, you have to look up your password and stuff like that. Anyway, though, so she's on Facebook now uh, because she doesn't care about the video game stuff. <laughs> Last month, I discussed my idea for reinvigorating uh, the third-person shooter genre by doing away with uh, industry-standard Gears of War cover mechanisms, or at least downplaying it. I, mean, I think it's it's become too ubiquitous. Anyway, placing the player in a state of ever-present danger, always be moving, ABM, and two, highlighting the trajectory of bullets. Well, there's actually two recent first-person shooters involved on both those points. Have I heard of the new Doom from 2016, Doom Eternal. Yes, I actually played it a little bit. Um, and I'm a long-time old-school fan of Doom. Right, they, uh, right. They, I, I know they were published by Bethesda, and yes, Bethesda I, I don't have very many kind words for, but um, that, that's just that's a company thing. That's not the individual developers. All right. So, uh, you cannot remain stationary and have keep moving, changing tactics. Yes, I mean, that's true. It, it, it's amazing me how long it took developers to get Doom right, since that was the core of the original Doom. The original Doom, you could physically dodge bullets. You could see them coming. Hit scans were not really a thing at the time, and that's really important. And it is nice that finally with Doom Eternal, because there had been other attempts to reboot Doom, and they just kept blowing it. Although, as I understand it, the weird thing about Doom Eternal, because I didn't play it very far, because I just don't play video games anymore, is way too much focus on platforming, uh, to the point of annoyance, I guess. Alrighty. Could it be that has, uh, once again, tanked my dreams of innovating? I don't think so. Um, because here's the thing. Uh, I still plan on doing it with hitscan weapons. And I think, uh, for the mo- that was one of the things, they went back to being able to dodgeable bullets, or dodgeable fireballs, and stuff like that. Alright. Um... Right. And do you think the change from first per- to third has enough differences to always be moving and fundamentally rock the industry? If I said rock the industry, I, that's a, I, 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 I tend towards hyperbole. I even tend to hyperbole when I'm answering your questions, Jack, as I'm sure you know. Um, but I, I, what I want to do was 
what I would want to do, like I did with Siphon Filter, is show, hey, look, here's a different way things could work. And um, it's and, and I, I do think my approach would still be very different, and would also be different than Doom Eternal, which really, at, the, at its heart, uh, did some of this stuff, but it really focused more on platforming elements at the end of the day, for some weird reason. Uh, maybe I'm happy to hear my idea getting implemented, or oh, not implemented, re-implemented. I mean, Doom Eternal was just basically a throwback to the original Doom, which always did this stuff. And then you also ask, have I heard of Super Hot? Yes, I have. I've played it quite a bit in VR, uh, actually, uh, with my Oculus Quest, until I got so frustrated with it, because I, I hated its saves uh, reset system. It was just way too frustrating. Um, another first-person shooter, but this one, all the bullets have visible trajectory bass. Yes, that is actually very cool. Um, although, that's different than what I'm doing. I'm talking about actually being able to see the path before the bullet is fired. Um, so that you can make decisions about how long can you stay still, where should you move to, what is a safe spot, what is not. And um, also, uh, Super Hot, of course, is a first-person game. So you don't get a sense of situational awareness in the same way that you would with a third-person game. You have to actually physically look around to even see the bullets. Whereas for me, it's the notion, it's not of the bullets themselves. The bullets still just travel instantly. It's being able to see the laser pointers through a, a, you know, a, a HUD, so you can see basically where all the barrels are pointing. And I just think, one, I think that would be crazy looking. Because, you know, if you've got 10, 15 bad guys, you're just seeing these, I mean, you know, I don't know, maybe it'd be overwhelming. But I think it could be very, very cool. And it'd be, uh, in this even in a wide open area, you get this sense of claustrophobia, all these lines descending on you, knowing that every one of them has the potential, if you don't move, of ending you immediately. And that's a bit different than Super Hot. But yeah, Super Hot was very, very cool. All righty. Uh, da, 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 da. Um, and you're right, actually, to point out Super Hot, ultimately... It's it the weird gimmick of that is you freeze time. It's only when you move that the world moves, and it is a game where you have to constantly be in mo motion. Um, but it's also a game where you can stand still for ten minutes and nothing happens because it's only when you move that everything else moves, and so you have control over the world. And me, I wanted to make it more feel like what would it really feel like if I were in a super spy movie? This is why I tried to do a siphon filter, and um, the bad guys weren't all just going to wait politely for me to pop them one at a time, but were actively act trying to get me in a way that. That video games generally do not do, um, and Superhot doesn't do that because Superhot does this weird sci-fi thing where you can freeze them and you're and you're basically a god. All right, and question number three: If answering question two might have already answered this, uh, what do I, former big wig video game designer, see as the difference between first and third-person shooters from a design? Well, actually, you're right. I did just talk about that a little bit. I mean. I, it, it, it is more about the. That's the number one thing: situational awareness, and you know, and that leads obviously to all kinds of camera issues. Third-person game development is much. I've done both. Third-person is much harder to do than first-person. First-person because you are there, you are in the world, and in fact, because you can't even see yourself. You, I mean, you get so many shortcuts uh, where you know the level of uh, versimilitude and you know uh, connection you have to have between the world in a third-person game. It just causes a lot more work. You have camera collision issues and all of that. So just development. Third person is a royal pain compared to first person. But then on top of that, from a player perspective, it's, you know, it's a very psychological thing. First person, it's me in the world. Third person, it's that guy or that girl that I'm controlling. And it inherently feels more cinematic, less immediate. And, uh, you know, those are I mean, not that one way is better than the other, but those are the kinds of things that you try to think about and you try to leverage with a really good design. Okay. Thanks, Jack. And I think... Oh, wait, no, he's a little bit more. Last month, he said, I have a problem with people making personal copies of games, which begs the question, am I okay with downloading torrents of movies, TV, etc. for first news? If not, what do you find to be different between the two? Um, uh, I have no problem 
if, uh, yes, I, I don't think people should torrent TV shows or movies or what have you. But I have no problem with a couple of kids who are a really big fan of Star Trek getting in front of their family, putting on little cosplay outfits, and recreating scenes from their favorite episodes. I think that's perfectly fine. And to me, um, you know, making my own copy of a game out of, out of, I don't know, bottle caps and old used dice is more akin to that. There's kind of a craftsmanship to it. Um, as opposed to, oh, no, 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 I am literally taking exactly what the developers made and are trying to sell, and I'm just, I'm uh, taking that for myself, which is what torrenting would be, and it's what, um, you know, like professional board game counterfeiters do and then sell their wares on Amazon. So to me, it's very, very different. And no, in the same way, I'd be fine with a couple of kids trying to recreate the, the crew with a deck of 52 cards and as Sharpie, I'd be fine with them trying to recreate scenes from their favorite TV shows or movies, um, you know, playing dress-up. I, I, you know, it, it, to me, it's a very, very different thing. I assume, honey, you still don't have anything to say about any of this. All right. So, last one from Jack. Last month, I called the leader... Oh, yes. I, I talked about Hamas, whether they were conservative or not, as part of a broader thing. And, um, Jack, you had very long, thoughtful um, response to that. And I'm just going to cut to the chase and say, you know what? I misspoke. You were right, Jack. That was unfair to equate Hamas to what one typically thinks of as conservatism. I, in my just off-the-top, off-the-cuff talk, I was kind of conflating conservatism and fundamentalism. And fundamentalism is a form of conservatism, but there is still difference, and I will um, grant you the point. Alrighty, because otherwise that would have been the longest email I had this month. So, and I was like, yeah, you know what, you had a good point there. So, uh, I went, when I said Hamas was fundamentally conservative, I should have said they were fundamentally fundamentalist. All right, cool, cool, cool. And um, Honey Pie, I think we're done with politics, or maybe not, because I think actually, if I recall correctly, Dan is uh, uh, got something to say. <laughs> Dan hopes for well. Just finished listening to the podcast. Uh, appreciate it. Thanks for fantastic. Oh, Dan, you're fantastic too. But Dan was a bit concerned about my comments regarding defunding the police. Dan appreciates my stance to send other resources, social workers to particular uh, police logs rather than standard arm officer. In reality, this would be extremely dangerous as the majority of the job. Okay, Dan, um, I'll stop right there. It is too simple, in, in the same way that it is too simple to say, oh, defund the police. And I'm not a fan of that phrase because it's very, very misleading. Um, I, please do not think my expectation is, oh, you can just send out social workers to 90% of the police calls out there and everything will be fine. Of course that's not the case. I don't know, Dan, if you're familiar. There is a program in Eugene, Oregon called CAHOOTS. And I forget what it stands for, but it's C-A-H-O-O-T-S. And it is, I think maybe, hopefully, one of the models for police reform that, um, that, that, you know, that puts forward what the defund the police movement means without all the rhetoric, without all the very, very um, fiery back and forth. Um, and a big part of CAHOOTS is being able to identify what types of calls are. And it's not just about, oh, police go to something, social workers go to others, but that there is a collaboration between the two. And that you know the dispatchers are trained well enough to appreciate who is best suited. If social workers need um, armed escorts, if social workers have no place there, if police have no place there at all, 
So it's not a simple one-stop shop. If you haven't looked at it, look at Cahoots and look at the results they've gotten. Actually, recently, I believe New York City has done some very limited trials adopting the same, and it's had really good results so far in some of the various boroughs. Um, to which Jack would reply, see, that's local government working best. Um, yeah, but it's not really going to matter until the federal government makes that a thing top down. Anyway, though, so, um, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry, I, 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 there's a lot of this, and you've seen firsthand what anti-police rhetoric can do. You've had friends injured or having bricks thrown at them by protesters. I am totally sympathetic to that. I am not a an ACAB proponent, quite frankly. Um, I, 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 I believe there are bad apples, and I do believe bad apples spoil the barrel, but it doesn't mean there aren't plenty of good apples in there um, who are hamstrung by the situation they find themselves in. And I think rather than decry everyone, we have to elevate and celebrate those who actually do step forward and try to make a difference rather than just dismissing everybody out of hand. Uh, you know, that's, that's, a, and me, I'm again being very reductive and simplistic and, uh, uh, you know, you know, I, 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 there's a lot of detail here, but um, let's see. Sorry, uh, hurtful when you hear this kind of thing. Uh, when an officer would literally die to help you out if called, and I, I agree, I agree. Um, I believe, I believe the majority of people in the world are good people, and I believe the majority of police officers are people. And um, I think there is a direct corollary between the two. And I do think we are long past due for a reckoning to address the systemic issues that exist. But um, I do think there are ways forward, and it's not an all or nothing. It's not, oh, let's give them more tanks, or let's give them more guns. They're, um, you know, the police have for far too long been a one-stop, oh, that's a solution for everything. More police, uh, more militarization, and that'll just take care of everything. And, and but all that does is just continue escalating. And uh, I think we just have to go in different ways. And again, if you haven't looked at it, Danny, I'm sure you probably have. Uh, t take a look at the Kahoot system. I believe it's Eugene, Oregon, um, as what uh, as I think what is a role model for how we can move forward with this stuff. Okay, honey, I think we're out of politics now. Think. Right. I make no promises. Chris says, he's a long-time listener, first-time questioner. In episode 72, found my comment about... Oh, honey, now we're talking about cartoons and anime. These people, they just don't want to hear from you, do they? That's all right. Nobody wants to hear about chickens or tea. No, that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> it's okay. Yes, yes. Yep, you're catching up on your Facebookies. Yep. All right. Um, listening to uh, episode 72, found my comment about cartoons and anime. Interesting. Not a fan of anime, uh, apart from Ghibli films. There are some series that you've watched in the last year you thought were superb, though they're more comedy and send-up of traditional anime. I was wondering if I've watched or heard of One Punch Man, Scissor 7, Disastrous Life of Se Seiki K. Or Seikai K. I have heard of One Punch Man. I basically know what it is, but I've never watched any of it, uh, to answer your question. Uh, if they're worth checking out, if not, they're worth checking out. See if they're your cup of tea. I also recently watched Little Wit... A little with Academia, which has a lighthearted, easy watch limited series. Also, for non anime, uh, thought that Final Space was excellent, and dare they say it, the 2011 reboot of Thunder, Thunder, Thundercats was probably better than the original. I I don't think that'd be a very bold thing. I am very excited about the He Man reboot, but only because I'm a big Kevin Smith fan, I have to admit. Um, yeah, I, someday maybe I'll watch One Punch Man, but the reality is, my backlog of stuff that I really want to watch is so long right now. I. Stuff that I know that I'm predisposed to say, oh, well, that's interesting on an intellectual level, but doesn't really grab me. I'm just inclined not to go with. But One Punch Man, I imagine someday probably I will check it out. And and if that, then maybe I should check out the other two as well. But it's not going to happen anytime soon. All right, Honey Pie, we're moving on to Joshua. 
um, who has a game-related question, which you're not going to have much to say about. But you might have something to say about the second one. All right. So Joshua loves listening, loves content, thinks we do a great job. Here are the questions. Uh, First of all, Joshua wonders, have I connected with Jamie Stegmeyer about my progressive vision for the board game community? Josh thinks that the two of us seem to eye to eye on a lot of things. We have. We've talked a little bit from uh, time to time. Uh, Josh thinks the two of us could make a powerful team in building for a more inclusive future for us all. I suppose so. I should say, I'm not. It's really interesting. I mean, I'm not out there actively advocating for anything. I'm just wearing shirts that I think carry an important message, like, say, vaccinations are hugely important. I'm just trying to normalize ideas that a certain portion of my audience is quick to dismiss out of hand and not give a second thought to. I think the more an idea is presented, not in a ram down your throat, you must understand this is the only way kind of way, but it's just kind of a, oh, that's somebody I like, and that's what they like. Well, maybe I shouldn't just dismiss it out of hand because somebody else said I shouldn't like it. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not actively, uh, you know, pushing an agenda. I never mention my shirts in my videos, ever. Um, and, I mean, I mean, I could do, although, honestly, this is the fact that I wear the shirts has had such a negative impact on my viewership. I mean, my channel growth has pretty much completely stalled. It took me 10 years to get to, or nine years to get to 100,000 subscribers. At my current growth rate, it will take me almost a century at my current growth rate to get to 200,000 subscribers because my new subscriber rate has just completely fallen off. I'm getting now down to like, you know, 50 or 60 a month. Whereas two years ago, I was getting 800 to 1,000 subscribers a month. And there's one change I've made. It's this. It's the fact that all I'm doing, I'm not shouting about it. I'm just saying, hey, just for your consideration. But here, just watch the game. I'm going to talk about the game. And um, so I'm not really, I mean, and, and just that little thing is already um, making so much of my audience and my potential audience say, oh, well, that's an SJW. He's here to try and make me feel bad about myself. I'm not here to do that. I'm just here to present, hey, you know what? If you think I'm an interesting person and you think I'm not a complete and total idiot, here's something I believe. Maybe it's something you might want to consider. That's as far as I'm taking it. I can't speak for Jamie, though. Um, He seems like a really great guy, though. But anyway, moving on to number two. Um, Joshua has been thinking a lot about the use of themes in board games, specifically themes centered on colonization. A lot of people who love these types of games, Puerto Rico, Maracaibo. I I love quite a few of them myself, Santa Maria. However, I think we've come to a place in society where in order to be more inclusive and promote safe spaces for everyone, colonial themes should be avoided. Instead of focusing on um, what great mechanisms they have, I think we as a community need to stand up and say, put those mechanisms into new game themes. I'm not saying that all games uh, need to avoid violent themes, um, such as uh, pillaging and raiding and uh, Feast for Odin, which is abstracted and non-threatening. I mean, people would suggest that uh, the themes of colonialization are also abstracted and non-threatening. Uh, so it's, it's, it's kind of an interesting counterpoint there. But um, uh, there are topics like colonialism that are extremely sensitive and painful to people, specifically uh, people of color. Colonization is not a fun theme, but instead part of a narrative where people are worth less than others. So the question is, Have we reached a point in our board community where, in order to live up to our ideals and truly make a safe space for everyone, we need to let go of games that perpetuate narratives of domination and exploitation? We don't need to. I I always tend to think of any of these things 
as not a requirement, but an opportunity? Actually, my question is this, since you brought up Puerto Rico specifically, Jason Perez, who has a great YouTube channel called uh, Shelf Stories. In fact, actually, I'm doing a top 10 with him this month, top 10 card games. Uh, Jason Perez is a much more outspoken advocate for change. I mean, I just put on the shirts. Jason's doing the real work, and I respect him so much for it. Uh, he put up a video a while ago, um, not just saying how terrible Puerto Rico is because of its insensitivity and its, uh, you know, uh, you know, you know, dismissal of history and you know, kind of the erasure of, of subjugated people, which is all very true about Puerto Rico. His response was, "Hey, you know, here's a different way Puerto Rico could look." And he actually proposed not changing a single mechanism of the game, but instead, as you suggest, um, retweaking the theme. Not setting it in outer space. We have enough outer space games. But as I recall, it was something the effect of set Puerto Rico, I think it was like 50 or 70 years ahead of where it's currently set. After the Puerto Rican people had recovered their independence and make the game less about a bunch of colonists coming in and trying to build up in a colony, make the game about the formerly colonized people trying to build up their economy. And you know, and he made a strong argument that you could recreate Puerto Rico in exacting detail, not touching a single thing, and do that, and suddenly um, have a much more exciting, a fresh, a new form of uh, theme while still getting all the great fun gameplay. And I thought, that's fantastic. Not only because it's a great idea, but also because of the way Jason approaches these things. One of the reasons I love him, he approaches things and people from love. He does not assume that people are evil just because they haven't thought through stuff. Again, Hanlon's Razor. Never assume uh, malice when you can we, we, um, you know, explain by incompetence or ignorance. And a lot of developers have just never been in a situation in their lives where they had to give it a thought. Give them a chance. G help them. Um, if you, I mean, you know, be the change you want to see or be an agent of the change. And that's, well, I mean, I think Jason is maybe the most important board game YouTuber and I expect great things from him. I suspect in a few years, um, as his message starts to grow, and this is a message of love, and excitement and sharing of board games, and look how we can all do better. I think, Joshua, go check out his Puerto Rico video. I think you'd be very, very um, pleased. I certainly was. Um, and that's kind of that's how I approach it. Um, I, I do still think it's okay to have problematic or potentially hurtful subject matter if you do it intentionally for a very specific effect. If you are doing it um, not just to have fun, but to articulate the reality of the human experience, to create educational opportunities, um, I think it can be done with sensitivity. Um, but it's very, very difficult. And you know what? It's also just as easy to approach it the way Jason did, too. So why not go that way? So that's kind of where I'm at with it. All right. Number three, I assume, honey... You're still fine on Facebook for that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah? Okay. I'm listening, but... All right. But you have nothing to add so far? Nope. Okay. This is a heavy episode, apparently. Apparently. Um, right. I, I think, yeah, when you have an heavy episode, that kind of breeds more heavy episodes. Folks, if you want to see less heavy stuff, remember, you can always send questions to questions at raw.com. <laughs> lighter questions will probably um, lead to lighter episodes. So something to consider. Anyway, uh, when it comes to luck in games, do... Or, oh, hey, this is totally about games. And this right. one... Uh, I, all right. So when it comes to luck in game... Games, do I like it? Uh, how do I like it depending on the circumstance? For instance, I'd criticized Viticulture for being too luck heavy with the uh, order of shipment cards and how they can be a windfall for one person but do nothing for another. However, 
uh, in Joshua's experience with Roll for the Galaxy at two players with a dummy player, uh, he can't tell us how many times he and his wife, uh, his wife has beaten him with a lucky end of game dummy roll. Uh, right. So, uh, Josh is curious. Because I didn't mention that issue at all in my final thoughts for Roll for the Galaxy. Personally, Joshua likes luck to a certain circumstances. He cannot stand Catan for luck reasons, while he does like Roll for the Galaxy. For me, and I'm curious what Jen thinks too, how she feels about luck in general, I like luck a lot. But it's simple as this. The longer the game gets, the less patience I have for it. And for me and Jen, Roll for the Galaxy is a 15-20 minute game. Yeah. It's practically a filler. And a five on my five-star rating. And a five of you know, five out of five for Jen. It is near perfection and it's in my top 20, I think. But I have no if if Roll for the Galaxy were a two-hour game, you better believe I'd have a problem with it. Uh, a two-hour game being decided by luck of the roll, yeah, not gonna be happy about that. A 20-minute game, if it comes down to, oh look, we both did so incredibly well, and it came down to that final roll went your way versus mine. I'm okay with it going either way because it was just 20 minutes. That's how. That's where I come down to it. And I'm, I'm not going to say I'm always consistent on this, but I feel like I just talked about this in a game we recently um, had. Some game um, that really, I mean, it was really great right up until the end and it came down to some luck and we both agreed there was nothing I could have done and I just lost because, yeah, what was it? It was, oh, it was role player. Remember role player where we're drafting dice, making our character with the strength, the wisdom, the constitution, but how the expansion added, oh, there's little fights you can have. Instead of going to the shop to buy more things, you can fight the random monsters, and then yeah. at the end, there's a big fight. Yep. And we played the Friends and Familiars expansion. We got all the way to the end. We both had exactly eight dice. We were within a couple of points of each other at the end of the game, and um, we neither has had any re-rolls, and we both rolled, and you rolled all fives and sixes, and I rolled all ones and threes, and I lost and you won. And now, here's the thing. You were, that's ah, fine. Doesn't matter. And I was like, burn it to the ground because it was a two hour game. And I just couldn't stand that. I would have been fine if it had been a 20 minute game. How do you feel about luck and its impact on the outcome of gaming? Well, would you have felt burn it to the ground? If you did. Oh, I, I would have felt just as bad. Uh, when, it, when we got to that point, yeah. before we were rolling, I was like, okay, this is crap. I can't stand this. It doesn't crap. matter which way it goes. Yeah. And I think you remember, I was saying so at the time. Yeah. Okay, let's do it, but... Ugh. And I know I should be excited, and it's going to be really cool. And again, I'd be totally cool with it in a, in a sub-half-hour game. Anyway, I'm getting a drink of water while you... while you Oh, you're yawning! Oh, our timing is impeccable. Oh, dear. So what was you people are boring the crap out of Jen, apparently. <laughs> she has been yawning off-screen like nobody's business. The question oh. is, how do you feel about luck and its impact on uh, gameplay? Um, I think I, I'm along there with you. I don't want my whole game flushed down the toilet because of crap luck mm -hmm. uh, especially because i like the long the long play mm -hmm. so but a, a short game i'm not that fussed about it okay all right well there you go then um continuing on what elements of fable did i design fable is one of uh josh's favorite games really cool to know i worked on it well i didn't work on fable i worked on fable too Actually, I worked on Fable the Lost Chapters, which was the PC translation to Fable. I did a little bit on Control Scheme, because I was I, I was really there to work on Fable 2, but they, the team was still finishing up Lost Chapters, so I just did a little bit. But um, I was the co-lead designer on Fable 2, uh, along with Dean Carter, who was the co-creator, along with his brother Simon Carter, of Fable. And um, Dean and I pretty much... We were basically, if you think of it in movie terms, we were like co-directors. 
we were like, um, oh, who are the directors of Avengers Endgame and Infinity War and uh, Captain America Winter Soldier? You know, those, those two guys who work together and do, I mean, you know, and, and, we, and we kind of split our responsibilities. Uh, he was responsible for everything to do with the main storyline. I was responsible for pretty much everything that was optional side quest stuff. Uh, he was, I was responsible for, um, the economy of the world. I was responsible for the dog. Um, he was responsible. He worked very closely with Peter on, um, you know, he, he was, he pretty much was responsible for all the lore and the storytelling and the feel of the world and, you know, what the creatures were. And he worked really close with the art department on that. Um, we both kind of took turns. I think he was probably more focused on combat gameplay than me. I was certainly much more focused on world environment. The fact that you can vault over, um, that wouldn't have happened if I hadn't kept pushing for it because it was a lot of work and nobody thought it was worth the work. And I, then they went and pretty much cut it completely from Fable 3. Um, so, I mean, it, it was just it was a weird mishmash of things that we shared responsibility for. And then both Dean and I shared responsibility of trying to keep Peter Molyneux away from the rest of the team so everybody could get their job done. Uh, it was our job to interpret Peter's big picture ideas that... Um, usually weren't doable, but they had a kernel that was very, very cool and interesting, and so we had to turn that into something that would work into the game. So that was my, that was kind of my life on Fable 2. Um, did Overwatch borrow heavily from your work on Brink? I do not know enough about Overwatch to say. I, I couldn't tell you. What is Jen's favorite video game that I worked on? That would be... Apparently, it's not very memorable. Um, it's just the name of it. I have to think of it. It's the one in Austin where yeah. you get the little you get the tube that you ride down the river in, and you put my initials in the tree. Jen's referring to Pitfall: The Lost Expedition. Thank you. Pitfall yes. Harry. Uh, yeah, it was originally called Pitfall Harry, but um, Activision made us change the title to Pitfall: The Lost Expedition. But to Jen, it'll always be Pitfall Harry. Why is that your my, your favorite of my games that I've ever done? Because it was the most fun to play. Mm -hmm. It was just awesome. It had all sorts of cleverness in it, and fun, and very little violence, and mm. it was just cute and adorable and wonderful. Yeah. Well, I'm very proud of it, too. Uh, what about Fable, though? You did play Fable, too, all the way through, well, as well. that's true. I'm just very partial to Pitfall, Pitfall Harry. Harry. All right. Um, let's see. Did I ever... Do I ever play my old designs, my old video games? Um, every once... I, I still have a play... The, we still own a PlayStation 3 just on the off chance we ever have some Blu-ray we have to play. Somehow a disc or a, or a CD-ROM or, you know, a, you know, a burned disc. If we need to play it somehow on the TV, I've got a PS3 for that. And because I've got that, it is still... It, I can still turn it on. And one, every once in a great while, I'll just turn on Brink and play through a few random levels. Not online with anybody. I mean, I don't know that anybody is playing online, but just, just against the bots. Because once it's patched and everything was fixed, it's really great. So I'll do that every once in a while, but that's about it. Um... I don't, I don't actually. It's the only system I have, so I wouldn't be able to play any of the other ones, quite frankly. Alrighty, Gerard says hi, Rado. Just wanted to say, really enjoy the run-throughs in the podcast. Twenty-five percent of Gerard's games in the collection come from my run-throughs. Thanks for helping spend my money. You're welcome, Gerard. <laughs> Question is. Gerard listens to some different board game podcasts and knows that I have a Patreon account. But would I ever start a Kickstarter that could fund the show even more? Um, you know, examples, Jen's glass, promos I could give out, etc. Have I thought about it? Just a thought. Gerard, that is what we did. We, before I switched over to Patreon, we did do a yearly fundraising Kickstarter campaign. I think we did it three times, maybe four. I'm sure if you do a uh, search for Kickstarter Rado, you will find links to them. I think we did it four years. And it's when we moved back to America that at the same time I said, okay, let's just switch over to the Patreon thing. And honestly, uh, it's true. The Kickstarter did make more money. 
Um, probably a lot, like, you know, 10% more than what I get on Patreon. But that's in part because on Patreon, we have stopped doing physical rewards. It was such the assembly line work that Jen and I had to do to send hundreds of her glass pieces to people all around the world who had backed us and supported us on Kickstarter and, and arranging all that and not messing up and shipping stuff to the wrong place and then dealing with returns. It was just such a nightmare. Sure, it was only a nightmare for a month, but still, that's that's a twelfth of our life. <laughs> and... um. And and ultimately, I just wanted to get to the point where I didn't feel like this was just such a big thing. But I just I just wanted to get to a point where oh no, it's just passive. Even though I knew I was going to take a hit on the income, which we totally did. Just the fact that oh, Patreon is just is is a is a happy thing. Uh, you know, it's just nothing. It's it's you know, it's it's sure pure unbridled love and um, and respect and admiration and support because people are telling me that with their dollars, the most important thing they can to say it. So it, it's very gratifying to know that around 800 folks uh, value what I do enough to part with a little bit of cash, and I really appreciate that. And um, it's just it's just more about a little community. I mean, uh, there's all the special videos that Jen and I do that only backers get to see, and you know they comment on stuff, and and it, it just it just feels it feels more like a family and less like a business. Which is kind of what doing it on Kickstarter felt like, hmm. I guess, is kind of how I'd put it. So I've never really been inclined to go back and do it again. I just heard the doorbell ring. You heard the doorbell ring? Oh, Veer. Well, um, we have to oh, check that out. It's the plumber. It's the plumber. The plumber's here, folks. We'll be right back. Okie dokie. The plumber is set to work for another half hour. We'll see how things go. Parent, or basically... We have a utility sink in the utility room, and it wasn't big enough for the dogs. So Jen bought a new one, and the plumber had to come in and, you know, plumb or do something under the house to make that work. And now the old, he's come back, because the old sink's going to be outside for Jen to wash vegetables with. She's very excited about yep. that. It's my veg sink. Yes, her outdoor veg sink. Anyway, though. Uh, let's see, where were we? Uh, do, 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 do. Oh, yeah, Patreon. Yeah, did you have anything to say about Patreon versus Kickstarter, honey? I mean, you were you were definitely there with those Kickstarters. You were much more involved with that. I mean, the Patreon you don't have to worry about at all because I got rid of physical rewards altogether. Yeah, um, I think that's that's definitely been better. It's, mm -hmm. it's certainly made our lives a lot more simplified. Yeah, and streamlined. So yes, I think it's good. Okay, well, hey, Gene. In a few months, Gene's going to be on his first flight, uh, around three hours long, and Gene is terrified of heights. Oh. He's been asking everyone he knows uh, what the experience will be like, and he thought it might be good uh, to have comments on the subject with all of our flying experience. How do we handle flying in an airplane for several hours? Do we have any tips for someone who's afraid of flying? Do, you have any, do we have any general flying tips to make the overall experience better? Hmm. How tall are you, Gene? That's my first question. Uh, um, because if you're like me, 6'3", uh, uh, those seats are not made for you, my friend. And it's worth... Seems like more... I mean, it used to be, for years, all I had to do was ask, and I could get either an exit row or a bulkhead row, so I'd have more leg room. And uh, these days, it seems like most airlines actually charge an extra 50 bucks to be able to sit in those. And in my experience, if the flight's over two hours, it's worth it. Because the, otherwise, the person in front of you will lean back, and you will just be physically uncomfortable for the entire time. If you're a normal height person, though... Uh, then you'll be fine. Then that's not something to worry about. Yeah. What would you suggest? I think I would suggest, if you're really, really concerned about it... Um, I don't know if you drink, but <laughs> basically... As you can see from this episode, Jen's answer to everything is alcohol, apparently. Yeah. Get your friends to play <laughs> games with you? Get them drunk. Afraid of flying? Get yourself drunk. <laughs> 
Yeah. <laughs> I don't think drunk, you don't need to get drunk, but yeah. you know, like sort of that first drink that kind of gives you that sort of just mellow feeling. Mm -hmm. That is what I would recommend. Get get to that mellow feeling because I think of it as kind of taking down the barriers in your brain between your animal um, flight and flight response. And just that just sort of quiets that down is what alcohol does for me anyway. It gets rid of the, the cranky animal um, baboon brain <laughs> part of me. Uh -huh. So um, that's something I'd recommend. Um, you can get just, you know, flight kind of... Uh, Sedatives, Drugs, medications, sedatives, yeah. yeah, yeah. That sort of thing, like a Valium, too, if you don't drink. Yeah, I mean, a doctor will prescribe a Valium for you, too. Yeah, and it's not that big a deal. I We've taken, um, when we when we went on some really long-haul flights, I've actually gotten sleep aids, mm -hmm. those kinds of things that you can just buy in the grocery store that help you get to, get to sleep faster. So maybe something like that. Basically, you're going you're gonna to be fine. Your chances of having any problems at all on this flight are so minuscule. You are in much more danger on the way to and from the airport than you ever will be. You're in more danger in the airport than you are once you're actually in the plane, since planes are one of the most heavily regulated and um, you know safety-monitored things in all of humanity's existence. Yeah, and especially in the United States. Yeah. So you're going to be fine. It's just getting past that animal brain fear thing. Yeah. I'm, so I would say it's obvious. Don't don't get a window seat. I mean, nobody wants to sit in the middle of the center aisle. Get a middle of the center aisle seat. Yeah. Stay get as far away from the windows as possible. You might have that whole row to yourself. Yeah, depending on the flight, I suppose. But yeah, I mean, obviously get get away from that. And um, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be if if it if it were something really bothersome to me. I mean, there's no shame in a little bit of self medication. I mean, to, yeah. to, just to help you bump through. Um, when I I had a very, I, I was always found impossible to sleep on flights. I'm very comfortable with it, but I just I physically cannot sleep sitting up. I don't understand how people can do it. But there, when I was still working full time, I would often have to make several transcontinental flights a month, going back and forth between England and America, where our publishers were and where we were, or and even America. I was having to make long flights back and forth across the country all the time as well. And uh, and so I did, at one point I did actually I went to a doctor and said hey can I get a prescription for actual sleeping pills proper hardcore sleeping pills so I can sleep on these long flights and they did and it didn't work <laughs> I, I, they, even even that I, I could not sleep sitting up it, I, it's just impossible for me um, but yeah just something to take the edge off and stay away from the windows and just remember I mean literally air travel is the height. I mean, the only thing that humanity has spent more time and effort trying to ensure safety is space travel. I mean, you're one step below that. And, um, you know, it's, it's a lot of the same type of NASA-level stuff. So, I mean, the, the stats are in your favor. You're in, whatever you're doing right this second, listening to us talk right now, you are in more danger than you will be on that flight that you take. That's just the nature, that's statistical nature of it, because so much hard work and attention. Go on to YouTube. There are um, videos that you can watch that will take you through all the safety checks and you know all the redundancies that are built in. Um, you know, maybe watch a few of those. So you have, I mean, maybe I'll give you more of a sense of control. Because that's certainly one thing I think you'll find on a flight that is very disconcerting. The 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 flight deck, the captain, they'll never tell you nothing. Well, I mean, you know, I mean, it could feel like the, sh the plane's shaking itself apart because there's turbulence. And the captain will come on, ah, yeah, folks, we've got a little bit of turbulence. This will be over in just a moment. I'm like, dude, explain what's happening. You have a whole plane full of people who are, who are completely in the dark because we are ignorant of what turbulence means. So maybe that's something you could do. 
Um, it, it will make you feel more confident if you truly have an understanding that goes above and beyond what the, your average air flyer uh, knows. And YouTube will give you that information. Um, so maybe that's something you could do as well. Anything else? Um, yeah, I guess also just, you know, be thinking about what you're getting from the experience instead of how frightening the experience is. Yeah. You know, be looking forward to whatever it is you're going to be doing on the other side. <clears throat> yeah. You're going to be seeing... That sort of thing. Maybe take a really good book that you've been wanting to get into for a while. You know, mm -hmm. just distract yourself. Yep. Or download all the former Rado Talks Through podcast episodes. Oh, That'll put you go. to sleep right away. That will do it. <laughs> Except he's kind of loud. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have to, yeah. Turn him just down a little. Turn me down to a mumble. There you go. <laughs> and I can be, be some ASMR or whatever that is. All right. Good luck, Gene. Yeah. All right. Jeffrey. Right back when you're done and tell us what fun you had. Yes, exactly. Uh, Jeffrey has some personal Q&A. First off... Uh, honey, it is oh. Jeff and Kathy that you met in downtown Seattle at a Thai restaurant. You yeah. did it. That's yeah. an incredible recall, Honey Pie. Well done. Yeah. 2013, early 2014, Yeah, they'd won the Yunnan, and Jen was delivering it to it from Malta. What service? <laughs> they brought Glass Road, and you played it in a smallish game. Uh, you, you generally liked it. The lighting was not the greatest. A bit difficult to see. Had a nice dinner and a pleasure meeting Jen, who could not have been nicer and more gracious. As a result, we will never part with Yunnan or Glass Road. Why did I part with Glass Road? You got our Glass Road? Oh, no, no. You Oh, yeah, it was your copy of Glass Road that you played with Jen. Right. Because you're not getting my copy of Glass Road. That game is excellent. Anyway. <laughs> um, right. Right. So, along the lines of vision, uh, Jeff has noticed that we are not bespeckled during um, any of our videos, uh, many of which involve reading small text in low contrast. Oh. So, the question is, what is our refractive status? Boy, nobody's ever asked me that before. I know. What are, I, mean, I wonder if Jeff uh, is... Did he say? Was he... I don't think he said up above that he was in optometrist or anything. But anyway, um, are we myopic enough to allow to read most print without it blurring? Our distance vision significantly? Are you, are, are you just averse to wearing glasses? You shouldn't be because you have good features that would allow you to wear frames that would be very flattering. I'm thinking black frames, something thin that would complement the gray hair and skin tone. Not Harry Carey, uh, mind you, but more Ryan Gosling. There are pictures of Harry Carey and Ryan Gosling for folks who are listening. And uh, yes, I don't know. I think I'm a little bit closer to uh, Harry Carey myself, but it's very kind of you to ascribe me to a Ryan Gosling look. That is very kind. Um, food for thought, as an aside, been, oh, he's been oh. a practicing optometrist for over 30 years, so if you and Jen ever need any advice or have any questions regarding your eyes, your vision, let her know. Let us know. Um, for the invaluable service we've offered over the years, it would be the least they could do. Well, it's very mm. interesting you should ask. Well, but that's a very kind offer. And thank yes, thank you, you, Jeffrey. That is an incredibly kind offer. Um, yeah. Uh, Jen has had a very, very bad year for eyesight, actually. Yeah. Uh, early last year, she went to a local optometer or a local vision center and got monovision, you know, the one eye distant, one eye far. And the just. LASIK. Or, sure, yeah, LASIK, a LASIK option. And just this week, we're pretty sure she went back for her fifth adjustment. Fifth time, under the knife, slicing her eye open to zap with more lasers. Yeah, but and, I think they've got it this time. And she's pretty confident this time it worked. The first time... Oh, Jen had actually had LASIK surgery when she was in her mid-20s and loved it because yeah. her eyesight was terrible. I mean, it was all your, your, your eyesight was bad in college and high school and all that. Yeah, I've worn and, contact since I was young, a young un. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, so the LASIK she had when she was in her 20s, I mean, it changed her life and she loved it so much. And, you know, in her late 40s, early 50s, it started getting a little wobbly again. And so there was a local place that had a, hey, couples come in and get a discount. And so we both decided we'd do it. And Jen happened to be up first. And uh, so the first problem was, because 
It was harder for her, is what they said, because they were basically reopening your slits, flaps. The, the flaps from 20 years ago, yeah. right? And um, and that, that could lead to complications, and it did, because apparently they didn't seal right, and you got the epidemial cells that are on the outer surface of your eye, inside your eye. Yeah, they kind of grew around the flap. Yeah, they grew around, and it was like, ah. Yeah. Um, and so you had to go back for that, and then yeah. I don't think you've had that problem again. But then you just had to go back and just get adjustments because your distance eye has been great, right? Well, they did one adjustment with that. One adjustment with the distance eye, but the the. But that's been great ever since then. Yeah, but the near eye has just been. I mean, you've been having suffering from double vision, and of course, of course, this is in 2020 where they ended up having to take six months off, effectively, and couldn't see anybody. <laughs> yeah. And then by the time they started back up again, there was a waiting list a mile long, and so Jen had a hard time getting in. Yeah. So they've been really great. They haven't charged us for anything more, and she just got her fifth one, and she feels like this is the sticker, but of course it has to settle in, so we'll see. And in the meantime, all this happening, I decided, yeah, I'm not doing this. <laughs> I, we got our money back for me, and um, I'm just afraid. So, but it's interesting. When I went in, they did a test for me, and I couldn't tell you what their refractive status was. We had all this information a year ago. Um, but he, at first, they said I would not actually be a good candidate um, because, for some reason. Because most people have their dominant eye be the distant one, and the the near eye be the non-dominant one, but because of the way you are, it was vice versa on you. Okay, that's so, what it was. That my, my my dominant eye was near instead of far. Yep. And it, I mean, and, but then uh, but then they realized, or they, they, upon further discussion, they said, oh, but you could still do it anyway. But they'd have to do some kind of reverse version of it. I think. Yeah, there was some some workaround. There was some workaround that they could do, and like, okay, I'm a little nervous about that. And then Jen ran into all her problems, and like, okay, I'm getting more nervous. And with every additional one, she went back, and you know, and then she has to zonk herself out for a day, and then she has to take eye drops for a month. And I'm so squeamish about my eyes; I can't even (laughs) imagine putting contacts on my eyes, let alone having to self lubricate them all the time. And so, but the important thing is, I mean, you know, we did all the tests, and apparently, whatever my refractive index is, the guy said. My eyesight as it is right now at 52 is pretty much how it's going to be until I die. And my near vision is pretty good. And my far vision is pretty crap. Or it's it's good enough. It, it, it's I, Everything looks fine to me from a distance until I put on my distance glasses and suddenly everything just becomes 1080p instead of, you know, 360p, you know, in terms of <laughs> resolution. And I suddenly, oh, that's right. I can, There are individual, you can see individual leaves from this far away. Um, it just, you know, I, I just get used to thinking I can't. So I, I am almost to the point where I can't get a driver's license without, uh, without assistant vision. I think they said if I were a little bit further off that I might not be able to get my license, but, um, I almost everything I do is near is, you know, looking at computer screens, looking at games. And I, 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 I ultimately decide just to live with it. And it's something to do with the way, I think he said the way my, the pressure of my eyes is. That the pressure there's in my interior eyeballs, and again, you know, this is something I was told over a year ago. So I'm sure, uh, Jeffrey, you're just like scoffing and laughing because I'm remembering all of this incorrectly. But I seem to recall something about the the pressurization in my eyes uh, is such that my, that my eyes will not deform in the way that most people's do. That makes reading harder as they get older. That you know, the the the, the changing focal length will not change for me. Um, that and and that my distance vision. Uh, because apparently, I, I don't remember the particulars. I don't want to speak out of turn uh, and, and get stuff wrong. But it was something like that. And, and, and like, oh, okay. Well, like with my mom, yeah. her distance vision got better as, as she, she got aged. older. Yeah. She still needed readers for reading. 
you know, just little drugstore magnifiers yeah. for reading nearby. But um, no, so I think that that happens when people get older. Your near vision goes and probably your far vision gets a little bit yeah. better. Whereas my, I mean, I mean, I, I just picked this up. This is some random, uh, oh, this is one of these like little tiny super, I'm looking at a super tiny font instruction manual in 15 languages for one of these webcams I'm surrounded by. And hmm, let me see. Uh, see, where's the English? <laughs> power supply warning. The power supply is for indoor use only. Use only the power supply included with the product. And this is what? About a foot and a half away. And if I get this close, I lose it. But back here, I can do it. I don't know. What, what can you do with your fancy, well, super I've adjusted eye? Of course, your eye is still settling in. But I can read that, actually. So you can read it closer than I can now. Improperly replaced batteries may present a risk. They might. Um, so, yeah. Um, actually, Jeffrey, write me again if you're really curious. I'm sure we have all that data somewhere. All those numbers. Uh, no? I don't know. Ah, okay. Well, um... I know, I know Dr. Will has them. Yeah, so I'm, I'm sure we could just call. Hey, can we get our numbers again? There's this guy who we played a game with a million years ago <laughs> in a Thai restaurant. Who wants to know? <laughs> Go figure. Um, but he also has very nice glasses. He looks fantastic in glasses. Yes, uh, to, to your point about me having the, uh... Not the Will Forte, we both, the, we the Ryan Gosling look. Progressive uh, lenses. Yeah, I hate them. I can't stand using them. That weird... Yeah. It just makes the world feel like it's swimming. So I've got I've got near glasses, which I almost never need, only for like the tiniest of tiny. I've got long distance that are pretty much I just keep in the car in case I feel like, oh, you know what? It's getting kind of dark. Maybe I should. Maybe it's raining. Maybe I should wear these. Um, and I figure I'll just I'll just make do. I would like to have perfect because every time I put them on, uh. I was like, oh, I want this all the time. But then the thing is, I realize ten minutes after, or ten minutes of having them on, I, I just kind of forget, and, it, and, and nothing really changes. It doesn't really affect my life, and I just get used to it. And as soon as I take them back off, I, I within ten minutes, I just get used to it again anyway. So it just I don't know. I, I, it's it's gotten it's so scary now. Um, you know, the first time Jen did it, it went perfectly. Yeah, it was perfect. And in theory, it would go perfect for me because it'd be the first time I'm doing it. But why? Why? I mean, it's expensive as all get out. Um, and I go, like I said, we just had this uh, scary ride with Jen. So I've always been a bit hesitant to. And you know, I'm, I'm lucky. I, I can read. I, I do not need glasses to live my life at all. And I'm, I'm very lucky about that. So I can't complain too much. But yeah, Ryan Gosling does look really great with glasses. I should clearly get a pair like that. And then, I mean, I could look like that. Mm. That would be something. You need to start putting some dye on your face, I think. Yep, yep. Or I need to lose 20 pounds is probably more what I need to do. All righty. Um, number three. It's often said that I remind people of Jeff Goldblum, assuming it's the voice that they're referring to. Uh, Jeff gets the, gets the comparison, sort of. But Jeff thinks my voice is completely different. His is flatter. Mine is deeper and fuller. I don't... Uh, Jeff almost compare me to a Sam Elliott, minus the drawl. Or Alan Rickman, minus the British accent. Ooh. Maybe Richard Bland, the pro golfer. You lost me there. Um, <laughs> Honey Pie, this is a question for you. Who do you think I sound or look like? And who does Jen um, think... Uh, no, who, who do you, you and who do I think you yeah. sound like? Um, well, for a while there, I thought you sounded an awful lot like, um, who was the guy that did the Daily Show the first time? John Stewart? 
You so, I sound like John Stewart? Well, for a while there, I, when he was so popular, I think you're in I think you're right. Or... You are not the... Uh, yes. Uh, that was when we were in... There were people when I was working on Fable at Lionhead who said, why do you talk like Jon Stewart all the time? And I think I just picked up his mannerisms yep. um, just because we watched it so religiously. Yeah, but I, I think that's true. That's worn off over the years. Yeah, yeah. Well, because he's been out of the limelight over the years. Yep. And I think when you were watching a lot of Seinfeld, you used to have some of those mannerisms. You, you pointed that all the time, that I did have to... I, I got that cadence going. Yep. What's the deal? Yeah, that kind of stuff. <laughs> not not that extreme, but yeah. So I mean, th those are inflections. And you don't even remember this. Hey, what's that? Internet and people. What? Did Jerry Seinfeld ever say it just doesn't matter? I am telling you, it it's it's matter. meatballs. No, I don't it's, think it is. I think it's a Jerry Seinfeldism. Of course, married couples have all kinds of little things they say, and one of ours is, I'll just say, it just doesn't matter. It just doesn't. When Jen's really obsessing about something that doesn't matter, just a, it just doesn't matter. And I'm, I'm doing a chant from the old Bill Murray movie from the '70s called Meatballs. But Jen is has for years thought I was quoting Jerry Seinfeld from the Seinfeld show. Yeah. So. And this only recently came to light. Okay. If anybody knows of a, of a Jerry Seinfeld skit, maybe that he did it in, or where he says it just, I mean. It's it's kind of similar again in the uh, the intonation and inflection the the old meatball song and the way he would yeah but yeah, I would, would never have heard an old meatball no of course song. not you've never seen meatballs um, maybe you have you might have seen it as a kid maybe not though anyway but anyway I mean that's who I sound like who do I look like there's somebody you used to say I look like all the time back when I was in my thirties and apparently I don't anymore because now <laughs> she can't even imagine it you used to say I looked like Keanu Reeves all the time oh yeah. Yeah. Because we both have like very long, narrow faces, yeah. and um, you know, when I was in my thirties, I was more slim and in good shape, and I had dark hair like him. Yeah, that's true. Um, I was gonna say Keanu Reeves, but you, since you've gone so silver, yeah, and he's kind of gone long and lanky and uh, greasy. <laughs> yes, that, yeah. that doesn't qualify. Yeah, Jen has definitely fallen out of love with no, Keanu. No, I love him. I do. I think he's awesome. yeah, you, he's an awesome. You love the person. Key oh yeah, sure, yes. Mm -hmm. He is a kind and giving and wonderful person. Wow. I love I him. Know, I didn't know you had such strong feelings about Keanu Reeves. I do. I still do. I just wow. don't have a sexual attraction to him anymore. Okay. Good to know. <laughs> With the greasy, greasy hair. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. So, yeah, he's fallen off my list that way. Yep. Um, Although I am very attractive to just good men. There you go. So, I, he's still very attractive that way. Yep. Um, and all he needs is a haircut. <laughs> he's back at the top of the list. Yep, right. I'm telling you. Let's move on, shall we? Yes. What do you um, look like? Uh, I think, uh, you know, people have, have made all kinds of comparisons. You're right. I think I mostly get the Jeff Goldblum because of, uh, not not even the way I speak, but just, you know, the, the way I express information. I, I'm very, I, I'm not very direct. I, I, I tend to kind of meander a bit. I, I, I do say uh, a lot. And, you know, stuff like that. Mm. But actually, of all the people I've been told over the years that, wow, you really remind me of X, I think the one that really strikes me the most is Steve Carell. I really think I do have a very... Especially now that Steve Carell has gone completely gray. Yeah. I, I think I could probably be a double for him. Um, except he's probably not 6'3". Um, he's got a rounder face. He does have a rounder face in me. Yes, that's true. But with every passing year, my face is getting rounder as well. <laughs> so I'm on my way. Let's get back to those bats. Uh, yeah, 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 exactly. So I would probably go with Steve Carell. But more than anything else, these days it is... Um, I, I, I think we have kind of an overall, the way we carry our face, and then we both have the same kind of silver hair sort of thing going on these days. So that'd be who I would go with. All right. Um, 
Okay, number four. We've had some excuses with some of our, uh, or some exchanges with readers about Black Lives Matter, universal income, gun control. Having lived in Houston for many years, Jeffrey is very familiar with the culture and passion for firearms that exists there. But whenever gun control is discussed, do people ever mention what happened to mass shootings in Australia and Japan when stricter gun laws were enacted? Seems to me you've heard that they were curtailed very effectively. You are correct. Australia, which had a gun culture that rivaled ours, and it was a frontier country with the same type of attitude that led to, oh, everybody has to have a gun in their car, in their house, and whatnot. They were able to step back from the abyss in the face of you know the horrific reality of guns in a way that we have not been able to. Uh, and, it's, and it's had such a huge fundamental impact on their society and, and everything else. Anyway, uh, continuing on. Sorry, that was me interrupting. All right, I don't care about the history of guns in our country. Lives are not worth clinging to an outdated trope of the Wild West. Hunting, sports shooting, no problem. But the weapons that are sold and used for many gun enthusiasts are not needed for the hobbies of hunting and target shooting. Uh, I was nearly apoplectic when people started suggesting that we arm teachers and staff in schools as a way to curtail gun violence. It's beyond Jeffrey's understanding how introducing more weapons of violence in our community is an answer for mass shootings. Uh, it was also interesting uh, that many facets of law enforcement in other countries involve officers and detectives who are not armed. Uh, it's so nice. There's another thing yep. that's great about living in England. Yep. All the bobbies, not a single gun. Anywhere, I mean, just you know, and uh, and you know, and 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 the the gun control laws of England, I think, could be transplanted to America so nicely because you know it does still allow for sports hunting. There are just very specific things about um, you know, I mean, handguns are more heavily regulated than assault rifles are, uh, you know, here, and uh, you know, it's all about you know, like single-use shotguns. I mean, if, okay, if you want to be a sports hunter, then. Make it sporting. Give the animals a chance. Maybe don't go after them with a with you know a fully automatic rifle. How about uh, anyway though? Um, right. So uh, long story short, uh, Jeffrey continues with that a bit. But in the end, have I heard of effort of the efforts made in Australia and Japan to decrease mass shootings? Am I aware of such efforts in Europe and the UK? Well, I guess we kind of addressed that a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I forget what it was. I think it was wasn't it the. I think it was the mid-90s, maybe it was the early 90s, that there was a particularly horrific mass shooting in Australia. And after that, the government said, yeah, we have the power to stop this and we're going to do that. And they did. And they had massive gun buyback programs and um, and they really got under control and they changed the culture. And it is a, it is a no, I mean, it, it is now a safer place to live and grow and uh, raise your family. And it's just the right thing to do. I've never heard about Japan going through anything similar. And, um, you know, it's just always been that way everywhere we've gone in Europe. Because, because Europeans had two world wars on their front porch. And I think they have a better understanding. They have a better generational memory. Um, it's very, very easy for most really diehard gun advocates of America to say, oh, it's all fine, it's not a problem, um, because they haven't actually suffered. And, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's absolutely ridiculous. It's, the, it's one of the things that makes us want to leave this country more than anything else. I mean, the, the, just our obscene love affair with firearms and our complete and total inability... I mean, geez, I mean, I, last episode I talked about Texas working and passing on open carry laws you know, with absolutely no restrictions whatsoever. It's so mind-bogglingly stupid. So stupid. 
Um, you know, and the only, you know, uh, the only way to stop a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. No, that's just a way to get more good people killed when the gun goes off accidentally. And this is proven over and over and over and over again. But nobody, um, you know, on the pro-gun side wants to hear the stats. Oh, that's not true. That's not true. That's not true. It's the freaking NRA who has a stranglehold over everything. Although, I haven't paid attention. Didn't they go bankrupt or something like that? But, I mean, we over and over and over again, the overwhelming majority of Americans, including gun-owning Americans, do support common-sense gun regulations and safety measures, and yet it never happens. It's it's mind-boggling, and it's just too depressing to think about. So thanks, Jeffrey, for bringing us down after such a wonderful walk down memory lane. Way to go out with a whimper, buddy. Um, but yeah, I, I think we agree. Do you have anything to say about guns in America, Honey Pie? I just can't even get started. Yeah, yeah. It's it's so depressing. Um, right. From uh, Gerald. Jen, how's your stock market investing in the last year? Must have been some big dips to invest in? Um... Do you have anything? I think you just stopped paying attention, right? You just said, okay, I'm going to hunker down. I'm just going to ride it out. Essentially, yeah. I thought, I mean, you kept hearing, oh, Trump's so great for the stock market. Oh, he's so great. He's so great. Well, it's even better now. Mm -hmm. So I did actually sell some stuff about a year ago thinking, well, just in case there's some good buying opportunities, I want to have some cash. Mm -hmm. And I still have that cash <laughs> sitting in my um, my uh, IRA or whatever you call it in this country. Mm -hmm. IRA in yeah. this country. So, um, so I guess I, I was playing both sides. Yep. Okay. The big thing was we totally blew it on the GameStop. Oh dear. Because from my years when I was in the video game industry, Jen, to broaden her portfolio, would invest in various, you know, games. video game industry yeah. stuff. You know, electronic arts. And we had a a fair bit of GameStop that you'd bought years and years and years ago, and you were just holding on to it forever because it, it, it tanked so bad, and it yep. was just and you know they were going to go bankrupt and all that. And then one day, Jen says. GameStop's up five bucks over where we bought it 20 years ago or whatever crazy <laughs> thing it was. And uh, is there any reason why? I'm like, I don't know. Jeez, there, there, something's wrong. We better take advantage of that. And you, you pretty much just sold on the spot. Well, I think I think I held on another day and then it doubled the next and day. And you thought, okay, well, this is it. You got to get off. Yeah. And here's the thing. We were so both of us so stupid. We I, I kick myself about this all the time. If we would have just taken five seconds and done a Google search for what's going on with GameStop, and we realized what's happening, and we would have realized, oh, this is not just some normal, this is a very abnormal thing. This is not a blip that you just got to get out like most yep. opportunities. Yep. And if we had actually written it up to what it get, I mean, it, it became, GameStop became the, 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 the highest valued stock in the world for a while, didn't it? I don't know. Uh, it was something absolutely could, insane. And if we had been able to sell anywhere up to those crazy super heights, well, we'd be having this plumber do a lot more work, I'll tell you that yeah, right now. Yeah, he would be wallpapering our house right now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. So that is... Oh, I just. So we did okay. We got out, I think I doubled what I what my investment was, which I was thrilled because it had been at like 20% of my investment for yeah. five years. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we could have like... We could have really made out like times. bandits. I know, I know, I know. Ah. So, yep, don't take stock advice from me. Apparently. So thanks for reminding us, Gerald. <laughs> We're on a bit of a downer street. Yeah, I know, I know. Um, don't worry, Hanpai. The dogs are coming. Normally, the dogs are scattered throughout. But remember, yeah. somebody requested we put them all at the end. Okay. And we are getting... We're about there. Okay. All right. Uh, Gerald continues. Did you know that we can still live and work in the EU despite Brexit? The Republic of Ireland joined the EU. And they have agreement with the UK. Yes. I don't even have to read the rest of this. I have talked about this before. This is what I keep telling you about. We can live as UK citizens in Ireland. And after... I forget what it was. Eight, nine, ten years... 
we can get our EU citizenship back by by switching over to Irish you live citizens. In Ireland for five years, you can apply for so it's only five years, it's not ten years. Mm -hmm. You live in Ireland for five years, you can apply for an Irish EU passport if you can travel on EU. Yep, yeah. yep. So this is why I keep saying uh, when we move back, I want to move back to the the Emerald Isle, okay. very much so. Well, that sounds good. Yeah. There was that one house that we saw on um, Grand Designs that I want to buy <laughs> in Ireland. It was so Any house you see on Grand Designs, we cannot buy, I am certain. <laughs> Not that one that was just a normal house that had, they, they just renovated their current house. Yeah, I don't know why. I mean, I, I guess I must have gotten it wrong. I, I could have sworn that it was... 10 years. It, it, was, it was not quite 10 years to get Irish citizenship. But maybe you're talking about something else. Not having to get Irish citizenship, but using our UK citizenship to get EU citizenship at five years? Anyway, uh, there is a link provided... We I guarantee you, Gerald, we will be following that link yep. um, uh, at a not-too-far-off date because I think you have just helped me make my point better than I was able to do so. Because yeah. you were really well, hesitant. Because no, I didn't want to live in Ireland for Why? 10 years. Oh, oh, for, oh, yeah, you don't want to commit to 10. Yeah, that's a long time. And not have the perks and benefits that we had been hoping that we would have because we did pay for our British citizenship. We would get all those perks and benefits in Ireland as well. Ireland has subsidized public health. It rains there all the time. Ah. All the time. Ah. We live in the Pacific Northwest. It rains in Ireland as much as it rains here. Mm, I don't know. Mm. Anyway, uh, as you can see, Gerald, I'm working on it. I'm working on it. Okay, and that's it, I believe. Um, uh, Henrik did not ask for Jen's words of wisdom. First time in many, many months. So I, do you want to share your words of wisdom anyway? Actually, I just found a, a good one. I emailed it to you, but um, it's just here on my Facebook. Mm -hmm. Well, do you... I, I think it's better than that one. That one's a little bit. We'll save that for another day. All right. Well, let me go on ahead and delete this one before anybody sees it. Oh, my gosh. Did they already see it? Uh, nope, I haven't. I will cut it. Boop. It disappeared. Okay. Um, but, I mean, you're not required. If Henrik didn't do his job, you don't have to do yours, Anyfy. And we can just go straight to the dogs. And one cat. Well, this is really good, though. All right. Here, why don't you read it? This all right, all right. Well, wait, wait, you, you said it's on email, right? Hold on a second. Oh, no, I sent you via Facebook. Right, well, okay. Hold on a second, folks. I'm going to put it on screen. It'll be here in just a mo, so Jen can read it. Although, of course, anybody who's listening to this isn't seeing anything on screen, but, uh, oh, man, I love recording these with OBS because I can just pause and continue. I don't have to edit stuff together later. So nice. But anyway, hey, Pi, even without Henrik, you still want to share your words of wisdom regardless. What are your words of wisdom for the month? Well... I thought this was really good, and actually I just found this while I was scrolling on Facebook today. So it is fate that I share it with you. It must be. It must be so. Okay. And this totally rings true for me. All right. Um, a big misconception is that you need to be motivated to get rolling. You don't. The research says motivation often follows action, not the other way around. Mm. So in practice, you don't need to feel good to get going. You need to get going to give yourself a chance at feeling good. Hey, I, I buy that for a dollar. That makes sense. I can think of a lot of big projects that I just finally had to just say, I, I, I just kick myself in the butt and get going on it. Just get started. Mm -hmm. And once I got started, I was happy. The momentum comes and in. And I was making progress. Yeah. And I finished it. Yep. But it, it was just, I finally reached the end of my rope. I just had to get started. Good stuff. Yep. All right, folks. Well, that is it. Uh, another episode in the can. Although I still have to go and record all the other game stuff and there's um, no can and there is no can where's the can i promised there's, there's um, no spoon. so if you're listening now is the time to uh go listen to another podcast because we are done thanks for listening uh questions to questions at raw.com uh by all means uh 
Definitely consider questions that Jen might be interested in talking about from time to time. Yeah, that's all right. Ask him whatever you want. That, or whatever you want. It's, it's totally fine. She's happy just catching up on Facebook, if nothing else. Um, because it's gotten too hot for her to continue working on the scarf. The scarf isn't finished, is it? No, it's... The knitting. It's almost finished. All right. The has purling. has been for a while. Yep, yep, yep. Um, but otherwise, thanks for listening. Talk to you later. So long. Bye-bye. And okay, here we go. Um, now, if you're watching on YouTube, you stuck around because there's a bunch of dog pictures. You didn't tell them to stick around if they wanted to see the dog pictures. Well, I mentioned several times about the dog pictures. Hopefully, this won't be a... Well, we'll see what happens. Anyway, folks. It might be like one of those things that the movie ends and you have to wait around after... Yes, yes. We're, we're in the post-credit scenes now, <laughs> uh, which has all the dogs all the time. Starting, of course, with N Charlie oh. and Skye. Our regulars, uh, Charlie and Skye, coming back for more yeah. from Nigel. Looking good. Lovely. Got the tennis ball. All right. You see, right there we go. Oh, delightful. I and like, yes. on the beach. Okay, yes. Yep, good stuff, Ooh, good, good stuff. stuff. Yes. And now um, we've got Vosco, whose dog's name is Kira, attaching a ton of pictures of Kira to make up for the inexcusably long email. He did have a very long email, um, which we haven't gotten to yet because it was in the game stuff, so hmm. you didn't hear. Yeah, I, I haven't even... God, ugh. Jack's long emails, nothing compared to Vasco. But anyway, uh, um... All right. Apparently, Kira has an Instagram. Kira the Hedgehog. Kira oh. underscore the underscore hedgehog. Started uh, browsing shelters in 2019. After my parents, Labrador, passed away in June, I was at least partially done mourning and decided it was time to be responsible for someone or something and finally get a dog of my own instead of having a, f a family dog. For reference, I was 25 at the time. No intention of kids, only dogs. After a few weeks of walking, different dogs at shelters ended up choosing... I ended up choosing, I was briefly shown Kira, who had recently arrived at um, at her hall after spending a while at the infir infirmary. I walked her, I fell in love immediately. This mutt stole my heart with her sweet temperament and her charismatic eyes and ears. I later found out that apparently she's a German Shepherd mix, and that um, that's obvious to everyone except me, because I've always had zero interest in the breed, so I guess every rule has one adorable exception. 55 pounds, estimated about three and a half now, and thus fully adult. She was at the infirmary for a while because she was very sick, lost 23% of her weight in the first two months. And, I mean, his main, his main email is even longer. Uh, two months at the shelter and apparently had liver disease. Had to wait six weeks until she was healthy enough to be spayed since the shelter only allows adoption after nearing and spaying and finally brought her home. Kept giving her liver protection pills. But found out she had diarrhea every day. Took her to the vet three days later. It turns out the shelter mixed her health chart with another dog. The infirmary delivery deficiency was a symptom of a common disease. Have you heard of... Tick fever, yeah. Tick fever, which the shelter had thought they had tested her for. After giving her antibiotics for four weeks, feeding her, showering her, accidentally uh, gave her a few rashes when brushing near the skin, turned out to be much more sensitive than you would expect in a German Shepherd, nursing the wounds, started taking her for runs to recover muscle mass. She finally started to gain back weight. And after a few months, she's healthy again, but her diarrhea persisted. Oh my gosh. I took her to her several exams uh, to the point of exhausting my savings and having to make a GoFundMe, to which a few friends kindly helped a lot. And the bad good news is that she was healthy. And the bad good news 
the bad good news, and the bad news is that all the exams had been in vain since nothing alarming was spotted, which meant there was only one answer. Food allergies. Oh my gosh, what a roller coaster. This little princess apparently needs hypoallergenic kibble, but not just any kind. After several brands, uh, only two made her tummy troubles go away. She now eats what I assume to be salmon and uh, silver kibble because the stuff costs triple most premium grain-free kibble. But my baby girl is fully healthy. She loves snacks, chewing uh, dried buffalo ears, sleeping with her butt against me, and she's always hesitant and somewhat afraid of men. Uh, which uh, might be a sad hint of her past, but she's very confused by small humans. She does, though she adores girls, women, and female dogs in particular. So I guess she's got a taste for the fairer gender. Oh, and she was either abandoned from a home, um, or she's a higher IQ than me because it literally took two days to potty train her, and she learns commands and quicks tricks so quick. I always hear German shepherds are some of the smartest dogs, yeah, right? Yeah, definitely. Yep. In the end, I'm just glad she's happy and healthy. And I'm happy to shower with love every day. Cheers to you both. And here we go with Kira. Aw, oh, there's, oh, there's a lot of... Uh, that's a nice nod. Yep, yep, yep. That is a cute pup. Oh, look at that love. Definitely part German Shepherd. Oh, but look at how short the little legs I know. Are. It's like a Welsh Corgi Shepherd or something. Wow. Yep. What a cutie bo booty. Mm-hmm. In boots. In boots. And the sun. Yeah, I mean, look at that. That is a German Shepherd head slammed onto some other dog. <laughs> that is far out. That head is too big for that body. Well, I'm sure there's just... A In the best thing. way, I mean. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, oh, there's a fat beagle. Getting in trouble. <laughs> and, yeah, how could you not fall in love with that face? Oh, she's adorable. That is a keeper. There we go. <laughs> Okay, well thank done. you for sharing. And good job um, adopting I'm, yep. her and taking care of her. Good job indeed. All right, from Bogdan. Uh, who other stuff? I know you're not a cat person, but attached, please find a photo of Sarah playing Jenga with us, which you can post at doggorado.com if you like. And there we go. <laughs> oh, I think she's a master. Yep, uh, clearly. I, I, how did that actually happen? I mean, did she actually pull it out and rotate it like that, or did, is this is this a staged picture? I don't know. Did you smear some salmon juice? Yeah, yes. Is there, is there catnip on that? But yeah, that's very cool. All righty. Christian. Uh, Christian has upped the dog game by sending a video. Moved from Australia to Singapore just before COVID, where tropical thunderstorms are a regular occurrence. We got this video of a lightning clap while Lenny, the golden one, half lab, half Cavalier King Charles, uh, a cavador, was playing with a pal. Thankfully, Lenny is cool with thunder. Uh, happy to share it. And let's see, I've already had it opened. And here we go. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> Let's check and see if everybody's okay. Yep. Oh, back to playing. Yep. Oh, wow. <laughs> He's got some extra wrinkles on his face. Yep. That was fun. That was cute. All righty. From Joshua. Meet uh, uh, Henry and Maisie. I know you're not supposed to have favorites, but I do. Henry is the little princess. Henry is the black one. What's Maisie on his is. Back? What's on Henry's back? Yeah. Maisie. No. Oh, no. Maisie is. What's, oh, Maisie. what's that? Oh, that, that's just the bed they're in. Oh, it's just polka dots. I thought that was his back and that he had some sort of like sweater oh. <laughs> on his back. Okay. All right. Let's see. Which one was which? Um, Henry is in the back. So Henry's the black one. Maisie is the blonde one. Okay. Aww. So Henry getting in trouble, clearly. 
And look at that. That is an uh, awesome shot. Yeah. That is an amazing shot uh, with the detail on that face. Yeah. Good stuff. <laughs> Good stuff. Nothing better than seeing dogs running and having fun. All righty. From Jeffrey. Uh, all right. Two adopted dogs. Mentioned in the last podcast. Betsy and Kaiser. Pit mixes. Jen thought Betsy may have been some, had some great Dane. Actually, we had DNA tested through a wow. company called Embark, which is affiliated with Cornell University. Uh, they can do much more than provide genetic makeup, family tree, health screening, etc. Both Betsy and Kaiser are 80% Pitbull, 20% Staffordshire Terrier. Again, it's Betsy with the brow, the white one, and Kaiser Meister, the brindle. More picks. No reason to apologize. I do love an eyebrow. Yep. And I do love a brindle, too. How yeah. either of them ended up at a rescue shelter in East St. Louis, you'll never know. They're both very affectionate, have really fun and quirky personalities, as do most dogs. Uh, quick shout out to Gateway Pet Guardians in East St. Louis. They do a great job of getting us hooked with these two questions. Oh no! There's a question! Oh, sorry folks. Sorry, podcast people. Question squeeze in here. Have we ever had our dog's DNA tested? Uh, no. I didn't even, I did I guess if I thought about it, I would have assumed it was a thing, but I didn't know it was a thing even. Yeah, I knew about it, but no, we, I guess we would have been interested in what Scuttle was. Well, I mean, wouldn't you be interested in what Daisy is? Because we don't know. She's a mutt. Yeah. Yeah. Uh. Yeah. Yep. Obviously, we're just happy to have them. And these all look like excellent dogs as well. So thanks to everybody for sharing them and for sticking around to the end of the YouTube podcast, <laughs> because there was a visual component that the audio people did not have to listen to ooing and awing and it's just not cool and not fair to not be able to see all the fun stuff uh, that is an amazing picture there that's very nice that is an incredible picture and we will end with that again thanks as always for watching folks and uh, questions to questions at rado.com talk to you later so long let's go check on that plumber Bye.